Hi. Show hasn't started yet. The scenes coming out of Maripol today and over the weekend are horrific. It is inexcusable. And I don't understand why something like this continues to go on. Where are the Russian generals who will stop this? It is against international law to obey illegal orders. It is the obligation of the Russian military not to bomb heavily populated areas. These are war crimes. Why isn't anybody in Russia stopping this? And what's especially galling is my tax dollars, my country is responsible for sort of the same thing. This is what we did to Baghdad, Kabul. This is what happened to Fallujah. There are too many people right now in the world, experts who view Ukraine as a laboratory for war. And there is an excitement among military analysts. There's an excitement in the arms industry. There's an excitement among war connoisseurs who claim excitedly that we are witnessing perhaps a new age in warfare where tanks may become obsolete. There are reports that Britain's next generation light anti-tank weapons used by Ukrainian soldiers are wiping out Russian tanks, making the soldiers inside those Russian tanks sitting ducks. Thousands of Russian troops have reportedly been killed by these anti-tank missiles. Russia has not experienced casualty rates like this since World War II. Tank warfare may be a thing of the past. So far, six, six Russian generals have been killed reportedly by sniper fire in Ukraine. This is insane. Why aren't the Russian generals, the Russian military, putting an end to this? More than a dozen senior Russian officers have reportedly been killed. Ukraine says it has killed close to 15,000 Russian soldiers, while American intelligence says it's closer to 7,000. These anti-tank weapons were given to Ukraine by the British. They were manufactured in Northern Ireland, but they are owned by the Swedish maker, Swedish automaker Saab. Sweden, they're supposed to be neutral. Uh, Saab, that's the car that's supposed to be safe for everybody. This has to stop. This has to stop. Welcome to the mop up for March 21st, 2022. It's spring. I believe today is the first day of spring, unless you live in Australia, in which case it's the first day of fall. I don't understand. We can't get everyone around the world, especially with, with what's going on right now. We can get everyone around the world to do economic sanctions against Russia, but we can't get everyone around the world to to all drive on the same side of the street and observe spring at the same time. It's spring, but everybody wants to be different. That's why Australia calls this the first day of fall, even though it is obviously the first day of spring. And I get it. I understand Australia. You want to carve out your own little identity in the world. And so if America celebrates spring, you fight the cultural hegemony by calling it fall. I get it. But with climate change, with all that's going on right now, we can't afford to play any more games. 
all of us need to be on the same page. It is spring, Australia. Stop playing games. It is spring. Leaves are beginning to sprout. It is spring. Get with the science on this. Well, the show hasn't officially started yet. I'm just warming up. No fly zones. I want a no fly zone over my litter box, especially since I don't have a cat. Okay, the show is about to start. Hi, I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 62 degrees and sunny, which means it's spring, Australia. It's spring, 62 degrees and sunny. That makes it spring. Well, here in America, at least eight people were killed, 50 injured over the weekend here in America, which experienced at least at least eight mass shootings over the weekend. There have been 107 mass shootings so far this year. Over the weekend here in America, in Norfolk, Virginia, two people killed, three wounded outside a restaurant. In Madison Heights, Virginia, one person shot to death, four wounded. This weekend, one person shot to death, 28 injured at a car show in Dumas, Arkansas. I hope I'm pronouncing Dumas incorrectly. Dumas. One teenager was shot to death and three wounded during a birthday party in Houston, Texas over the weekend. Three people were killed, three wounded at a hotel in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Ten people wounded, one critically, in a shooting Saturday night in Dallas, Texas. In downtown Austin, Texas, in their entertainment district, four people attending the final week of the South by Southwest Festival were shot. Four people were shot attending a party in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on Sunday. Last year, 45,222 people died from gun-related injuries here in the United States. 45,222 Americans were killed by guns last year. 45,222 Americans dead from gun violence last year. Why? Why? According to Forbes magazine, in 2018, gun stores in America had revenues of $11 billion. Gun and ammunition manufacturers had revenues approaching $17 billion. A lot of that money uh, comes from sales to the Pentagon and other militaries around the world. This country is awash in guns. There are reportedly 400 million guns in the United States. 98% of those guns are owned by civilians, 45,222 of whom were shot to death last year by those guns. Consequently, public schools are spending upwards of $3 billion a year to keep teachers and students from getting shot. There's money in keeping teachers and students from getting shot. Security alarms. The security alarm business alone brings in $25 billion here in the United States, where an estimated 1 million armed security guards are employed. 
According to Newsweek, it costs upwards of $3 billion a year in hospital costs to treat gunshot wounds. And all this, the guns, the ammunition, the emergency room visits, the funerals, the armed guards, all of it contributes to America's economy. America's GDP, close to $20 trillion a year, which means guns and gun violence is no insig insignificant percentage of our GDP because guns are big business. The National Rifle Association, which has been turned into a lobbying arm for gun manufacturers, the NRA had revenue last year of $400 million. Wayne LaPierre, who runs the NRA, earns, we think, but we know, earns a salary topping $5 million a year. That includes some of the perks that we know of. So I know it's hard to believe, but there is no economic incentive to ridding this nation of guns. In fact, there is an economic incentive to sell more guns because getting shot or shooting someone, that makes you a job creator. When you get shot or when you shoot someone, you are contributing to our GDP and creating jobs. There is no economic growth in getting rid of guns. Guns create jobs, jobs for security experts, nurses, doctors, and bio-recovery crews who charge a fortune to clean up after a murder or a suicide. 45,222 dead Americans each year from guns is no accident. Some of these are accidental shootings, but the proliferation of guns in America, this arms race where the police must buy bigger weapons because the criminals are buying bigger weapons and Homeland Security must buy bigger weapons because the domestic terrorists are buying bigger weapons. This is no accident. There are gun manufacturers and lobbyists who need to sell more and more guns because they are corporations and corporations must show growth. You cannot sell fewer weapons this year than you did the year before. You must grow more revenue, more, more, sell more weapons, sell more ammunition. That's why 45,222 Americans died last year from guns and more will die this year and more will die next year. And that's good because the more people who die from guns, the more people think they need a gun to protect themselves from a gun, even though there has never ever been a recorded incident of someone preventing a mass shooting by shooting the shooter. It's impossible. We saw that with Kyle Rittenhouse. He was an active shooter and someone with a gun tried to stop him, but Rittenhouse shot him. And nobody knew who the active shooter was and who the good guy with the gun was because in the fog of a mass shooting, nobody can tell the difference between the good guy with the gun and the bad guy with the gun. The answer is nobody with a gun. Nobody stops a home invasion with a gun.
But we are a gun culture. We kill people overseas and here at home. And the more people who get killed, the more we get used to it. You know, humans get used to a lot. Neil Armstrong was once asked, I think it was Neil Armstrong, the first person to step foot on the moon, or it might've been Michael Collins. Somebody from Apollo 11 was asked how they were able to calm down as they orbited the moon. A reporter asked, how they were able to contain themselves. You're seeing the moon. And, and one of the astronauts said, you'd be amazed at what a human being can grow accustomed to. In other words, couple laps around the moon, you get used to it. These mass shootings, they used to be horror shows. Now, when there's a mass shooting, we say, how many? Only six? Eh, that's nothing. That's what's happened with guns here in America. We've grown so accustomed to 45,222 Americans dying each year from guns that people who never once considered getting a gun are now thinking, well, maybe I should get a gun. You can get used to 45,222 Americans shot to death each year. We have. It's growing and we've gotten accustomed to it the same way we've gotten accustomed to homeless people sleeping in our lobby or Americans dying because they can't afford health care. You can get accustomed to as many as one out of four children in America living in poverty. It's like that ringing we all have in our ears. If you don't pay attention to it, it goes away. Now, I don't know how closely you've been following Ukraine. It is a tragedy, a horror show. Will we get accustomed to it? We got accustomed to Iraq. We got accustomed to Afghanistan. Two years in, we nobody could tell who, the, if, if you were asked who the president of Afghanistan was, nobody could tell you. Nobody could tell you who the leaders of Iraq were or the generals fighting for us over there. We grew accustomed to Afghanistan and we grew accustomed to Iraq. Will we get used to what's going on in Ukraine? We kind of got used to Yemen. UNICEF says 10,200 children in Yemen have been killed or maimed. 23.7 million people in Yemen need food, medicine, and housing right now, including 13 million children. Two million children in Yemen are homeless. We got used to Syria. The death toll could be as high as 610,000. When it comes to Syria, most of the debate I hear on the left when it comes to Syria is whether Assad gassed his own people. That's the debate. No debate on how America could get the Syrian people food and medicine or how we could accept Syrian refugees. 19 million East Africans are suffering from drought caused by climate change. On this one, Americans didn't forget. Americans did not forget that one because you need to hear about something before you can forget it ever happened. So in defense of the American people, Nobody in the media is talking about Somalia. 
South Sudan, Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So Americans cannot be blamed for forgetting about those people. How long before we get accustomed to the suffering in Ukraine, which I, I've been talking about Ukraine nonstop. How long before it gets boring and we change topics? Every day for close to three weeks, banner headlines about the tragedy in Ukraine. I am rooting for the Ukrainian people. Every country has the right to decide its own destiny. Like most of you, I am in awe of the Ukrainians who refuse to surrender, the ones who have stayed behind to fight. And because I'm not there, because this is an abstraction, something I read about or think about or watch on my TV, but never actually experience, I take some vicarious thrill in learning that the Russians are stalled both on the ground and in the air. I read about anti-tank missiles blowing up young Russian kids sitting inside those tanks. Russian kids who reportedly had no idea they were invading Ukraine, who were reportedly told they were merely participating in a training exercise. The animal in me, the beast within, roots against their tanks. The beast within wants Russia to lose. The beast within is okay with Russian soldiers, those kids in those tanks dying or coming home physically and psychologically maimed. War is a team sport, blue and gold. Those are my colors. I'm with the blue and gold, but it's not a sport. It's tragedy. It's a permanent stain. And what we should be rooting for is a cease fire. We should be rooting for peace. The television networks can't stop themselves from interviewing retired generals who secretly serve as lobbyists for our weapons industry. We see maps of Ukraine and they can't wait to discuss the, the dip, different weapons that are being used and troop movements, but we don't hear from peace activists. We don't hear from people who are calling for diplomacy and peace. If there's war, then there's also peace. Where are the experts on peace? We hear nothing from peace experts. We only hear from the war experts who have proven generation after generation to be incompetent fools. Where are the diplomats who can outline the quickest steps to a ceasefire? That is the top story. Peace. Peace is our top story, but it's nowhere to be found. The lead story is the peace talks, not the war, the negotiations, the diplomacy. That's where you find the heroes. That's the lead story because there is nothing more important than arriving at some sort of cease fire. The war is secondary. The suffering, the bloodshed, the fight, it all makes for great television, makes for great reading, but the story 
is the fight for peace. The story isn't how Ukraine is holding up against Putin's Goliath of an army. It's how are the peace talks going? How is the diplomacy going? But the media and our government loves war. The media loves covering it. The country loves crying about it. They love the people who fight these wars until they come home. We love the people who fight these wars, but we have no tears to spare for the people who are trying to stop the wars. In, in America, both parties, the media, most Americans want to know how we can help Ukraine win. But Ukraine and Russia have already lost millions of refugees. War is always a failure. Both sides lost because nobody ever wins a war. That's why our top story must be peace, the peace talks. And if the peace talks are stalled, if they're not proceeding, our top story is why, what's happening to the peace talks. Anthony Blinken is our Secretary of State, not our Secretary of War. He should not be running around Europe collecting arms to give to Ukraine. That's what General Austin should be doing. He's Secretary of Defense. Our diplomats should not be trading weapons. Our top story is peace, not war. So much ink has been spilled on that 45-kilometer Russian convoy that had been stalled outside of Kiev for several weeks, right? But nothing about the stalled peace talks. We, we love to look at those satellite shots of all those Russian tanks sitting there, but nothing about the peace talks that have been stalled. If a convoy of tanks just sitting there doing nothing is news, then peace talks stalled doing nothing is also news, and it's more important news. Peace is more important than war. There is something about war, especially I think for men, that focuses the mind. It, it's the beast within, it generates some kind of hormone uh, that steals us from the consequences of war until it's too late. It's all wrong. War is wrong. War is failure. War is failure because there is always something both sides could have done to stop the war from happening. Always, always. There is always a way to stop a war. Now, when I was younger, I was tricked into believing that war is sometimes necessary. It is never necessary. War is never necessary. There is no excuse for domestic violence. And there's no excuse for foreign violence. There's no excuse for violence, period. People who resort to violence are inferior. 
They are inferior spiritually, physically, and intellectually. They are the lowest form of humanity. People who encourage and profit off violence are subhuman and evil because all violence is immoral. And all of us must dedicate our lives to peace. If you're on Team Gold and Blue, and I am, then the best way to help Team Gold and Blue is to demand that our country demand a ceasefire yesterday. Call for diplomacy. There are always alternatives to war. Always, all war can be prevented. The problem is the beast within. The problem is too many of us enjoy war. We write books, produce movies. We give out medals celebrating war. But war only produces victims. War heroes are victims. Audie Murphy was a victim. The people who fight to stop war are the only heroes because nothing good ever comes from war. Nothing. Now, I like Zelensky, and he has consistently begged for peace and a ceasefire. I'm rooting for him and Ukraine. Not to win because that's too late. Russia and Ukraine have already lost. Wars are never won. I'm rooting for Zelensky. I'm rooting for Ukraine to find peace. Providing weapons to Ukraine. Seems to me the West should be fighting for peace. I don't trust the West. I don't trust NATO or Biden. I don't trust that they have exhausted every option to prevent Putin from going in to Ukraine. I don't trust they have exhausted every option to convince Putin to pull out of Ukraine. I do not trust NATO or the West or America when it comes to making war. For weeks, Biden and Putin they were talking to the world and Biden kept saying, he's going to invade. He's going to invade. What he didn't say was, he's going to invade. So let me make this offer that Ukraine will never join NATO. If Putin agrees not to invade, I promise Ukraine will never join NATO. We can negotiate the EU, maybe Russia would like to join the EU. We'll even negotiate Crimea and the Donbass region. But I'm telling you now, as president of the United States, if Vladimir Putin promises not to invade Ukraine, I give him my word that Ukraine will never join NATO. I never heard that. I'm hearing it now, but from Zelensky, their president, who has told reporters, who told British Prime Minister Boris Johnson that he now realizes that NATO 
is out of the question. Never heard that before Putin invaded. Now Zelensky and the Ukrainian people are saying, yeah, we thought we were invited into NATO, but it looks like that's not going to happen. Gee, it would have been nice if we signaled that to Ukraine before Putin invaded. Don't you think? See, I root for America. I'm rooting for Ukraine. I'm rooting for Biden and Zelensky and the West. I'm rooting for the Ukrainian people, and I'm also rooting for the Russian people. I'm rooting against Putin. I'm rooting against Putin and the oligarchs who surround him. I'm rooting against Putin. I'm rooting for peace. And when it comes to war and peace, I love America. But when it comes to war and peace, I do not trust America. I do not trust that my country will exhaust every avenue on the road to peace. I love my country, but I do not trust it when it comes to making war because this country loves war. And the reason we love war here in the United States is none of us have to fight it. 1% of this country serves in the military, 1%. We like war, we love war because it's something on the television. War in America is a lot more fun to watch than peace. Peace is boring. Peace is, who wants to see a movie about peace activists? I know Putin is evil. I also know that the country I love, America, is the strongest in the world militarily and economically. I know we could have stopped Putin from invading Ukraine. I know that. If we cared about the Ukrainian people, we would have stopped this from happening through diplomacy diplomacy that started eight years ago. I know that. I know that because I never once heard an American leader say NATO was off the table for Ukraine. Because NATO countries, here's why you will never hear it. NATO countries must spend 2% of their GDP each year on weapons. And that means American weapons manufacturers get 2% of Ukraine's entire economy. And weapons manufacturers like Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Raytheon, they must grow. They have shareholders. They must do better this year than they did the year before. And here in America, well, they've maxed out military spending here in America because, you know, we're out of Afghanistan. So we, we raised the defense budget, even though we pulled out of Afghanistan. But our weapons manufacturers, they need new markets. They've squeezed everything they possibly could out of America. They need new markets, and you find new markets by expanding NATO, where you get 2% of every member nation's GDP. Ukraine, 
Ukraine is the largest country in Europe. A lot of property to protect, and that means a lot of weaponry to be purchased. Ukraine is a market for our weapons manufacturers. Our weapons manufacturers don't give a shit about the Ukrainian people. They want 2% of their GDP. If America really cared about the Ukrainian people, we would have promised Putin that Ukraine is staying out of NATO. Now that's, you know, what I'm saying right now, many would consider, you know, hippy-dippy uh, talk from the 60s. People who, who fight for peace are always dismissed as, you know, dreamers, people who have their head in the clouds. We're not dealing with the real world. I remember 2003. I remember 2002 and I remember 2003, where the, the hippy-dippies were dismissed as having their heads in the clouds and not dealing with what was really happening in the Middle East. I remember the lead up to the illegal invasion of Iraq. And if you were against the illegal invasion of Iraq and you worked for the mainstream media, you were fired. Phil Donahue and Rosie O'Donnell were against the invasion and they were fired from MSNBC. You couldn't hear anybody go on MSNBC or CNN and say there are no weapons of mass destruction. Michael Moore was vilified at the 2003 Oscars for accepting his Academy Award for Bowling for Columbine, which was about gun violence in America, which we have school shootings, the school shooting at Columbine. He did a documentary about that. And we've grown accustomed to those school shootings because what happened in Columbine is nothing compared to what's happened 20 years hence. Michael Moore was vilified when he accepted the award and he stood before the entertainment industry and called the invasion a lie. He was booed. He was vilified. The protests, however, against the invasion of Iraq were bigger than anything worldwide and here in America, bigger than anything we saw during Vietnam. But the media really didn't cover it. The protesters were dismissed as crackpots. And if you were against the war, you were against our troops, you were against our flag, you were against America, and everybody got in line. And we invaded, destroyed Iraq, millions displaced, hundreds of thousands dead because of a lie a lie. It was all a lie. And the people who said it was a lie before we went in were dismissed as crackpots and disloyal Americans. And George Bush lied. He said he tried diplomacy. He insisted he had allowed the weapons inspectors to take all the time they needed. While the weapons inspectors kept saying, no, we, we need more time. We haven't found any evidence that there are WMDs. But Bush lied, Colin Powell lied to the UN, 
And you know what? The U.N., saw Colin Powell's speech in which he lied, and the UN said, no, no, America, there are no WMDs. We do not sanction your war. The only people who fell for America's lies were Americans. And Tony Blair, Bush's toady, Tony Blair, with all his offshore accounts and tax havens, Tony Blair from the Pandora Papers and the Panama Papers, Tony Blair. No war. They said no to war. France, the surrender monkeys, the French said no to war. They were foolish. They were cowards. That was an invasion that violated the Geneva Conventions because it was not an act of defense, nor was it sanctioned by the UN. The invasion of Iraq was illegal, but it didn't matter because anyone who opposed our invasion of Iraq was weak. The UN, you're all weak. We're gonna go in there and it's gonna be a cakewalk. We're gonna find weapons of mass distraction or destruction and be welcomed as liberators. And Bush got his war and nobody has apologized. Nobody, nobody apologized. Nobody said, sorry, sorry. I bump into somebody on the subway. I say, I'm sorry. These people destroy an entire region of the world Nobody says sorry, not Colin Powell, not Bush, not Cheney, not Wolfowitz, Condi Rice, Bill Crystal, who should rot in hell, MSNBC. Nobody apologized. Nobody apologized to the anti-war movement. Nobody apologized to our nobody apologized to Cindy Sheehan. Nobody apologized to the troops or to the people of Iraq. Nobody apologized for pounding the war drum and leading us into an illegal war based on a lie. When you scratch underneath the surface of any war, it's caused by three things, greed, stupidity, and the need for leaders to distract their citizens from all the problems they are having domestically. Putin cannot jumpstart his economy. So he turns to Christianity, he turns to patriotism, and making Russia great again, a, re, a return to the empire, to, to the Soviet Union. Make Russia great again. And it's not working. Most of the Russians apparently, or at least half, are not happy with this decision. But when you invade a nation, it brings the nation together. Zelensky's speech got Democrats and Republicans together. Wasn't that beautiful? Nothing brings the two parties together like spending more money on weapons. That's what we love. That's, that's what we love. Because war is big business. There are people who see profits and war and justify profits in war by insisting that war is a constant in nature. So it might as well be America 
that wins those wars. And if America is going to win those wars, there's nothing wrong with my profiting off those wars. It's patriotic. But American weapons manufacturers, David Rubenstein, who runs the Carlyle Group, as well as the Kennedy Center and Foreign Affairs Magazine and the Atlantic Council, David Rubenstein, he's not in business to protect America because weapons manufacturers here in America will pretty much sell weapons to any country that will buy them. Our weapons, the ones that are made here in America, are sold to nearly 100 countries around the world. There's nothing patriotic about Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin. They will sell to any country that's willing to pay for them. They officially, our weapons go to Brazil, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, which just executed 82 men, Oman, Egypt, Israel, and Iraq. And all these weapons are then sold on the secondary black market, ending up in the hands of even worse people than the countries we're selling weapons to. And America doesn't care if our high-tech weapons end up in the wrong hands that's great. Then it justifies making higher tech weapons to outgun them. But armies need weapons. War is a constant in nature, so it might as well be America, right? That's what they say. If we don't make the weapons, somebody else will. And I understand that thinking. I do. There are bad people out there like Putin or Dick Cheney, or, or Colin Powell, or Donald Rumsfeld. It seems to me, if we're smart enough to make these incredible weapons, we should be smart enough to figure out a way to keep them out of the hands of most people. We talk a lot, a lot about stopping the proliferation of nuclear weapons. We need to stop the proliferation of all weapons. Because if, as the weapons manufacturers insist, war is a constant in nature, then it follows we should do everything we can to keep the weapons of war out of the hands of as many people as possible. Man is violent, they say. There's nothing you can do to change man. He will always be violent. It's as old as the Bibles. Okay, if man is innately violent, keep sharp objects away from him. Seems to me wars are fought because of the weapons. No weapons, no wars. Like no guns, no mass shootings. I've heard people defend mass shootings <laughs> saying, oh, it's human nature. Yeah, it is human nature. So don't manufacture these assault weapons. Seems to me, with all these brilliantly educated Americans going to the top schools, seems to me we could have figured this out already. Unless, of course, we did figure it out, but decided there's more money to be made 
in killing one another. Maybe we figured the real profits can be found in killing one another. Now, right now, nine countries have nuclear weapons and the UN is working, America is working to keep it at nine. Seems to me the UN should disarm the entire world. That should be its mission, to disarm not just countries' nuclear programs, all their weapons. Nobody should be allowed to have a jet fighter, rocket launchers, or tanks. Seems to me we should be dismantling militaries, including ours, all over the world. I know armies are necessary, but if you're manufacturing these tanks and missiles, well, the UN could stop this by telling these arms manufacturers that they're no longer allowed to participate in the community of nations. That, to me, would be civilized. Seems to me the goal should be disarming the entire world, including America, getting the guns off the street and the weapons out of the Pentagon. We should be getting rid of weapons, not making more of them. Because if war is a constant of nature and that man, if you insist that man is innately violent and you can't change human nature, keep the weapons away from him. No weapons, no war, but no profits. We love war, and this is a war economy. We're in a permanent state of war, and people on Wall Street were terrified after we pulled out of Afghanistan. There were earnings calls that were reported in the Financial Times where low-level weapons manufacturers told analysts and, and shareholders, don't worry, it looks like we're pivoting to China. There, sh there should be some action with Taiwan. You know, don't sell our stock. 37% of the world's arm exports come from America. In other words, when it comes to countries selling weapons to other countries, America makes up 37% of all those sales. You know who is the second largest arm dealer in the world right behind America? Russia. See, the Cold War made them good at making weapons. You know, like Turkey, that's a NATO nation, but they're, they've bought weapons from Russia. Syria buys weapons from Russia. Poland wanted to donate Soviet MiGs to Ukraine, but the Biden administration stopped it. Gee, I wonder why. Why would the Biden administration, why would Joe Biden, who spent Thanksgiving dinner inside the $40 million home of David Rubenstein, the largest war profiteer in the world, why would Joe Biden not want Poland to give Ukraine Soviet MiGs? Hmm. Russia and America are in the business of making war. So what is Ukraine about? Not sure. I wouldn't presume to know what it's really about. But I do know 
It is a trade show. What's going on right now is a trade show. It's American and Russian weapons manufacturers demonstrating their wares for potential buyers all over the world at the expense of Ukrainian and Russian soldiers and, of course, civilians. You can't believe it. I can't believe it. It's hard to wrap your head around people who think this way. It's hard to believe, but there are people in this world who are okay with death, other people's death, not necessarily their own, but they're okay with death. You know, we watch football here in America and we're okay with football, even though we know it causes permanent brain damage, even though it causes permanent brain damage that shortens the lives of the players, that causes a type of dementia that turns them violent, forcing them to go to prison. We watch football. We know what the end game is for these players, early death or prison. We know what the end game is for their families, but we watch it anyway because we love it. We just don't want our own kids playing football. We watch war the same way. We know it brings death, destruction, but we love it. Just not enough to bring back the draft. Like football, you know, it's not for my kid. It's for the kid, like, you know, the kids get drafted into the NFL and, but not, you know, don't draft anybody into the military. they get to be heroes. They get to be heroes. That's what somebody said to me. They're, I said, how can you live with yourself not sending your kid to Iraq, but you're for the war? Well, the guys who go, the girls and guys who go over there, they get to be heroes. We have no problem watching other Americans do the dying so long as that other American isn't ours. 1%, 1%, that's all, 1% of the American people serve in our military, bring back the draft. We just lost in Afghanistan and already we have people beating the war drum, calling for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. We love war. And look how quickly the GOP turned against Putin. They loved him. He's the standard bearer of white nationalism. They love him but not as much as they love war. Republicans love war. Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, wanted Trump to declare war on America. Two summers ago, he was writing in the New York Times that Donald Trump should send the military into the streets of America, invade American cities and root out Black Lives Matter. We love war. We love war because Somehow, it makes us proud to be an American. I'm not sure why, especially since all we do is lose these wars. We lost in Afghanistan. We lost in Iraq. I love America. I love America. I do. But we are run by psychopaths. I love America, but life got too easy here. And when we weren't looking, the psychopaths took over. 
This country is run by psychopaths. Most psychiatrists say 1% of our population is comprised of psychopaths. Many of these psychopaths don't end up going on the kind of killing sprees that we arrest people for. They go on different types of killing sprees uh, that are not only accept acceptable, but celebrated. Uh, most psychopaths in America learn to shave, put on a suit, brush their teeth, wear cologne, and hold down a job, even raise a family. They learn to disguise their psychopathy while at the same time using their psychopathy as an advantage over others by grabbing jobs and succeeding at jobs because of their psychopathy as corporate lawyers who defend Exxon. They become health insurance lobbyists or health insurance executives, or they become television network executives who enjoy canceling shows and firing people or they lobby for the National Rifle Association or Lockheed Martin. These are psychopaths. The smart ones, 1% of our country, psychopaths, the smart ones learn how to limit their exposure. They channel their psychopathy into their work where they are richly rewarded. I live in Manhattan. I'm surrounded by hedge fund managers, venture capitalists, corporate lawyers, insurance executives, and they are all respectable members of society who kiss their wives and their children goodbye each morning and they head off to the office and they are serial killers. They kill people in the name of profit and then make it home in enough time to coach their daughter's softball team. Hannah Arendt, called it the banality of evil. Corporate America has made it so easy to be a serial killer that you don't even know you're a serial killer, but you are. If you are a corporate attorney defending the oil companies or the gun manufacturers or the health insurance companies, you are a serial killer and you're also a respected member of our society, the CEO of McDonald's, respectable member of the community. Even though McDonald's is responsible for diabetes, heart disease, cancer, it's destroying the planet by overusing water and clearing the Amazon rainforest to make room for cattle and to make room to grow soybeans to feed the cattle. They pay starvation wages. They're anti-union. McDonald's kills people. There is nothing good about McDonald's. It is a cancer. But corporate America has made it so easy for people who work at McDonald's to seem respectable. Unless, of course, you're working, serving and making the burgers, then you're treated like shit then you're treated like shit. Les Moonves, the rapist who ran CBS, psychopath. Harvey Weinstein, psychopath. Jeffrey Epstein, psychopath. A psychopath shows no empathy. They are callous. They're incapable of guilt. They have no impulse control, no remorse, no consideration for the pain of others. They murder, cheat, rob, 
plot the destruction of others and then secretly enjoy the destruction of others. They rape little boys and girls. 1% of our country, psychopaths, and they've taken over. Bill Clinton, psychopath, throws millions of Americans off welfare so he could get a second term. Psychopath, no remorse. He was the victim. He was the victim in all this. Psychopath, Donald Trump, psychopath. Some of these psychopaths end up in prison or working in the prison, guarding the prisoners. And nobody knows, they're not sure yet whether a psychopath can ever be cured. A psychopath is often charming, but they can't help themselves when it comes to lying. They must lie and they think they're special and they delight in manipulating other people into doing things for them. They don't care how it affects the people they're manipulating. And they have, this is the really important thing to keep in mind, they have no real emotions. They are capable of exhibiting studied emotions. That's why so many psychopaths in America turn to patriotism. Patriotism is the objectification of an emotion. Most psychopaths are incapable of feeling emotion. So they fake it by crying when they see the American flag. They get emotional about their country because it's an object, it's not a person. They're incapable of feeling anything for another human being. So they get emotional about an idea like the flag or the country or a national anthem that you shouldn't kneel during. The Republican Party is a party of psychopaths. They love the flag, just not the people it represents because psychopaths are incapable of loving another human being. They are okay with Americans living on the street. They are okay with black men getting shot in the back by the police. But take a knee during the national anthem to protest the police shooting black men, unarmed black men in the back, then you're a beast. If you take a knee to protest unarmed black men getting shot by police, the Republican psychopath considers you an unpatriotic beast and they have no remorse. They have no remorse. They don't see the hypocrisy. They value ideas over people. They value supply side economics, which has been proven to be a lie. They value that over women and children ending up on the streets because of supply side economics. This is psychopathy. And it is the psychopaths who get us into war. It is the psychopaths who get us into, into war. It is these psychopaths who pick jobs that give them plausible deniability to hide their psychopathy. And they wanna claim it's the job that made them this way. 
instead of their innate psychopathy. It's not the job. They are psychopaths who picked jobs that would hide their illness. Cops do not become psychopaths. They are psychopaths who decided I should become a cop. War profiteer David Rubenstein from the Carlisle Group didn't become a psychopath from all the money he made as an arms dealer. He became an arms dealer because he's a psychopath. They start off as psychopaths and psycho psycho psychopathy, psychopathy serves as their potential job aptitude on the test. It says, you know, you're a psychopath. You should go be a corporate lawyer. You should go work for the Carlisle Group. One percent of the population psychopaths. Now, my guess is as many as uh, if, if one percent of this country is a, is a psychopath, uh, if you look at the richest one percent, uh, there are a lot of psychopaths there. And they're the ones who earned the billions that got their kids and their wives and their descendants into the richest one percent. They are the psychopaths, the wives, the children, their descendants who inherit all that dirty money. Uh, they also compromise the richest one percent, but they're not the psychopaths, just the men, the men who generated that original fortune, they are psychopaths. There is no way you can make, I'm not talking about inheriting money, I'm talking about making a billion dollars. There is no way you can earn a billion dollars without being a psychopath. And only a psychopath and a sociopath would be against a wealth tax. Only a psychopath could look at what their billions does to their idiot kids, how it cripples them and not call for a wealth tax. These are psychopaths. It's why Bill Gates felt so at home hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein. Read about the divorce. Read about what Melinda says about Bill Gates and why she divorced Bill Gates, because he was hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein. He was too comfortable hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein. Read about the divorce. Read about Bill Gates being a sexual predator at Microsoft. You cannot, you cannot have a billion dollars, earn a billion dollars without being a psychopath. Melinda, the wife, divorced Bill Gates. Why? Because she's not a psychopath. Um, Warren Buffett, psychopath, made his fortune off insurance companies. That would make him a psychopath. If your billions come from, just because he lives in Omaha and eats at McDonald's and doesn't spend his money and drives a Chrysler, he's a psychopath. Berkshire, that's Warren Buffett's company, they own shares in several healthcare companies, as well as the big pharmaceuticals like Merck, Johnson & Johnson, Bristol-Myers Squibb, as well as dialysis giant Davida. 
You think Warren Buffett wants Medicare for all? You think Warren Buffett wants Medicare negotiating drug prices? Our beloved Warren Buffett is okay with people dying for profit. That's how he makes his money off insurance, big pharma. He's a psychopath. There's no way you can earn a billion dollars without destroying lives and being okay with it. That makes you a psychopath. Now, our founding fathers had no idea what a psychopath was, probably because they all were psychopaths. They were slave, most of them were slaveholders. That would make them psychopaths. But they did know that power corrupts and that the truly corrupt want as much power as they can get their hands on. And that's why, and they, their, their, their faults outweigh their good. But they wrote a constitution that's pretty good. Not great, but it's pretty good. They wrote a constitution that chops men off at the knees. The constitution chops ambitious men off at the knees. The knees. And, and George Washington, this wasn't in the constitution, but he knew to leave after two terms. Our founding fathers knew that nobody should have power forever. They got rid of primogeniture. They wanted to get, they didn't want an aristocracy. There is something innately pathological about somebody who can't let go of their power or their money. This idea that I will have immortality if I can leave all my wealth and my slaves to my idiot children. There is something innately pathological about someone like Putin or Biden who get to their 70s. Putin's going to be 70, I think this year or next year. Biden is pushing 80. There's something sick about somebody who can't find anything better to do than holding on to power. It's sick. They're both psychopaths. Trump was sick. Biden is sick. I don't mean to beat up on Biden. I promised I wouldn't beat up on Joe Biden in 2022 because he is sick in the head. He is sick in the head, but he's better than Trump. The Democrats are better than the Republicans. But you look at the way Hunter Biden turned out you know, that lap that laptop story is turning out to be one of the most censored stories of the past three years. You know, uh, the entire intelligence community, the mainstream media decided that Trump was such an existential threat to America, they would ignore Hunter Biden's laptop. That's not a conspiracy. That's true. Rudy, in all his craziness, was right about Hunter Biden's laptop. There is stuff on that laptop that had it been Don Jr.'s laptop, we'd be all over it. That's true. There's some stuff coming out. Uh, I don't want to bring up the stolen diary. There's a stolen diary that should not have, you should not have gotten, they should not have gotten their hands on it. 
and the accusation in the diary about this person, uh, I believe, but it was stolen. Had it been Ivanka's diary, we would have been all over it. Some people, some presidents get a pass. Get a pass. Uh, Biden is a psychopath. Trump is a psychopath. A normal person, a healthy person at that stage in their lives would want to be around their grandchildren, especially if there's some family problems. A normal, healthy person at that point in your life, pushing 80, you teach, you write, you join Jimmy Carter and build homes, or you work with Bernie Sanders to bring Medicare for all to America. Only a psychopath would run for president telling corporations that nothing fundamentally will change. That's what you're going to do with the limited time you have left on this planet. Make sure that nothing fundamentally changes in America. Only a psychopath would want to spend his late 70s, early 80s serving as the leader of the free world doing nothing for the least among us. I mean, it's not like Joe Biden is some genius and we needed him. Uh, you know, Obama. I think Obama was a genius. I think Obama is a genius. I, I, I often wondered why he would want to be president with two small daughters. And I don't think Obama's a psychopath. I think he's a genius. I think... He is hardwired better than most of us. I remember thinking it was strange that he had two small daughters. He couldn't wait. And, you know, he was, it's, it's a four. I don't approve of a guy with two small daughters wanting to be president. I, th I think it's not healthy. But I think he was a special kind of genius. And as big a disappointment as Obama was, and he was a disappointment, not just to his family, but to America, and he continues to be a major disappointment, he is in a league all to himself. I get why he thought he needed to be president. He's not a psychopath. Obama is better than everybody. But Biden? Joe Biden? He's a mediocrity at best. We don't need him. It's not healthy to be his age, to be this mediocrity. He's been a mediocrity his entire life, accomplishing nothing other than representing a state that is pretty much a tax haven for credit card companies. And he, and he wants to be president. Why? Why does he think he deserves to be president? He's a psychopath and he can't stop lying. He cannot stop lying. Uh, he still insists that he was arrested during the civil rights movement. He fits many of the uh, character traits of a psychopath. Uh, look, in defense of Joe Biden, something tells me, and I hope I'm correct, I hope I'm correct that history will record Ukraine as Joe Biden's finest moment. And I'm being serious here. It's, it's a disaster. I'm hoping history plays out where he comes out the hero in all this. 
He seems to be leading from behind. Uh, Macron, Erdogan, the leaders of Israel, Turkey, everyone is talking to Putin, but not Biden. Uh, I wish there had been diplomacy, as you know, before the invasion. I understand what he's doing now, I think. I think he's leading from behind and strengthening the the NATO coalition, which was uh, threadbare by the time Trump left office. You know, we weren't sure NATO was still going to exist. Maybe it shouldn't exist. I don't know. Uh, so in terms of how historians will look back at this moment, I'm hoping that Biden will be celebrated for recognizing America's strength and leading from behind. I'm hoping that in the next couple of days, Putin comes to his senses, that the economic sanctions work. He pulls out. Ukraine maintains its sovereignty. And, the, and Biden gets to take credit for it and that the historians will uh, say he was the right man at the time. I'm hoping in the grand sweep of history, Joe Biden will have shown just how weak Putin's military is, how weak Putin is. Uh, I'm rooting for Biden. But even if he succeeds, we will still have millions of refugees, tens of thousands of dead Ukrainians, Russian soldiers, Seems to me there was a much better way to do this. Seems to me an intelligent American leader who isn't a psychopath, and I do believe Joe Biden is a psychopath, only a psychopath at his age would think he's entitled to be president. Uh, seems to me American leaders should have had empathy for Putin 10 years before Seems to me we should not have courted Ukraine. Seems to me, and I'm always wrong, seems to me encouraging Ukraine to look west was a bad idea for Ukraine because we can't keep the promises that Hillary, McCain, Obama made to the people of Ukraine. We can't, we can't keep that promise. We can't defend them from Russia because they're right on Russia's border and we don't want World War III. We didn't want World War III 10 years ago when we were promising Ukraine that they could join NATO and the EU. We knew 10 years ago that Putin didn't want this and we knew we didn't want World War III and we didn't respect, we didn't respect Putin's nuclear weapons because we won the Cold War and we were entitled to whatever we wanted. Even if Russia had nuclear weapons, we were entitled to loot Russia, to help the oligarchs loot Russia. Russia, whether you like it or not, has nuclear weapons. 10 years ago, we should have backed off Ukraine. It's not fair, but they have nuclear weapons. Same way North Korea 
as nuclear weapons. It's not fair. Their people are starving. There's nothing we can do about it. They have nuclear weapons. Same thing with Russia. They have nuclear weapons. We didn't want nuclear war 10 years ago. We don't want it now. We should not have been courting Ukraine. We were never, ever going to put them in NATO because that, you, Putin told us, that's war. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. But an American leader who isn't a, a psychopath would say right now, maybe Ukraine is not going to join NATO. Maybe we should tamp down the hostilities, the brinksmanship. And with time, Putin will die. And then maybe Ukraine can join the West. But we don't think long term. We're run by psychopaths. This country is run by psychopaths and they're incapable of long term goals. They are impulsive. Psychopaths are impulsive. They never think about the future. That's why they go to war. Because war, they think, solves it right now. We are run by psychopaths. Without, They have no impulse control. They can't plan for the future. Wall Street, the corporate leaders are incapable of thinking beyond the next quarter. And it's why they hate the American government so much. It's why corporate America hates our government, because the government must plan ahead. The government must think years into the future. And psychopaths hate that. Hate that. So... They say war is a constant in nature. We will never get rid of war, they say. I say we will never get rid of psychopaths. Can't be cured. Psychopaths are a constant in nature, just like war, just like violence. You can't have one without the other. No psychopaths, no war. I love America. I'm rooting for Biden. I am rooting for this country. 99% of us are good people. 1% of us are psychopaths. And they are now running America. Chairs in this Bessemer shop. Back in our day, don't ever seem to stop. A man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are common, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. I know the bookstores are all gone away. Got me some books, I'll read them someday. 
Right now I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts. If I can make it to Christmas Eve, the kids will have nice gifts. And the big boss will have more money so he can go up into space. But there still won't be no chairs in this Bessemer place. Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins and said, vote no. But maybe this year Union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemer floor. I'm hoping the Union might make things right. Some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. Listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and don't forget to go to my website, sign up for our newsletter, where I will send you uh, highlights from our show. Subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts, and we have a YouTube channel, and we're cutting up parts of the show in lovely digestible morsels for you. So subscribe to uh, the YouTube channel. Well, I do see Pascal Robert and I see Jason Miles here from This Is Revolution. Should we start early? I have an idea. Let me let me do this. Uh, let's hear from uh, President Donald Trump. And when we come back, we will talk with our friends Jason Miles and Pascal Robert from This Is Revolution. The American okay. people love me. The election 
was completely stolen from me. That So that makes me the 45th and the 46th president, David. Biden okay. is 46A. Hmm. 46A. You know what the A stands for, David? No, I do not. Ask me what the A stands for. Ask me. Okay. What, what does the A stand for, Mr. President? The A stands for a stolen election, David. <laughs> Please welcome. A stolen election. That's what 46A stands for, a, a stolen a. election. Please welcome former president. And current, and current president, except for Ukraine, that's not me. Afghanistan, that's not me. Inflation, that's not me. That's 46A. 46A. He did all okay. that. That's otherwise Please. me. There we go. Welcome back. That was uh, my interview with former President Donald Trump. Some say that's Robert Smigel. I, uh, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. Well, <laughs> let us now go to Mexico and Miami. Jason Miles and Pascal Robert are co-hosts of This Is Revolution. Isn't that gonna... awesome? Mexico and Miami, like just two wonderful vacation spots. Uh, I would Greetings. go there. Hello, my friends. Greetings. Thank you for having you, us. Uh, Mr. Feldman, how are you? I want to talk to you about uh, a guest on your show, Corey Robin. Who is Corey Robin? He had a piece in Politico entitled, Republicans are moving rapidly to cement minority rule. Blame the Constitution. Earlier, I was saying that uh, our founding fathers gave us this great tool to cut off uh, powerful men at the knees. What What's the problem with the Constitution? I think Corey Robin would probably disagree with you. And I, I think uh, he has some pretty arguments, great arguments as to why. <laughs> pretty much, first of all, welcome to the, thank you for having us on. I and, love uh, having you on the show. Everybody loves having you here. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, shout out to your church here viewers as well. Corey Robin's position is that basically that the United States Constitution was not set up to be a democratic document. First of all, for those who are sticklers for actual political theory and politics, the United States is not a democracy. It is a constitutional republic. And what is the difference between a constitutional republic and a democracy? In a constitutional republic, when you elect a representative, he is representing what he believes is best for your interests, but the choices are vested in him. If we had a democracy, the individuals that you vote for who represent you would have to follow the exact prescription of what those who vote for them actually want. So we actually do not have a democratic system. We have a, a, a constitutional republic. And even in that context, there are many elements and aspects of the Constitution that are fundamentally anti-democratic. For example, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is a body of lifetime appointees who, you know, by the divine province of just happening to be lawyers, get to, by their own majority decisions, overthrow legislation that were decided by either the states or the federal government. If you look at the overall long history of the Supreme Court, barring the 
absolute exception of the Warren Court in the 50s, the Supreme Court has been a profoundly reactionary, pro-corporate, pro-capitalist, pro-generally right-wing institution that has made incredibly horrific decisions. And it was designed that way because if you look at the original uh, makeup of the United States, because of the Electoral College and because of the way a portion of it was designed in our process congressionally and the senatorial, the South had a disproportionate role in the governing strategy, makeup, and decision-making authority in the United States government. 10 of the 12 of the first presidents of the United States were slaveholders. That's a fact. And that's because slaves were counted. Slaves were counted. Is it four-fifths? Three-fifths. Three-fifths. Slaves were counted as three-fifths of a citizen, which means they didn't get to be citizens, but they got representation. Right. That, so that mm-hmm. they were not citizens. They had no voting power. They had no benefits of citizenship, but their physical presence in Southern states allowed Southern congressional delegations to be augmented or increased in size by their sheer presence in the South. But I want to pivot to Jason because I don't want Excuse to Excuse me for one second, here. Jason. One thing. We're seeing that now with prisons. Where Right. Well, what's interesting what, about prisons is, as you probably know, uh, David, is that prisons, federal uh, prisons, usually are sent to kind of states in flyover country. And the physical numbers of prisoners in those states are used in representational allotment in those various congressional districts. That's why you're seeing an interesting uh, movement to allow prisoners the right to vote. Um, You saw it pass in Florida, but uh, it didn't get upheld by the state legislature, right, Pascal? I believe that's the case. They they allowed them to vote after after being freed, but some people are are considering giving them the right while housed as well. Right. Now, Corey Robin uh, is a professor. He's a political scientist professor at uh, Brooklyn College. And he's written a book about Clarence Thomas, who is is now in in the hospital taking fluids. Is he taking fluids now? I think he was taking fluids. He's very ill. Is it, all I keep saying is he has a flu. Does anyone know what he really has or what it is? Uh, he's married to Ginny. That's what he's got. <laughs> yeah. um, it could be. It could be COVID. They could be trying to keep a bit of a yeah, that's true. lid on it because, as of right now, the Biden administration is trying to push through uh, a new Supreme Court justice nominee that uh, we've talked about on the show actually quite extensively. Who, <clears throat> if you want to make a quick pivot to. Uh, to the Supreme Court, but I, I will yep. add another thing that is very anti-democratic is the Electoral College. Uh, I am from California. That is still where my mailing address is, but a state, uh, a vote in the state of Wyoming, which has vastly less people in California, um, is is worth more than a than a vote in California. Let me let me ask you a question. In defense of the Electoral College, my audience gets so mad at me. When I say this, mm-hmm. they get so pissed off at me. Mm-hmm. There are rules that were laid down that, yes, were written by 
a slaveholder. I mean, Madison wrote the Constitution. He was a slaveholder. There's no question that uh, they put in these checks to prevent majoritarian rule. No Neither question. did non-property owning white men couldn't vote. So we have to until add, the 1850s, have, David. You yeah, have to add that caveat right. in there as well. I think it it. it always let's let's try to not break things down to a simply racialized lens because that's also another thing that gets people very emotional so let's let's look at it from the lens of like capital um making these decisions right capital controlling individuals so we control capital we want to have ruling say so and this is uh the the law of the land which is going to be slightly better than it was for us when there was a monarchy that you had to be born into right but the democrats I say, lose not because of the structural disadvantages. I maintain they lose because they're not really Democrats, that they they offer nothing. They don't offer enough of a difference to get people to want to vote in traditional what have become traditionally uh, Republican states. Yeah, but the thing is, though, one thing that I think you have to put in proper context there, uh, David, is that the Democratic Party was the party of the reactionary faction of America pretty much only for outside of maybe 40 years of its history, which is from the rise of the New Deal up until the 70s, you know, maybe 30 some odd years. Before that, the Democratic Party was the party of quote unquote white supremacy or the reactionary South. So I would make the argument that the notion that the Dem, I mean, Part of the problem here, and I mean, Jason and I have talked about this before, is that there is a, we have a misunderstanding of American political history. The reason we have a misunderstanding of, about Amer of American political history is that Americans believe that the normative function of American capitalism is what America looked like in the 50s after mm -hmm. World War II. Right. What Americans don't realize is that New Deal Keynesianism was the exception, not the norm. Well, let me let me let me throw this on top of what Pascal is saying, maybe to make it even easier to digest using the lens of pop culture, something we just talked about and I've been rereading again. If you look at a movie like Back to the Future, there is an idealized vision that Pascal is talking about of going back to the, the 50s, which you know starts with Reagan in 81 with his campaign. He's going to make America great again. And ultimately what he's talking about is this time where even his family uh, came up through the New Deal. Um, but he doesn't want to he wants to dismantle the, the New Deal and then what later became the, the uh, Great Society programs. And when you look at a movie like Back to the Future, when Michael J. Fox's character goes back to the past, it starts off his neighborhood is like, it's actually a pretty dilapidated, old looking neighborhood with uh, old buildings. There's like a pawn shop in the middle of the town square. And, you know, and the clock tower still hasn't been fixed for 30 years. And when he goes back to the 50s. Um, he starts to realize that it's a time of racial oppression, which he has no idea about. Um, sexual repression. You know, his mother talked about how good of a person she was, but she's like a boy crazy young woman, which is something we probably wouldn't, you know, care about nowadays. But it was something that she definitely had to repress because of the times. And even when he parks his car, if you remember when the car goes to the past, the neighborhood he's supposed to go to Hill Valley, the houses of the future. It's not. 
And when we have this idealized vision of this time period, we don't really understand it fully. Like who really got all those benefits? You know, we talk about it all the time about, you know, who was even able to get social security benefits um, during this time. And it's not every American. Right. Well, the thing is, I mean, Jason very eloquently stated some pretty blunt realities as well. But to me, what's more interesting about the fact that the reactionaries, and what does it really mean to be, be a reactionary? The actual true official definition of a reactionary is someone who looks to the time in the past as what should be the proper normative function of a society today. So someone who's a reactionary is basically saying things were better back then and everything that's happened nowadays messed everything up, messed everything up. What is really amazing about the reactionary right today and many of its spokesmen, whether they be Jordan Peterson's or whether they be even Trump's or even going to Reagan's, that what they call when America was great was the period of time that we had the highest tax, marginal tax rate in American history. We had the greatest government control over private sector enterprise. We had the largest state welfare state in American history. And we had completely state planning. Literally, the New Deal economy of America was equivalent to like Chinese state planning. Right. And, and, it's Reagan, and, it's and Reagan, the rest I, of the I world had been destroyed. Been. The rest of the world was destroyed by World War II. And the rest of the world under the Marshall Plan, which we were financing the development of Europe after World War II, but because of the Bretton Woods Agreement that comes out of 1944, America pretty much is the sole economic monopoly, you know, production power in the world. So we're able to finance and buttress all of this development and, you know, the ability of people to literally have a factory job and live an upper middle class life, if you're a white male, um, comes out of state planning. It's literally the period of time where the American government functioned closer to socialism than any other time in American history. But those are the good old days. And But that's what Reagan pushes back against when he starts to, to truly make uh, bigger runs uh, for, for office in the 60s after being a spokesperson for, for G and an actor and, and part of the... Uh, the McCarthy uh, campaign to get all the leftists and communists out of Hollywood. Um, Reagan is a very interesting figure because he's also kind of the rise of a personality. Like as much as we talk about Trump being the first person to literally walk off of the set and into office, which seems kind of fascinating when you think about it. Uh, and, and it's still embarrassing for us as a nation. And I think that's why we have such uh, emotional reactions to Donald Trump. Um, because if you look at the way he governed, ultimately he governed like a, a standard Republican. Right. But the fact that he walked off set, at least Reagan gave us some years effing up California um, as, as a governor and did have some experience, whether you respect it or not, he did have experience in office and didn't just walk off set. But one thing he did have, despite the fact his movies weren't always big sellers, was he had that job for GE, kind of being in your home every day, even if it's just advertising products. And him and his family became something that the American people could accept. And in my opinion, that is the rise of the personality. And we start looking more at personalities 
definitely less policy because a personality can talk to you differently. They don't really have to talk policy so much. They talk in ideas. So what Pascal is talking about, I find very, very fascinating because he's saying that this time frame that they go back to constantly is a time when <laughs> where we have more government control, but all they talk about is big government is the problem. Right. That's, that's the main focus of everything he says from the sixties to when he leaves office is even the Clinton administration comes in and says big government is the problem. I have a, I have a friend of mine. Um, he's, I wouldn't call him left, but he's a friend of mine. He's kind of uh he's, he's a little radical. He's a bit, militant in the traditional kind of racially militant kind of sense. But he has a very interesting uh, position on all this. He said the Republicans, Reagan and those guys, only cared about cutting the state when black people started to benefit from it. (laughs) Right. So that's the only time. He said, all this, well, if you really think about our theme, the theme we have on our show, one of the themes is the, the 50 plus year counter revolution. And the premise of the theme is that pretty much all of American politics after 1968 is a counter revolutionary counter reaction to the New Deal civil rights coalition of the of the 60s, which David, you forgot more about than both of us because you were, you know, you were pretty much a young adult probably in that time compared to both of us. But whether we want to, I mean, of course, we, capitalism is the ultimate culprit here, right? But there is a way in which capitalism utilizes race to facilitate privatization that starts with the rise of Nixon and perpetuates up until Clinton going into Obama. Right. And that discourse is like, these black folk out here are eating up your taxes with these programs. Even though white people per capita are more likely to be welfare recipients than <laughs> people of color. That's, That's correct. But we never talk about the flyover parts of the country. We always talk about major metropolitan areas and right. we don't even talk about the way in which most black people arrive in major metropolitan areas. So you have like a small handful of cities where black people live. I spent too much time driving around and playing shows all over the the North American continent. And we used to play a game when we would leave California called Count Your Race. And I lost every time. Let's go back to Clarence Thomas because uh, we have a new justice. Their, their hearing started today for a new Uh, African-American, female Mm African-American. Clarence Thomas was the second African-American to serve on the court. I believe he replaced Thurgood Marshall. That was a a black seat that they conveniently gave to a, a conservative who never saw, uh, a civil rights bill that he was in favor of. Is there anything, I have read some positive reviews of Clarence Thomas's decisions that he comes by his decision-making honestly, that they always talk about how quiet he is, 
that he's not that bright, but he really is bright and he comes by his conservative bona fides. Honestly, he came out of Yale Law School. I believe he says he was the recipient of affirmative action and felt demeaned, looked down upon, and uh, looks back at it as a very negative experience for him. I, 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 I'd like to really, I'd like to jump in here if you would indulge of me, course. please. You're a lawyer, so you know more about this. Well, than I, I wrote a, a little bit more than that. When I started writing online, I started with my own blog, and the blog was called Fought Merchant. It's still up, it's on a WordPress blog. One of the first pieces that I wrote, and I should actually find this piece, was a piece I wrote called What Ails Clarence Thomas? The piece was basically an analysis of what motivates Clarence Thomas. And the piece was based on reading some of the readings I'd done on his biography and me having gone to law school in Boston and known people who were contemporaries of Clarence Thomas when he was in law school at Yale because the, the New England black collegian scene was so small then that black students who went to the elite universities in New England used to come to party in Boston all the time. There are, basic, there are certain basic things that you need to know about Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas's whole worldview is shaped as a product of being rejected his whole life. His mother rejected him and left him with his grandfather to raise as a child. Okay. When he, he was he was rejected very early on by people and society because he grew up in a poor part. He's a Southern Geechee. Geechee culture is a part of Southern African American culture. Is this Georgia? Is, Georgia, yes. The Gullah Geechee culture has a very kind of organic connection to to, to African history. It's a very independent kind of Southern cult, country culture. I find it actually quite impressive and incredible, but in, in traditional upper middle class black American life, to be called a Geechee is a profound pejorative. It's a profound, profound pejorative. Clarence Thomas, very smart guy, goes to a Holy Cross underground an undergrad starts dealing with blacks in Boston. Clarence Thomas's resentment towards affirmative action and civil rights is a direct consequence of upper middle class, fifth and sixth generation black elites, black Afro-Saxon Brahmins in New England, treating him worse than some white liberals did when he was in, in college, in the South. That, his whole attitude towards affirmative action, towards civil rights, he was rejected from getting corporate corporate firm jobs. Was he, he at one did, time, was he ever to the left? He actually was a black, he was a revolutionary black nationalist at one time. He was a huge fan of Malcolm X. See, this is the thing. There are aspects of black political thought that in the minds of most of white Americans, because they don't peer deeply into it, they actually believe are radical. Like, for example, when you tell someone, like, I'm a black nationalist, oh, that's a radical guy. If you read the actual ideological origins of black nationalism as a concept, it's conservative as hell. 
There's a really good book. I talk about this book all the time. It's called The Golden Age of Black Nationalism. It's written by a man named Wilson Jeremiah Moses. It's probably one of the most seminal, important books to understand the ideological origins of black nationalism. And what does black nationalism mean? Black nationalism is a political ideology that develops in the 1850s that posits the notions that black people are a collective nation unto themselves with their own, not only culture, but their own political destiny, their own ideological tendencies that should be focused on collectively working as a unitary body. There is a component of it to the point where some believe that they should have their own separate land. Black nationalists tend to be not in favor of integration. They believe in separate black autonomy and black development of institutions controlled, dominated by black people and not dependent on any aspect of quote unquote white society. And he was a black man. So what changed him? Yale Law School? What? I don't see. This is what Corey Robin posits. Corey Robin, remember I told you that black nationalism is actually a, a right wing. Not right. It's not right wing. It's a reactionary ideology in many ways. Corey Robin's position is that Clarence Thomas not only was a black nationalist, but he still is a black nationalist in many ways, because there are many aspects of black nationalism that are very pro-capitalist, particularly black capitalism. Pro-segregation. Yeah. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Don't depend on the government. Don't depend on the white man. Get off that government assistance. Do on your own. You don't need that affirmative action. You know, pick up your pants. You know, why you dry your pants sagging? Clean up your clothes. Get your stuff together, black man. Why are you depending on the white man? A lot of white conservatives love that element of black nationalism. So a lot of people uh, on this show were surprised by South Carolina, Clyburn, Biden, and the 2020 primary. We were, we were, we, we assumed Bernie was going to get the black vote in oh. West Virginia. Uh, South Carolina in 2020. I mean, there's been pushback from the quote unquote black vote since the 2016 election. Where was it 2015 when the Black Lives Matter founders ran up on him and asked him what his black agenda was when he had a rally. And that was kind of been the knock on the Sanders campaign from jump. I mean, even painting the whole Bernie bro character as an overprivileged uh, white dude that doesn't really give a damn. But that's unfair. I'm agreeing with you. I'm just saying that I this mean, is Bernie was arrested in Chicago fighting for uh, fair housing for African-Americans. Biden won't stop lying about being arrested. Well, Bernie was this. Bernie Sanders was targeted by elements of the American media establishment who utilized black voices and weaponized certain foundation hatched elements within black social and political constellations to be perceived as soft on racism and soft on racial issues because the worst and the scariest thing to the American ruling class is to have black people in large numbers embrace a socialist agenda with white people. You know, it's really frightening when you think about the fact, you know, Pascal and I do a lot of 
work about even going back into the the history of the civil rights movements, you know, beyond just 63. And when you think about the, the names in this movement, like A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin, you know, these are socialists that understand you need a multiracial working class, class-based coalition. If you really want to get these, these programs passed, these initiatives passed. And when the, the movement changes to inclusion, that is where the American conscience as a whole, I'm not talking about the fringes of people that watch shows like this. I mean, the American conscience as a whole sees the civil rights movement and sees these hero uh, characters like King and, and to some extent, even X. It's all about inclusion and not even so much economic inclusion. And, uh, you know, one part that gets omitted constantly when we think about the March on Washington speech is the fact that Martin Luther King is, is saying before he gets to that last stanza that we all remember is let this not be a moment of a collective release of frustration and we go back to business as usual. Right. Like we're going to keep at this until these economic demands are met. That is the march for, for jobs and freedom, not the march to sit at the lunch counter. Right. And because that is our ideal of that moment, you know, it really does mess us up when we, when we think about, you know, certain figures in the past. It messes us up in in so many ways. I mean, one of the biggest problems with my generation, I was born in 1968 on what you would call generation X is that we are raised with, an overindulgence in civil rights nostalgia. Eyes on the prize, you know, all of this, all of this stuff, every Black History Month, all of this stuff. And Jason and I, Jason, Jason and I have been working over a year and a half together, and he knows this. I'm not a big fan of the 60s. <laughs> I'm not. I'm a big fan of the left from the 30s and 40s, you know? The 30s and 40s, when you had the black communists and the white so- black communists and the white communists and the black socialists and the white socialists, scare the ruling class so much that they force FDR to implement the New Deal. The 60s, the left was commodified. In exactly. The 60s. Individualism ruled. And by the way, by the way, it wasn't no college student left in the 30s and 40s. They were working class people right. who were challenging capital and empire. But let me get back. Uh, we have five minutes left to black conservatism. There mm-hmm. is this. I, I, we always find black conservatives to be oddities. People like McWhorter, uh, Clarence Thomas. Is it Soul S O W E L Thomas Soul? I'll be brief about this. We did a we did we have a new segment on our show on Saturday, and it, it, part of it is very tongue in cheek of me messing with Pascal. And I will say as quickly as possible, uh, I love Pascal like family, and much like family, I do have to poke him and tease him from time to time. That's just the way I am. Anyway, part of the this the little feature that we have. Um, I played Pascal a clip from a movie that he actually enjoys, a movie called Jungle Fever. Um, and in the scene, we, we, you know, Samuel Jackson is a drug addict that's uh, kind of cooning. And I was telling Pascal that the definition of coon has officially changed. A coon was someone that reinforced white stereotypes. 
And now a coon is literally defined as a black person that wants to be white. And that's now how we look at these black conservative figures as quote unquote coons because they somehow want to be white. Well, understand, first of all, there is a long tradition in black American history and politics of conservatism. The ideological progenitor of the black political class or the black leadership model or the black quote unquote race management model, which is the model in which black people who are 42 million people have a class of leaders or a leader who brokers the affairs of everyone like a silent ventriloquist where no one chooses him except the ruling class who right. speaks from anyone else. Right. The man who is the, the progenitor father and the originator of that paradigm is Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington is a man who was chosen by white capitalism to neutralize the populist movement, period. The populist movement was an era of interracial co- co- uh, cooperation to challenge capitalism and Southern urban capitalism and create a third party alternative to the two party system to meet the needs of the sharecropping far- farmers who were black and white in the South. Booker T. Washington was financed by through his Tuskegee machine and big time corporatists corporatists from from Rockefeller to uh, um, all of them backed him in order to basically help create an environment to acquiesce to a political reality that would shut down the populist movement in 1895. He gives his Atlanta communist Atlanta compromise speech, which is anti-socialist, anti-communist, anti-union, anti-immigrant, anti-working class, which basically promises that black people will surrender to capital and not rebel. And the year after 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson is decided that neutralizes black people's ability to vote politically and politically participate as well as poor whites and shuts down the populist movement. Don't forget, this is a man who was financed by the ruling class. If you don't think that 1895 speech was a telegraph to the ruling class, I got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. Okay. So you're not a fan of the 60s. (laughs) Give me the argument for what the 50s and the 60s and the the Warren court accomplished. Things are better. The schools aren't. The schools are as segregated now as they were in the 50s. They're still pretty segregated. The schools are segregated. I mean, there's a very good book. Is there a black, is the black middle, was there a bigger black middle class in the 60s? No, it's bigger now. It is bigger now. It's bigger now. It's richer now. Uh, black people. There's less black people in poverty now. In 1959, 55 percent of black people live below the poverty line. You can imagine what the poverty line was in 1959. In 2020, it is 23 percent of black people live below the poverty line. But there were much less black men in prison during Jim Crow than they are today. That's also a fact. So that, that's a, that's a that's a that's a contributing factor. So yes, there there are, there are more black people who are middle class. There are more black people who are college educated. There are more black people who are making over over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Yet in terms of overall percentage of overall American gross wealth and GDP, black people still own no more than one point seven percent of American wealth, which is no different than they owned at any time during Jim Crow. And the black home ownership rate today is literally exactly what it was in nineteen sixty seven. 
That's because of the financial crisis of 2000. Largely because of the subprime mortgage crisis. Largely. More black wealth was lost during that time than any other time. Any time since the early 20th, early 20th century, 19th century, 35% of black wealth eviscerated with no recourse by Barack Obama. Right. Wow. Well, I can't tell you how grateful we are, Jason and Pascal, that you find time to come on the show. Uh, please come back next Monday. Everybody, the best way to uh, thank our guests is by downloading the This Is Revolution podcast. Please uh, go to thisisrevolution.com. I believe that's the, the website. Thisisrevolutionpodcast.com, yeah. Th thisisrevolutionpodcast.com. And they have a great episode with Corey Robin, who has written a book about Clarence Thomas and black nationalism. And he is a professor of political science at Brooklyn College. So it's a great conversation. Thank you, Pascal Robert and Jason Miles. Anything you'd like to plug? Uh, tomorrow night was 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific time, 9 p.m. Eastern. We'll be talking with Corey, Corey Robin about conservatives and the reactionary right. Why is that? And the Constitution, there is an intro clip up now playing on YouTube. If you go to our YouTube channel, we have a whole playlist of the three to six minute intro video essays that, uh, that I make for the shows on Tuesday. So please check that out. Fantastic. Thank you so much. When we come back, we will be talking to Howie Klein, who's going to introduce us to Spencer Slavic. He is... Uh, the founder of Mycorrhiza Digital. It's an agency that specializes in social media uh, for leftist and progressive political campaigns. And uh, this is important. We could all learn something uh, by meeting him. But first, let's play a clip from my interview with the president, former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. And this Ukraine thing, terrible, David. Sleepy Joe doesn't know how to handle Putin. Putin would never do this with me. You know why, David? Why? Why, sir? Love. Love. <laughs> we love each other, David. I love the dictators, and the dictators love me. Yeah, they but is that, is that something to be proud of? You know, David... Dictators is a combination of two terrific words. Dick, which is a word to call terrible, terrible people, like Sleepy Joe. And taters, which is a food you eat three times a day. It's a delicious food. Dictators makes you angry and hungry. It's all at once. My favorite two emotions in the world, David. Anger, hunger. Because they're the only two emotions I've got. Thumbs it up all there, David. Oh, such introspection. I love them. I love them, dictators. You can't, you can't love just one. So they say about so it's pronounced dictators. Dictators. And you can't love okay. just one. 
Okay, let's talk about dictators. Let's talk about Putin. He's, I may have you to know. run again, David. I may have to run again. I really, I really may have to run again. Too many people want me to, David. I don't want to, David. I don't want the attention. I'm very <laughs> happy. More time with beautiful man. More time with my family. More time with Anya. More time with my family, Ivanka, Eric, Donald Jr. Gathering together every night by the fire, coming up with racial slurs for Letitia James. It's a little family tradition that we had gotten away from. Now, and now we're back, and it fe- I feel like a whole person again. All right, please, you know, can we just talk about the situation? Got, so, David, David, we gather by the fire and we've got slurs, David. We've got slurs like you wouldn't believe. I don't want to hear that. But that's, you're not going to hear it, David, because we keep them in the family. We do. Good. But I may have to run, David. I really may. I think... That was Donald Trump. Some people say it could have been Robert Smigel. It just, I don't believe it. I think that's Donald Trump. Let us now go to Los Angeles, where Howie Klein is standing by. He is the founder and the treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive candidates, left of center candidates. And he also writes, Down with Tyranny. Go to Down with Tyranny. Read him every day over down with tyranny hello howie klein hi i was in such a great mood from hearing uh cory robbins for a second i mean i think he's amazing i read the reactionary mind i thought i thought it was like a incredible book and really important book and then all of a sudden there's that uh (laughs) nonsense The whole, uh, my whole thought process. My sister said the same thing. She was listening to it over the weekend, and she said it's really funny. He sounds just like Donald Trump, but he, it's disturbing. The the vo- it's it's too it's a little too close. Introduce us to Spencer. Is he in? It looks like he's in San Francisco. Is he, I think he's in actually at my parents' house. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're right. They're letting you in now. They let me in. Well, they're, they're on vacation, so I have the house to myself. Oh, okay. And you're the reason I'm at, I asked uh, Spencer if they let him in, uh, I hope I'm not uh, divulging any medical secrets that you want to keep secret now, uh, Spencer. Or, uh, should I, could I say it? It is fine. I, I have COVID. That's, that's why my parents weren't letting me in my house. <laughs> yeah. I, his parents made him. He lives in Los Angeles. He, uh, you know, anyone who goes on an airplane gets COVID immediately. So he went on an airplane, got COVID, and his parents wouldn't let him in the house. So he was been in a hotel for the last few days. So that's why I was surprised when he said he's in the house. But since his parents have fled Portland, I can understand why he's in the house. In any case, so uh, um, Spencer's my new best friend. Uh, We just met like a couple of weeks ago, and he's now running uh, Blue America. Great. Is that enough of an introduction? What do you mean he's running Blue America? Yeah, what do you mean? He's in charge of um, uh, our, our advertising. So paid ads, paid ads is, is what he does. So he's making the paid ads and he's, um, and he's targeting the audiences for us as well. So he showed me an ad that he did when he worked um, in, the, uh, you know, in the non-political sector. 
And he said this ad got like a huge amount of attention. I mean, everybody who saw it clicked on it and they bought it and it was, it was a big deal. And it was basically some goofball using some uh, gym equipment and, and falling off the gym equipment. And everyone loved that so much that they, they were, uh, they clicked on the ad and they wanted to watch the ad, like a huge number. So he, he made a political version of that for one of our candidates, uh, Jason Cole. And it, and, and instead of like the normal thing of getting like $5, uh, when we put up something, which is normally what we get, suddenly people are donating $135 and $300 and giving money that lasts, uh, you know, that, that is recurring every, every month. So it's, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. This is, this is very interesting to me. And I don't know if we'll have time to talk about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and whether or not you can really drill down to a granular level. Do you mind if I ask him, Howie, before you? No, no, go right ahead. I want you to. Okay. I've tried Facebook advertising. And, and as, well, I tried it as well. It was always a failure. It's been a complete failure for Blue America since the beginning of Facebook until we met Spencer. Everything turned around when we met Spencer. Before Spencer, it was just a disaster. It was just all the money we spent was just, we could have flushed it down the toilet. And suddenly we met Spencer and all of our dreams are coming true. Is Facebook, it must be for real. It's turning a profit. You know, it's got billions and billions of dollars coming in. It is an advertising model. That's how they make their money. They suck up all like 40% of the digital advertising. The the idea that Cambridge Analytica or that somebody like you can go down to a granular level and find people who were born on a Tuesday and they're afraid of rats and their favorite show is <laughs> Hazel from the 1960s and Pete Best is their favorite Beatle. This is the person we want to advertise to. And you can of the. Two billion users, you can find those people. Is that true? To an extent. I mean, after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, Facebook has been steadily stripping away exactly what you can target by. So they don't even let you target by liberal or conservative anymore. You can't even pick like someone's political leaning on when you're targeting a Facebook ad. So it's definitely part of it. They know they, they do track your activity to some extent, less and less with the new privacy laws in California and other states. Um, but they know if you're likely to donate to a candidate, for instance. They know if you're likely to click on an ad that has certain keywords in it, maybe progressive or Congress or something like that. So what I've been doing for Howie and what I've been doing for other candidates is uh, really kind of letting the algorithm do its thing. The, the Cambridge Analytica scandal was all about that company being able to very much pinpoint specific people and say, I want to give that to this one person and that just goes to that one person. Um, but what I, I tend to have a broader audience and really the focus for, for Mycorrhiza, that's the name of my, my ad firm, is all about the creative. So it all has to do with like the actual video that is the ad or the static image. And from my experience in e-commerce, in kind of the corporate world, that can make magnitudes of a difference in how well an ad does. It's what exactly the video is, what it starts with, if it gets your attention. Like how he was saying, the guy falling off the exercise machine, that's just an attention grabber. Um, because really, it's not like you have a captive audience like on TV where everyone's going to watch the whole thing. You've got to catch their attention in the first couple seconds. So that's really the key thing I, I see when I'm working with new campaigns or new uh, organizations like Blue America Pack. Um, they just, if they can get the ad to catch people's attention, suddenly you have 
10, 20 times more people getting engaged, watching the video, seeing what it's all about, getting that information. And that's really the idea of what, what I'm trying to do here and bring to, to progressives. So, so one of the things that I think you'll be interested to know, David, is that some large percentage, and Spencer can tell us what that percentage is, of people who watch these ads, watch it with no sound. Right, Spencer? Yeah, it's, it's more than 75% of people on Facebook and Instagram have their sounds off all the time, even if, they have a, if they're watching a video that has sounds, they just don't turn it on. So, so you have to so, provide uh, captions. David, I mean, your ads that you did are probably dependent on sound. The ads that Blue America has been doing for the last um, 10 years have been, uh, you know, songs, basically. And, 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 or if not songs, then people talking. But since no one is watching it with sound on, that was just a big waste of time for us. And now, I mean, you know, Spencer, I told Spencer, just come up with an ad, you know, just come up with something that that would you know use that goofy uh the goofy idea of, of getting getting attention and he did he came up with an incredible looking alligator with trump's head on it and people seem to love it i mean it's, it's like so juvenile and yet we're getting hundreds of dollars because of it where we would in the past got it gotten nothing so that's that's, so that's why i'm trump's head but, but it's, it's also the, the, the narrative of that. It's about a minute long. It talks in the captions, big text talking about corporate PACs and how they influence uh, people in Congress and in the Senate and how there's yeah, some the idea is, them now and all that. Yeah. The idea is a swamp. It's an alligator in a swamp. Right. What's the difference between social media ads and a, a, a TV commercial besides the, the sound has to be off? What is, what is the difference between... Uh, uh, the two. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's a major difference. You have to convey things in graphics, and we're starting to see that come back to TV now. If you watch a TV commercial, they're going to have more text on the screen than they used to 10, 15 years ago, because they're seeing, like, people are watching the TVs maybe muted in a restaurant or something, too, so they know people can get that information that way. Uh, but just, it fundamentally, it comes down to them being totally different mediums. I, I always say, trying to take like a TV commercial or, or an ad you put on YouTube for your campaign and putting it on Facebook is like putting a radio ad on TV. That's not taking advantage of, of what the medium can provide. So, and the main thing is really like people scrolling past. That's the big difference. You don't have to watch, it's not TV or radio where you're, you have someone in their car stuck in traffic and they have to listen to the whole thing and they get to learn everything about the candidate, whether they want to or not. On social media, you have to get people to want to watch the video. You need people to want to, to see the ad. And so that's really getting their attention with something eye-catching, something interesting, really trying to, and there's a lot of testing that goes into this too. You test one thing against another, see which gets people's attention best and you rely on the people. You don't say like, oh, I think this is gonna work and this is what we're gonna try. We try a bunch of things and see what really the general public responds to. Um, so that's, it's, it's more of like a, a user focused ad and we have to tailor it to them. And it's like not getting to just show people exactly what we want them to see, but they, they kind of get to determine that a little bit themselves. Do they audit Facebook? If you advertise in the Nation magazine, the Nation magazine will tell you, we print X number of copies and they can kind of guarantee that you're going to be seen by X amount of people. Who's auditing Facebook? Facebook says, haven't they discovered that, was it Facebook or Google who had a return 
a lot of money because their auctions, they were, uh, people were, at, I think newspapers were advertising and, mm. oh, no, the newspapers were, USA Today, Gannett was selling newspaper advertising and it, uh, and it was not for USA Today. It was, it ended up being, they ended up promoting uh, some of their smaller papers instead of USA Today and that and nobody audited it. And I think they found out through a, a, a fan of USA Today. Mm -hmm. Who audits Google and uh, Facebook? You know, I'm not sure if there is anyone, any agency, governmental or non-governmental that does. Uh, you, you can see though, like at least to an extent that people are watching the ads, you have people like them, they comment on them, people click on them. And because of it's the internet that you can track how many people click on them and go to your website and all and see the change in traffic from that. But um, I think that was a problem a couple of years ago, Facebook was actually accused of and maybe admitted to inflating some of the statistics on some of their their ads, video ads specifically, like the, the view time and how long people were watching them. Are some um, people, are, yeah. are there some people what percentage of people are are impervious to ad? I like to think I'm impervious to advertising. Although I did click on something the other day, and I, I, I said, "Oh my God, I'm clicking on this, and I'm buying it." I, I bought a an Oral B uh, uh, liquid flosser. I saw an ad. I clicked. I think it may have been the first time I've ever clicked on something and bought it because I like to think I'm impervious to this stuff. Mm -hmm. What percentage of people at least think they're impervious to any types of advertising? I That's am. a good question. I don't know. You are? Yeah. I am. I, I'm impervious to advertising. Well, Howie, if you saw, for instance, the ad I made for Blue America, if you didn't know about the race in Washington and you saw that ad, would it change your mind about it? Would, what would you take away from that video? I'm impervious to advertising. I wouldn't watch it. I, I don't watch any advertising. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I just as soon as, as soon as an ad comes on of any kind in any way on any medium, I I I am off. I, I either turn my mind off or I turn it off if I can, or I I just never watch it or I click the sound off. Uh, I'm just not in, and I just don't go for ads. Do you think younger Americans are more susceptible to advertising? than older people? I think I think we, since we've grown up in, I, I'm 26 years old, by the way, I see all the comments asking if I'm old enough to drink and all. Um, but I think because my generation and the generations around me have grown up with this, like with Facebook, I got Facebook in middle school in seventh grade when I was like Jesus. 11 or 12 years old, basically. Jesus. Um, maybe we're a little more susceptible to it, but I think we also have, we've grown up with like trying, like a better sense of being able to tell apart like what ads are trying to manipulate us and maybe doing our backgrounds research. Most people I know if they see an ad, they'll Google it. They'll go look for other sources. That's what we've been trained to do growing up with the internet. Like were this. you taught internet literacy in school? Yeah. I remember specific class sessions about like what to do if you see information to, to go vet it, to go find secondary sources and other see like what where the source is coming from. For instance, before I knew what Breitbart news was, I saw some articles from them, had no idea what it was kind of trusted it blindly until I looked up the issue and saw other articles framing it differently. Right. Um, very important skill. I think I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's taught everywhere. I mean, I grew up here in Portland, Oregon, which probably has 
a different lens on that than some other places. And, so it's uh, interesting. So, yeah. so people my age and Howie's age, uh, we were indoctrinated, never trust corporate America, don't trust advertising. And they've stopped advertising to us as a result. They, they we, you know, we're not going to switch toothpastes, but we are susceptible to fake news. I, all my friends and my mother's friends will send me an article that is obviously like the onion. They'll, you know, they'll send me, and I do not get it from my kids or their friends. They send me legitimate news stories. So, but you are susceptible to advertising, corporate advertising. That's interesting. I think, I think part of it is um, I, I kind of split advertising into two separate buckets. One is informational. So just giving you facts, giving you information, and uh, basically a company is paying to disseminate that information on a platform versus, and I've worked in e-commerce on products where I think it's more the latter, that this type of advertising where they're, they're inflating something, where they're using hyperbole, they're trying to make it seem better than it is to sell the product, even if it's not just giving the right, like, the true facts about it, right? Um, I think another thing that came to mind is people, like people my age, we're so used to finding everything on the internet, whether it's a news article, whether it's an ad, everything's just a different different pieces of information coming from different sources. So we almost treat it all the same. Um, but if, if someone your age, you see something from a newspaper, you might expect that to be a reputable source, even if that that might be in question. So it's, I think advertising for me is just a way of disseminating information. People can use it for good, people can use it for bad. I'm hoping here with Blue America Pack and some of the candidates I'm working with, we're using it for good, getting the word out about their campaigns, but it can definitely be used nefariously for sure. Howie, are you finding that advertising works when it comes to raising money, but how does it work for getting out the vote? Uh, we don't know yet, we're gonna find out though. Uh, we, and we're doing ad, we're doing not just money raising ads. We're also doing some informational ads. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, we've never had an effective ad program before, so I can't really tell you. But now, now that we're working with Spencer, uh, we'll I'll be able to answer all your questions in the future. But while we were talking just now, I I saw a um, a thing in my fridge that said uh, cultured vegetables. And I took a spoonful of it and ate it. And it tasted funny. And then I looked on the label and it said, uh, best eaten by 2012. Does that mean I'm going to die now? Uh, well, you know, fermentation, it's good for the gut biome. What, what, what is it? Fermented vegetables? Yeah. Did it smell bad? No. And what, what were the vegetables? Uh, uh, it was kind of a mush, but you know, cabbage it was, looked like it was in there. There's a bunch of you know, cabbage it was kind of mushy. Yeah, but if it didn't, <laughs> it did, it, like it, it didn't smell bad. <laughs> didn't smell bad, no. So it's probably filled with lots of healthy things for your gut. I hope so, especially cabbage. I hope. So. so why would they say eat it by 2012 then? Because I mean, they, that was they want you to throw it out and buy more. Well, I just did. Well, you're wasting, you're wasting food poisoning. It's it's a, it's a, there are people around the world who don't have enough food poisoning, and you're you're wasting it. Uh, so, candidates, is it more important to figure out how to advertise, or is it more important to figure out what your brand is and to stay on brand? 
I think both are equally important. The advertising is the megaphone that gets that brand out there. But if the brand is not it will resonate with people, if it's not what's going to win the election, then that they're, they're both play hands in hand. I wouldn't say one's more important than the other. Yeah. So right now we're we're uh, we're doing our ad, we're doing ads for two candidates who you've met, David, uh, and our audience has met. So one of them is Jason Call up in Washington, and that that's the ad where we're doing the um, we're just advertising in the state of Washington, and we're advertising um, his his very very strong brand. Uh, you know, he has a really strong message, a really strong brand uh, in general. The other ad that we're doing has nothing to do with raising money. And it's just um, it's just a very, very negative ad against an extreme conservative who's anti-choice, anti-Medicaid uh, expansion. He, uh, he's a pro-gun guy. I mean, a really, really bad person who's not really a Democrat, and he's running in the Democratic primary against our candidate who's very, very progressive, um, Erica uh, Smith. You, you've met both of them, right, David? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and what are we learning from that, um, Spence? Um, from the Erica ad? For example, yeah, from the Erica ad and from the Jason ad. What, what, what are the lessons that we're learning? Yeah, well, uh, the Jason ad, first of all, is one of the best performing ads I've ever seen. People are really intrigued by the, the concepts we're talking about around corporate PACs and corporate money and how that's influencing their, their members of Congress. Um, what the, why do you the Eric, think yeah. interested in that ad? Why is that one of the best performing ads that you've ever seen? What makes that uh, performing so well? Is it the message of the ad? Is it the way it looks? Is it what? What is it that, that's attracting people to that ad? A combination of both of those things. I think I, form and content can't be uh, in se- or separated necessarily, and. and when, when trying to put together this ad for Blue America Pack, I'd never made an ad for a pack before, so I really put a lot of effort into that and think it's it's a very quality, very watchable ad. I made sure it was the pacing was right and someone could just kind of sit there and get all the information they need at the, at, with the right timing and pacing and all. Um, the ad for Erica, how we, we, I was considering starting that ad with the, the video of Kirsten Cinema doing the thumbs down thing on the floor of the Senate. Um, and how he said he didn't know if people in North Carolina where the race is taking place knew about Kirsten Cinema, if they knew about that $15 minimum wage vote that she opposed. Um, so we tested it. That's, that's the, the testing idea there. So we had one ad that started with the video of her doing the thumbs down and then one ad that started with just the, the, the anti-choice Democrat who's running in the race. And uh, lo and behold, the one with Kirsten Cinema doing the thumbs down actually got a lot more people to stop and watch and watch throughout. Like a lot of people, uh, right? I mean, usually more people. Yeah, twice as many people. Yeah. Somebody like Bernie, does he need uh, to worry about advertising? Or is he just above? Can he just stay on? What was that Paul, that Paul Simon commercial, Simon and Garfunkel? Uh, you know, looking for America, that song, which uh, gives you the chills. I don't know if it brings out the vote. Uh, well, let me ask you this because we have to wrap it up. This is really interesting. When you go into we, the, we're done already. Yeah, I know it's 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 seven. We can keep going, but uh, when you look at the internals, do you get an idea no. of of what what America wants when you go in there? Do you find out what their biggest concerns are? Yeah, I mean, it, it 
depends on a lot of factors, what audience the ad is going towards, um, exactly what you're using to message it. But sometimes you uncover lots of positivity, um, a ton of people liking the ad, heart reacting to it, agreeing with the message, encouraging comments. Once in a while, somehow the ad makes its way to an audience that interacts negatively with it. There's some city council candidates I'm making ads for in Los Angeles, where homelessness is basically the number one issue on the slate for this election. And we have ads addressing that and how to address it in a compassionate, progressive way, housing first. Um, and there's an ugly side you see uh, people in the comments berating the ideas, saying housing first fails, progressives fails. They've been running LA, which isn't true for a long time is what these people say in the comments and look at how many homeless people there are. Um, the city council, there's only two progressives, one of them elected last year. So uh, I don't know, you kind of, it, it really, the, the Facebook algorithm works in mysterious ways, I would say. Sometimes it'll go to the people who engage the most and that could be negative, it could be positive. Maybe it'll find more conservatives because they think that's engaging better with the ad. So uh, it definitely leads you into some territories you might not expect, um, uncovers some things about the district or the region you're running the ad where you learn something, but uh, you just have to keep, keep going and kind of see what you can do, how you can use that to, to inform what you do next. Facebook, we're told right now, it's on the decline, that it's going to be the next MySpace. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the share prices have dropped. I think they dropped 100 points. They, they still make money, but they, I guess their subscriber growth has stagnated. Uh, a and lot is this of, the U.S. or is this the world, worldwide? I think... The, the the current the, the the consensus is that Facebook is in trouble. Its business model doesn't work the way it used to because Apple's privacy policy forbids Facebook from grabbing the information that it was able to get before. So right, that's Spencer has been telling me as well. Right. So is Facebook? You're 26. Do you use Facebook? Is it still? Or is it tell what's the future for Facebook? Yeah, in, in all honesty, uh, in all honesty, I only use Facebook for these ads. Um, otherwise, my actual social media, my my friends network, and all is on Instagram. Uh, the thing is, though, Facebook owns Instagram, and to run ads on Instagram, you do it through Facebook. So that I think is the future of the the company Facebook. It'll go more largely into Instagram, WhatsApp. Um, the other entities it owns, if those aren't broken up. I mean, I, I would love if the, th there's some action taken on, on tech monopolies, but uh, otherwise, there, I mean, there's other social media platforms. I don't think social media in general is going away by by no means. Oh, right, but, uh, what but is Facebook it? itself might slightly be on the decline a little bit. Yeah. Why is Instagram uh, more popular? Just because it's different than Facebook? It's new? What What is it about Instagram? And and, um, and for advert and how does it work for political advertising? Yeah, I mean it's demographically it's just a much younger audience. So when we have ads going to Facebook, it's it's people over forty usually. Instagram is usually people under forty. Broad divide. There are both groups on both platforms. Um, I, don't, I I haven't necessarily theorized before why Instagram is more popular now. I think part of it. My my grandparents are on Facebook. My aunts and uncles are on Facebook. My parents are on Facebook. <laughs> It almost, to me, it feels like a youth migration to another platform somewhere that there can be more of a youth culture, which at the moment is is a little bit more Instagram. But that's, again, my just personal view on that. I'm not wanting to generalize. 
with with ages or generations I mean, or anything. Every time I don't know what the algorithm is on Facebook, but every time I log on to Facebook, I discover that somebody's 21 year old cat has died. Let's mm -hmm. go. Let's see whose 21 year old cat died today. That's the first thing that always comes up. It's very sad, but uh, uh, but who who are you? Who's who, I don't get that at all. You know, I get I'll get something about uh, you know the drummer in a band died. And I guess <laughs> who, who I'm who I'm following compared to the people who you're following or interacting with in some way, right? You know, I don't know how to work Facebook, so when somebody says their 21 year old cat died, I hit the thumbs up instead of the sad face, and I think Facebook <laughs> thinks I like seeing. Uh, people's cats dying. I think that's how it works. That's exactly it. You're, you're encouraging their algorithms to keep giving you that, that type of stuff. That's where the rabbit hole idea comes from. You're going down a dead cat rabbit hole. So I shouldn't give a thumbs up when somebody's cat dies. If you want to stop seeing those first all the time, yeah. Okay. Uh, Twitter is not the real world. And, and that's where I tend to go. It reminds me of high school because... I'm not popular. I'm hate like, like Facebook. I have like my friends are on Facebook. I feel loved on Facebook. Twitter, I feel hated and left out. So I wow. tend to, it's I gravitate towards Twitter because it makes me feel like crap. Does it does it work? Does advertising work on Twitter, or is it really a, a very hostile mean ecosystem? Well, political advertising is banned on Twitter. Um, same thing with TikTok and Reddit, some of the other major social media platforms. They, in 2020, leading up to the election, they completely banned political ads. Uh, mostly so they didn't have to deal with anything regarding Trump. Um, Facebook, it's a big source of their income, so they didn't do that. Same with Google. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know if political ads would work on Twitter. I haven't, since I've gotten involved in them, they haven't been allowed there. And what's, that, what's that sexy social media thing? Um, something with fan, only fan maybe? Fans only. Only fans. fans only. Can we advertise on that? I've never heard of it. I could look into it for you if you want. Fans. Yeah, I mean, everyone tells me that's the big thing. I've never seen it. David, you sound like you're an expert in it. Uh, well, fans only be started turning into a, a place for porn stars to shop their wares, and uh, and then. Fans only decided, no, we don't want to be in the porn business. And they waited a month and they, <laughs> and they went, you know, on second thought, we, we want to be in the porn business. Uh, so there, it, it's a lot of porn stars. With, with Twitter, do they shadow ban? Does Facebook uh, not expose people to certain types of posts because they're political? Potentially, I, I, I suspect that's been happening more lately. Actually, on the back ends, when you're making ads, sometimes they ask, are these ads, it does your business advertise for political purposes? And they say, this is to help improve the quality of content we show our users. So I do suspect they are almost shadow banning political ads from some users who don't want to engage in politics. Um, but that's improved the user experience, I, I assume. But uh, potentially not great for democracy if we can't get information to those sorts of people. So I will I will see somebody post uh, a famous person will post something like remember to breathe, 
and it'll get 5,000 retweets. And I go, why is that? And I go, oh, because it's not political. Breathing isn't political. That's why everybody's seeing it. Maybe. I'm sure they keep their cards very close to their chests on whether things are shadow bans or not. No one really knows. And bots, buying followers. A lot of people were exposed uh, buying followers. This was about three years ago. Is that still a thing? And, you know, in Los Angeles, if you work in show business, a lot of people get deals based on their Twitter followers, even though the Twitter followers are fake. And and I've heard where they say, yeah, we know they're fake, but it justifies giving this person a deal. I can report to my boss, well, he's got 500,000 Twitter followers. That's why we signed this person, even though they're all bots. Does it pay to buy? What do you mean they're all bots? What does that even mean? I don't, I don't, I don't get that. You can buy followers, fake followers. And, and are they people? Or are they just names? What, is it it's, someone doing? It, it, it's, it's fake accounts. So it will look like you have a million followers, but they're just bots. They're fake Twitter accounts. I suspect Twitter, when they, I, I think early on, they were giving out fake. I just feel like there were there were people who would famous people would suddenly come on Twitter and they would instantly have half a million followers. And I couldn't help but think Twitter had some fake followers that they handed out themselves. Uh, I, I don't get that whole idea of fake followers. I don't understand what that means. There was a story in the Los Angeles Times. Good of having a fake follower uh, if you're not like an actor who wants to get a deal based on followers. Well, what about the Russian bots that retweet and create the... Ah, I know what that is, yes. Right. Because I, I, at one time, Twitter decided to clear out all the bots, and suddenly like I had like 5,000 less followers than I did the night before. Uh there was a story about YouTube about five years ago. There was a guy running for district attorney in Los Angeles who posted an ad on YouTube and it got 300,000 views. And people said, how is this possible that a candidate for DA in Los Angeles has an ad that has 300,000 views? It turned out he had bought the views and the Los Angeles Times did an experiment. They videotaped paint drawing, paint drawing on YouTube. It was a five minute video of just paint drawing. And they bought, I think they bought half a million views. You can buy views on YouTube. That's how YouTube advertising works is you buy, you basically buy the times, put it in front of someone where they can't skip that and it counts toward a view. So that's probably what happens with the DA campaign. No, I think he bought, I think there were farms in Vietnam. There are troll farms in Vietnam that, 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 that sell views. Well, Howie, Klein. David? Have you, do you want to, it's time for Quizmaster Dan. Do you want, do you want, do you and Spencer want to compete with me in trivia? No, I'm, I'm, I'm making dinner now. What are you making? Uh, I'm, well, I'm putting together a salad right this minute. Okay. 
Spencer, do you remember Mr. Rogers? Yes. Yeah. Would you, would you like to compete with Quizmaster Dan? Would you like to go see who knows more about Mr. Rogers, me or you? Sure. I'll, try. I'll, I'll do it. For, I've got 20 minutes until I have to leave, but I, okay. I'm down to try. Perfect. All right. This is Quizmaster. All right. Well, I'm going to hang up and you guys have a good old time. Okay. Howie Klein, enjoy your meal. Read Howie Klein over at Down With Tyranny and give money to the Blue America Pack. Everybody who Howie endorses should be in Congress or the Senate. Thank you, Howie. Bye. Follow Howie on Twitter at Down With Tyranny. Please welcome Quizmaster. Dan Frankenberger. Now, Spencer, this is a game we play called Stump the Humps, and I am the world's leading expert on mobster movies, and Dan has been quizzing me, and I've been kicking people's you-know-what. Nobody knows more about The Godfather than I do. Nobody knows more. Well, The Sopranos, maybe. But this is going to be a tough one. I think you may be able to beat me in this one. I really do. How many questions do you have? I have 10 questions. And I will say that this edition of Stump Thump is brought to you by Valley Box Theater. Ah. On, on Saturday, March 26th at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight, uh, Valley Box Theater will be screening the 1969 mod political thriller Z from director, director Costa Gavras. Yeah. And we'll have a question and answer with our returning guest, uh, Professor Adnan Hussein, Mopad's, uh, Mopeds Park for Free, and contact Valley Box or free Zoom link and at Valley Box on Twitter or uh, email valleyboxtheater at gmail.com. Z, they're, they're spray right. painting it on Russian tanks as we speak. So, all right, let me put some money in the kitty. Uh, hang on for one second. I have a feeling I'm not going to do well here. The, the cat's about to have a feeling. <laughs> We're putting money in the uh, kitty, Spencer. How are you feeling? You have COVID, right? I'm feeling fine. I had a scratchy throat the first day, and I've had no symptoms the four days since then. So and, I'm doing all right. And did you get a booster? I did about three months ago. So in good shape. Okay. You, you tested positive or you have the symptoms? I tested positive. But you don't have any really, symptoms? Not really, no. A little bit of a scratchy throat, that, that's been all. Good. Let's see. Get the booster. Okay, ready, Dan? Yep. So this is the Mr. Rogers quiz. Um, I stumbled upon uh, this idea because Fred Rogers' birthday was this week. Uh, he's born March 20th, 1928. And he was the host of the show, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. We have 10 questions here. So well, let me just say, is, I, I'm pretty good at knowing how old people are. So I'm going to guess that if he were alive, he'd be 93 or 94. Whoa, you're, you're a mathematician as well. Well, what would he have been, 93 or 94? Uh, four. 94. Okay. Fred Rogers enters his television studio house singing what song? This is multiple choice. If you're happy and you know it. Who, who, who's the first, who's, who, Spencer uh, has to answer this and then I have to say agree or disagree. Okay. So Spencer is first. 
uh, Fred Rogers enters his television studio house singing what song? If you're happy and you know it. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Won't you be my neighbor or won't you be mein Kampf? (laughs) (laughs) Won't you be my neighbor? I am going to agree. You're both right. Here you go. I get one point and Spencer gets nothing. No, it's tied 1-1. Pay attention, Spencer. (laughs) Nobody audits me, so I may cheat you. Pay attention to this game. I cheated this. Question number two. What is the neighborhood that you are taken by trolley to every week? Is it the land of milk and honey? Now, I I, I have to answer this. You're answering first, Mr. Feldman. Now, I should not be able to answer any of this stuff. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. I did see the documentary, which I loved. I've never seen an audience as spellbound during a documentary. It was riveting. Did you see the documentary they made about him? No, I, I missed it, but I saw the the fictional movie with Tom Hanks, I think. Right, right. Did you watch Mr. Rogers growing up? I did as a, as a little kid, yeah. My parents wouldn't let me watch Mr. Rogers because the show wasn't on. We just lived next door to him and he used to leave his shades open and I wasn't allowed to watch him come out of the shower. Uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh. Go ahead. I didn't grow up in Pittsburgh. That's not true. Dave is trying to put himself in a dominant position against you, Spencer. Yeah. Don't let it uh, yeah. psychologically affect you. <laughs> Question number two, what is the neighborhood that you are taken by trolley to every week? Is it the land of milk and honey, the neighborhood of make-believe, never, never land, or the brambles? <laughs> the brambles. Uh, I'm going to say the land of make-believe. I agree with that one. Two to two. I'm winning three to one. Uh, Spencer, what is the name of the mailman? Is it Mr. McHuggins, Mr. McTouchy, Mr. McFeely, or Mr. Feldman? I'm going to go with Mr. McHuggins. I'm going to agree. You're both wrong. It's Mr. McFeely. It's Mr. McFeely. Yes, uh, Fred Rogers uh, had uh, McFeely as his middle name. His his mother had multiple last names because uh, she was a foster child. And this is the mailman? Yep, the mailman was Mr. McFeely. Mr. McFeely. Yep. I believe he was African-American. Is that correct? That is incorrect. Okay. Okay. Number four. Uh, David is first. Who did Mr. Rogers always feed on the show? Was it the mailman, fish, a puppy, or the captive in the basement? <laughs> uh, the fish. Agreed. Correct. The fish. Question number five, which fashion item of Mr. Rogers from the show now resides at the Smithsonian Institute? 
Was it his sneakers, his sweater, his scarf, or his ball gag? <laughs> I, I answer this one first, right? Yeah. Yes. I'll, I'll go with the sweater. I'm, I'm going to agree, but he did used to tie his shoelaces, his sneakers, but I'm going to go with sweater. Yeah, that is correct. That is a double correct. This is a tight one. <laughs> What's the score? Four to four? Uh, that was the fifth question, and you both got one wrong, and you've agreed every time. So, yep. Okay. Question number six out of ten. What days of the week were the king, queen, and prince named after in the neighborhood of Make Believe? This is me. I have was to it? answer this, right? Yep. Was it Friday, Saturday, and Tuesday? Was it Wednesday, Sunday, and Tuesday? That was what Apollo- that was Apollonia before her car blew up. The car bomb. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> was it Saturday, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, or was it Sunday, Fun Day, Er Day? Give me the first one. Friday, Saturday, and Tuesday was the first one. Say that again. Friday, Saturday, and Tuesday. Okay, and give me the correct answer. Okay. Oh, I thought I could trick you. I'm going to go with yeah. uh, the first one, number one. I agree. You're both correct. This is... the, the king was King Friday the 13th. And on the castle, if you pay close attention, was written XIII, which is 13 in Roman numerals. The queen was Sarah Saturday. And uh, her last name was only spoken one time on the show, and their son's name was Prince Tuesday. And those were, were puppets. Okay. Fred Rogers started as a puppeteer. Uh, question number seven. What kind of videos did Mr. Rogers watch on the show? <laughs> only fans. <laughs> yeah, fan only and only videos. There's a great how people make the, things in the documentary. There, it's so I saw it in the village, and it was all kids, you know, watching it and reliving their childhood. And Johnny Carson had done a parody of Mister Rogers, and his he opens the door in the parody, and this beautiful buxom blonde walks in, and he goes, mm, "Can you say?" Hooker? Sure you can, neighbors. And I effing lost it. And it really hurt Fred Rogers' feelings. And he had a, he came on the show and Johnny apologized. But I thought that, that was the funniest thing. The sweetest man in the world. And Johnny, can you say hooker? It was just so inappropriate. And Carson had to apologize. You're making me me feel worse than what's about to come. Okay. okay. <laughs> what kind of videos is, did Mr. Rogers watch on the show? Who's was up? It? Who's who's first? Uh, it's this is Spencer. Spencer is first. Yes. Yep. Was it how people make things? <laughs> Words in different languages. <laughs> Animals or snuff films. <laughs> I was going to say snuff films. <laughs> um. I don't remember this one too well, but I can. It, it was how people make things, animals. What was the, the the second one? The second one was words in different languages. Okay. 
I'm going to go with how people make things. Well, the, the safest thing for me to do since it's tied is to agree. Right. And that is correct. How people make things. Yep. OK. That's my strategy. I don't know the answer. Your strategy is to avoid snuff films. I, I, I okay. would watch. I would watch. PG snuff films. There was no cursing in them. So it was the whole family could watch. Go ahead. Question number eight. David is first. To stay in shape, what kind of exercise? Did so say it again. You, you broke up. I'm sorry. To stay in shape, what kind of exercise did Mr. Rogers do? Was it, Is it me? I'm up. Yep, you're first. Oh, I know the answer to this question. Weightlifting, jogging, swimming, or running trains? <laughs> uh, swimming. He was a great swimmer. Are, are you saying on the show or in real life? Or does it not matter? Well, in real life, he was a great swimmer. I'll agree with David on that, yeah. That is correct. It is swimming. This is, uh, this is question eight, right? Uh, that was question eight. This is upcoming question nine. Okay, this so is... So you're tied eight to eight. Okay. And Spencer's first. Which celebrity, prior to becoming famous, worked on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as one of the floor crew doing setup and teardown of the set? and operating the trolley. Was it Bruce Willis, Michael Keaton, Harrison Ford, or Cookie Monster? I am going to go with Harrison Ford. I think I'm going to win this one. Just through the process of elimination. Uh, Michael Keaton is from Pittsburgh. So I'm going to go with Michael Keaton. The answer is Michael Keaton. That is correct. I, I didn't know the answer, but I do know that Michael Keaton is from Pittsburgh. So it, it although Harrison Ford was a carpenter. I did not know that. OK, so I'm winning. The only thing I knew is that uh, my joke answer, I didn't uh, become a pig in this that's good. Cookie and, Monster was pretty innocent. And, I, and Spencer, <laughs> I'm going to win because it's your turn. And if I agree with you. It's, it's except, your turn. Except it's your turn. Yeah. So Spencer has to not agree with you no matter what. Oh, wait, wait. I thought I was. Oh, Spencer what? went first. So you're last. Oh, oh. So. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, this is. This is you gave away some strategy. I know. Fred Rogers leaves his television studio house at the end of each episode singing what song? It's such a good feeling. Pop goes the weasel. You are my sunshine or wet ass pussy. Which is something Dr. Harriet Fraud has talked about on this show. You have. You did mm -hmm. not. Right. I'm not making mm -hmm. a joke. We've talked about that song. Wet ass pussy. Oh, Watch your so. language. Yes, we did. You were upset. Oh, yeah, that was Cardi B. Yes. Yes, yes. we talked. I don't know if that was the title, but I do remember the yes. song. Yes. Uh, give, I'm sorry. My, uh, I apologize to my listeners for the language. 
What is? You're gonna make me say it again. You're gonna punch. No, no, me. you don't have to say the <laughs> last bullshit. one. Bullshit. Uh, what, what What are the choices? Choices are. This is how this is how he would say good night. Yep. Uh, leaving Leaving the episode. Uh, it's such a good feeling. Pop goes the weasel. You are my sunshine or wet ass pussy. You are my sunshine was written by Huey Long. Huey Long's successor. I believe it was a the governor. It was written by the governor of Louisiana who came after Huey Long. I'm going to say no to "You Are My Sunshine." What is uh, the first one? It's such a good feeling. And what's the other one? Pop goes the weasel. Pop goes the weasel. Uh, Pop goes the weasel was written by Anthony Weiner. Uh, I'm going to go with it's such a good feeling. I know the strategy is to disagree, but I, I also know David got that one right. So uh, I'll have to agree to keep my score as high as it could be. You're, you're both right. That is correct. Which means that's it, right? Yeah, that's question number 10. David wins nine to eight, I believe. Nine to eight. It was a good game, Spencer. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the. I I have to say, I have to say that beating you, it it feels good. I I, I wish I could say I was embarrassed, (laughs) but uh, I'm really glad I won. I know that's wrong to say that you're a guest, but. I'm really glad I kicked your ass. And it was a landslide, Dan, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a one-point landslide <laughs> on the show that ended before he was born. Yep, you you whipped his ass. Uh, Spencer, how do people contact you? Uh, I think you posted my, my Twitter in the chat. That's probably the best way. It's a... I believe my Twitter is Spence Spence. Let me find my actual handle. I don't, yeah, Spence Spence 11. I'll put that in the chat here. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, that's probably the best way. Or, or to go to uh, mycoriza.digital. That's the, the name of the, the advertising website for the political ads. Um, one of those is probably the best way. Fantastic. Well, please come back. Uh, you're a good Dude. loser. You really are. Thank you for having me, David. I respect you. You lost with uh, equanimity. Uh, This is great. Dr. Harriet Fraud is about to come up. But first, we're going to play some highlights from my interview with former President Donald Trump. And we'll hear a song from Professor Mike Steinel. And then we will return with Dr. Harriet Fraud, who we haven't seen in a while. This is... uh, my conversation with Donald Trump. Hosted by a total disaster. A total disaster like yourselves. Oh, that, no, that's not And that's nice. why nobody listens, David. Nobody listens. This show is a complete and utter failure. You're like the Hydrox cookies of podcasts, David. You know Hydrox? Yeah. Nobody does. Nobody does because they're sad. They're sad, not sexy. Everyone knows Oreo. Great cookie, great racial slur, Oreo. <laughs> Oreo is a great racial slur. No one slur. ever called, David, no one ever called Brian Gumbel a Hydrox. 
David, do you honestly think I would take a break from being with my beautiful wife, man, yeah, to come on your show? She makes such, such a great tenth lady, David, doesn't she? She's a tenth lady? You mean first lady? No, she's a ten, a complete and perfect ten. So she's the tenth lady. Jill oh. Biden, Dr. Jill Biden is a first lady because she's a one. Melania is a ten. David, an ass like that doesn't quit, unlike Dr. Jill Biden. Even right. Dr. Pimple Popper wouldn't squeeze Jill Biden's ass. I called, you know what I call Jill Biden? I call her Gilly. Jilly. What do you call her? Jilly. I call her Jilly. Jilly. You know why? She's why? a dead ringer for Jilly Rizzo, Sinatra's pal. So I call her Dr. Jilly. Dr. Jilly Rizzo. She looks a lot like a fat, bald, 75-year-old mobbed-up saloon keeper. She does, David. It's a fact. Everyone knows about it. Everybody no. says it. Everybody talks about it, David. She it's looks like Dr. Jilly Rizzo. Dr. Oh. Jilly Rizzo Biden and her husband, Sleepy Joe. Sleepy Joe. Sleepy, weepy Joe. You're sleepy and he's weepy. Have you noticed he's been weepy lately? I'm traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Woolite and a little bag of weed. To saw bell novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room. In a Motel 6 Not too close to downtown But not out in the sticks I need my pen and teller Magic kit So I can do my tricks Got my favorite pillow Which I call Mr. Fluffy Four kinds of allergy pills In case I get stuffy A pound of Epsom salts Cause my ankles get puffy I'm traveling light Two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket in case I get a chill I'm traveling late got my margarita 
my rusty old blender A 50 tequila In case I go on a bender My attorney's number In case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light In case I have some visitors For breeze if I'm really stinky A Polaroid in case I get kinky My Jesus bobblehead And my Star Wars bedspread I'm traveling light I got my rabbi costume and my portable dark room, my hair plug lotion and my expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self-esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. He'll be joining us a little later on in the show. And that was Donald Trump. Earlier, they say it was Robert Smigel. I don't believe that. I think it was Donald Trump. Well, we have not seen our next guest for quite a while. We've missed her. Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. Yeah. Hello. I've been away. You've been away. Where 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 did you go? San Francisco. You were in San Francisco. Yeah. You look beautiful. happy. Francisco. Yeah, it was lovely. The parks are so beautiful. It was really a pleasure. It was very beautiful. But something's wrong with the place. <laughs> what is it? The people. There's something wrong. I I, I spent twelve years living in San Francisco. Wow. Uh, my kids were born in San Francisco. There's something wrong because of the income inequality, because you can't afford to live there. Well, we certainly have that here, too. That's in every city. There isn't a city in the whole United States where two people earning, working full time, earning minimum wage could make rent an apartment. They can't afford it. But the problem with San Francisco yeah. is you're not supposed to be unhappy. In New York, you come here, you don't come to New York to be happy. You come no. to New York because you have to be here. San Francisco, you're supposed to be happy. And everybody's a gourmand and a foodie and they their lifestyle is the most important thing, not their work ethic. And nobody can afford to live there. The only people who can afford to live there should not shouldn't be living they should be rounded up and 
They're horrible people. Anybody who can afford to live in San Francisco, I'm talking about the city itself. They they should be they're they're horrible. It's, it gave us Nancy Pelosi, and this a bad thing. But there are plenty of waiters who live in San Francisco, and plenty of workers who live in San Francisco. But it, it there is a yuppie vibe, and there's plenty of homeless people that live in San Francisco too. And they just can't seem to do anything about it, like build housing for them. Well, well, they're ahead of us in New York in terms of affordable housing. And they have Cheza Boudin, even though the right wing is trying to get rid of them. So right. we have some advantages. But the main thing is it's beautiful and it's not too high except for downtown, which is awful. But, you know, there's so much beautifulness around and right. that's great to take in. I, I don't I've never lived there. I don't, you know, know the people that well. I just there, know the people. There's a then we'll, I want to talk to you about Ukraine. There's a but there's a, a phenomenon of stand-up comics who started in San Francisco, and then they move to Los Angeles, and they get angry at San Francisco. Mm -hmm. It's a real thing where we get so angry that we had to leave San Francisco to go to mm -hmm. L.A. That San Francisco couldn't support us and. Uh, it's it's probably Oedipal. Some anyway. Let's talk about something more cheerful, like Ukraine. <laughs> Ukraine, right? That's a laugh. So yeah, here is my here's what I say. I am rooting for the the blue and gold. Putin is a war criminal. He uh, it, it, this is this is horrible. What? they've done to Ukraine. But in the end, it all could have been prevented 10 years ago if we didn't promise them NATO and the EU knowing that we couldn't deliver. We, we... Look, there's no good guys here. Americans like to... Well, know, the Ukrainian good. people are good and the Russian people are good. Most people are good. However, you know... Americans like to have God and the devil, the good people and the bad people. They're both bad, not the Ukrainians, not the fellow Russians. But look, when NATO, when the Soviet Union fell in 1989, 1990, there was no point in NATO except to further American imperial ambitions. And we promised that since there was no Warsaw Pact of the, the nations associated with the Soviet Union, there really shouldn't be any NATO either against the Soviet Union. In fact, at the time, uh, Khrushchev and Gorbachev wanted to join NATO. What's the point? No point in having an adversary. And slowly the United States circled the Soviet Union with hostile bases with NATO. All the Soviet former countries were armed with missiles. I want to remind you that when um, Cuba started a base with Russia during John F. Kennedy, he risked World War III. Right. Yet that base closed. And it was 90 miles from home. Whereas Ukraine has a 1,500-mile border with Russia, and 
Russia depends basically economically on oil and natural gas through their pipelines run through the Ukraine. They were surrounded. And in the Minsk agreement in 2014, it was promised that they would stay neutral like Finland forever. And that no further NATO countries will be ringing the Soviet Union like a noose. Now, we have fallen back on all those agreements. Why didn't they do something before? Well, they didn't, because the balance of power in the world is changing, and everything is a bit shaky. The United States has lost every war since World War II, and people noticed that in Afghanistan, we were running for our lives helter-skelter with no planning and no uh, participation in decision-making with our allies who were caught with their pants down having to run helter-skelter. They also noticed that we lost in Vietnam, that we lost in Iraq, that we bombed those people silly, that all those same scenes that you see in Ukraine, if we had been allowed to see them then, would have been with slightly colored people suffering the same way, being bombed, being destroyed, holding their babies, tattered limbs, and so on. And so we are in no position to judge. Putin is bombing maternity hospitals. He is a pig. He has gotten billions from his job. He is a dictator. He is an autocrat. He's a misogynist. There's no good guys here. However, NATO provoked him, and the United States wanted a readjustment to put us on top with Europe, who needs a readjustment too. Germany, which was against this whole confrontation with Iraq, changed their mind. Schultz, who got in by a hair and was not, and is a, a nominal socialist, wanted to please the right wing. So what he got was permission to rearm Germany. Quite a mistake since they've done that twice. It hasn't worked out so well. There are no good guys here. I should point out Russia has been invaded by the United States and other forces twice in their history. We have never been invaded ever, ever, ever. And so that there are no good guys. We are provoking a war there. And the destruction of people who are, quote, collateral damage. And we are being deluged with propaganda showing us what war does, the way we were not for Afghanistan and Iraq and Yemen and all the others. And so, and what they say is the first casualty of war is truth. That's true, both sides are lying to their people. However, this was a confrontation provoked by the United States imperial ambitions around NATO and um, the Ukrainian people are being sacrificed. And of course they're lying, they're saying every Ukrainian is standing and fighting, the men are all fighting. No, they have conscription and they're not allowed to leave the country although plenty are hiding, and two million have left, so not everyone is standing and fighting. And the United States is 
stand up and fight till the last Ukrainian, okay? As are the Germans who are in on this too. And so they are being sacrificed. And so it's a tragedy. It's a human tragedy. But the United States is hardly in a position to point the finger since our fingers are dripping with blood. And so it's a horrible situation. And the propaganda deluge is outrageous. It's not both sides. It's one side. I should also point out that Russia has two basic economic exports that allow it to exist as an economy, natural gas and oil. Three of their pipelines run through Ukraine. They're not going to let them be cut off. You're cutting off their lifeblood there. So even though I think Putin is a monster, I think he was provoked because they're trying to, you know, they're trying to do something to reinstate their position since China is the new hegemon of the world and not the United States. And now things are very shaky. They've taken over Russia's assets in uh, the United States. They want to claim the oligarchs' huge mansions, which they should claim all the huge mansions that are basically safe deposit boxes around the United mm-hmm. States, safe deposits for the rich. But that any other country that has any sense will be thinking, whoa, don't invest there. What if they have trouble with you? That's gone. And so we're in an untenable position because of trying to hold on to power as China becomes the new hegemon and Russia will trade with China. It will be less convenient because it's further away in many ways. But, and they want Russia. They want to immiserate Russia because Russia has the greatest natural resources in the world. And this is a, a disgusting political operation where the pawns in the game are the Ukrainians and they're getting killed the way ordinary people always do in wars, whether in Vietnam or Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, or anywhere else. Right. So I I just think we have to decide there's no God and devil here. There's no good guys at all. Well, what about Zelensky? Uh, It's hard not to like Zelensky. It's hard, but I think he's scripted by the United States. He was put in. Between her and Victoria, what's her name? I always want to forget it. Where she said when they they organized getting rid of the pro-Russian in the Ukraine, uh, the memo said, should we put in the clown? That's Zelensky because he was comedian. No offense to you, you're not all clowns, but hey. Uh, And so he was put there by the United States. And I think he was promised a lot and he's not getting it. But, and they do say we will fight to the last Ukrainian, not us. And so I don't think he's a hero. I think he's basically scripted from Washington who put him into his position. And it's all an ugly mess. But I don't think we're in a position to point a moral finger since our fingers are bloody. Right, right. What could we have done differently to stop 
the invasion? What what could Biden have done uh, in December? Well, he could have said, okay, Trump ignored all of this, but we will abide by the Minsk agreement that we all signed. And um, we will make sure that there are no further NATO bases circling your country and that Ukraine will be neutral like Finland for the rest of its existence. That, that that's the end for NATO in the Ukraine. He could have done that. It would have been a smart idea. There wouldn't have been any war. And when these countries like the Soviet Union, uh, like Russia, right. the, the, what we are being told is that Putin says the worst thing that ever happened to him was the fall of the Soviet Union. And I've, I've heard him say that, that, that the fall of the Soviet Union was like the Kennedy assassination for him. So what do they really want? Do they want resources? They want pride? What, what does somebody like Putin? Putin, I think, wants total control and amassing millions. Putin is very, well, Putin is smart, unlike Trump. But, you know, it's all the same sort of things. Putin dated Wendy Murdoch when she and Murdoch separated. And they went on double dates and traveled with Ivana Trump, Ivanka Trump, and her husband, the android. Right. That's the little circle they're in. And I think the United States wants to recoup its imperial position and get Europe on its side, because after all, we told Germany we didn't want them to build a pipeline with Russia, and they went ahead and did. Now they're not going to do it. They're on our side, and they're getting rearmed to the tune of $100 billion in armaments. All NATO countries have to buy their weapons and their armaments from the United States. So there's a nice little boon to the armaments industry. Right. They need and so that will come out ahead. All these people will die, but the arms manufacturers will do wonderfully. You know, I, at the top of the show, said something that I have trouble believing, but I think it's true. The the arms manufacturers need new markets. Where they sure do. Capitalists always need new markets. And they they want you. You have to if Ukraine becomes a part of NATO, two percent of their GDP off the top has to be spent on weapons. That's right. Bought from the United States. It's specified in the NATO um, agreements. So that's isn't that why we that's want one of the reasons why the other is to kind of reinstate America's imperial position because we're going down. We are a debtor nation. China is the nation we're most indebted to. China has its Belts and Roads Initiative, where it's Africa has remained neutral here in spite of our entreaties because they also depend on Russia. And China, primarily China, which is doing all sorts of things. And China is the leading economy in the world now. Explain to me evil, because I, I, I everybody I know watches these crime, uh, these true crime reality shows, 
the serial killer next door. Yeah. And there are there are bad people in, you know, in the building I live in. There's probably somebody who's like doing some really nasty stuff. OK, it's me. But uh, <laughs> we're, we're capable of of imagining evil yeah, because we can we part of us, we're all connected as people. We we're fascinated because that's a capacity for all of us. Luckily, but, all of us are not acting on it. But when we but we're all connected. But when we try to imagine that there are people who are in the weapons industry mm -hmm. who have no problem sleeping at night, ginning up phony enemies that result in hundreds yeah. of thousands of people dying they somehow can rationalize this i mean they're serial killers essentially they are but, but they're definitely serial killers as bob dylan in his song masters of war saying you know he said i'll tell you one thing though i'm younger than you even jesus himself can't forgive what you do but they think they're successful because they're making money. In the capitalist world, you don't care about the suffering you cause. Bezos doesn't care about all those people who died because they were crowded in warehouses during COVID. He's upset that they have, uh, they've had three strikes in New York alone in their warehouses. But, you know. It's interesting. Been, I, I, I I used to work for somebody who uh, was for the invasion of Iraq. And I was working intimately with this person who was beating the war drum. And I remember saying to him, you know, aren't you worried that this is going to turn into Vietnam? And he said, no way, no way Iraq will turn into Vietnam. And then he, I never forgot this. It was like, a month before the invasion of Iraq, he went on Chris Matthews, hardball. And Chris Matthews, you know, I have my problems with Chris Matthews, but he said to this person, body bags, you're for the war, body bags. How many body bags should America order? And, and the person I was working for was appalled that he would ask such a rude question. And I went, really? Like, you, you don't, he goes, that, that's, that, that was a horrible, rude question to ask me. It was inappropriate. And I thought, really, you're beating the war drum. You, you, you was, don't think people will die? And, and, and you're not, you, you, nobody should ask you how many Americans are gonna die? How many Iraqis are gonna die? And he has since never apologized for beating the war drum they rationalize it it was the his thinking is the same thinking as bill crystal the war was a great idea they but they executed it wrong yeah well look one of the reasons people don't realize the cost is there was a law after vietnam where they showed children whose bodies were on fire since we dropped napalm on villages and so on you weren't allowed to have photographs of any of that or the coffins or the torture or the collapsed buildings or the limbless children. They weren't allowed. So it was cleansed from the American media what war is. It's like these people 
on television, these war widows from Afghanistan crying. And what did you think? If he's going into the army, what did you think he was going to do? Sing? No. You're going to kill people and put, and they'll be upset and try to kill you. And I think Russia did not fight back as we encircled Russia with a noose of NATO because Russia lost 30 million people during World War II. I think the United States lost 600,000. I'm not sure. Something around that, yeah. Because people fought in the streets and they, Russia has been invaded twice. We have never been invaded. People don't want to go to war, but I think Putin felt pushed to the edge and he felt that the American empire couldn't resist him now in a way that it might have before. And neither could Europe. And that this was his chance. And because America is not what it was. I think he's horrible. They're not just bombing arm armaments. Uh, they're bombing maternity hospitals. He's a monstrous misogynist. Pussy Riot had it right. But on the other hand, we have pushed him to the wall. And Americans are gung-ho for war because they don't know what it is. Right, right. It's very simple. Uh, you get to be my age. There are 26-year-old uh, young bucks who are about a foot taller than I am, and they steal a cab from me or a parking spot. It's not fair. It's not no. fair that they're stealing my cab or parking spot and i'll say hey what are you doing and they go f you old man and i go you know i probably shouldn't pick a fight with this person way because the you know america's like a jungle everybody's armed you know it's it's crazy in New York, they don't allow everyone to carry arms, but that doesn't stop people. Right. But the point I'm making is uh, it's not fair that no. this person is stronger than I am. Uh, it's not fair that Putin has nuclear weapons and we can't go to war with him. But we agreed on mutual assured destruction, never go to war with Russia because both of us are have nuclear weapons and we will destroy the planet it's not fair that ukraine can't join nato it's not fair but it's not fair if they join it they have to remain neutral because they are otherwise russia has a noose around its neck and you can't do that look just like we didn't allow cuba 90 miles from home this is 90 miles this is the border of 1500 miles right it's a provocation It's a provocation, and the United States hoped it would provoke and maintain its supremacy, but it can't. We're no longer the biggest, you know, the most prosperous, the fastest growth in the world. We aren't. And I think that once your imperial peak has been reached, you should say, okay, let's devote ourselves, which the United States has not done, to a peacetime economy. We've never done that. 
That's why there's a trillion dollars for war. And the schools are terrible. What? And support services don't exist. And we're one of the only advanced countries that doesn't have universal child care and medical care and elder care. You know, that it's an imperial power holding on. And Putin is a monster. Yep. Dr. Harriet Harriet Frutt is the host of Capitalism Hits Home. It's not just in your head. And she has a a show on Pacifica Radio here in New York. It's on WBAI, Wednesdays at 2.30. The name of it being? Interpersonal Update. But this week it's being um, changed because they're having the Supreme Court hearings right. for Katonji Brown. Also, I am I have Capitalism Hits Home is my podcast alone. It's not just in your head. I do with Liam Tate from England and Ikoi Hiroi. Fantastic. How do people contact you? Hfraud at gmail.com. It's good to have you home. We Thank you. you. Good Thank to you. be here. We got Sorry about the non-patriotic news. On this show? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> right Thank you so much. You're Thank listening you. to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Don't forget to sign up for Office Hours. Meet better people every Friday night starting at 8 p.m. And uh, I cannot recommend it enough. Coming up, Professor Adnan Hussein joins us. We'll be right back. I'm a porcine gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you, cause I'm a pig for love. Appetite's rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and the push comes to shove, I'm second to none, cause I'm a pig for love. Suspicious, please pardon me if I'm somewhat repetitious, like a hand in a glove. I'm a pig for love. Yeah, I'm a pig for love. 
Professor Mike Steinell, who joins us in about, I don't know, an hour or so. Let's go to Canada, where Professor Adnan Hussein joins us. He's the host of the Mudgeless podcast. They just did an interview with Juan Cole. I want to ask you about that. And Guerrilla History, I want to ask you how Henry is. And you are chairman of the religion department over at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Welcome. It's good to see you again, sir. Oh, it's great to be back. Uh, I hope you're doing well, David. Well, all things considered, I want to ask you about the mosque attack in Ontario. Was it uh, Mississauga? You had a, yeah, uh, Mississauga, which is um, its own city, but it's in the greater Toronto area. And it's an extremely diverse place, perhaps uh, the most diverse city in Canada. And it's about 750,000 people live there. And it's home to several mosques, one of which is the Dara Tawheed Islamic Centre. Um, that uh, suffered um, a disturbing attack in the early morning, right during the early morning prayer that uh, takes place. So there were about 20 people at the mosque. Um, and it appears that somebody uh, named, um, I mean, this is alleged, he's, although he has been charged that um, Muhammad Moiz Omar, a 24-year-old man from Mississauga, seems to have been, um, we don't know his motivation exactly, but uh, seems to have arrived um, with um, bear spray and a hatchet or an axe. Um, he was subdued before he could you know, do more than a few minor injuries um, by the congregation. Uh, but it's a disturbing case that just puts Muslims on edge be at their mosques since uh, it's just uh, recently was the fifth anniversary of the Quebec City Mosque massacre um, in which uh, seven worshipers were killed and, you know, more than a dozen were injured. Um, and of course, last year on June 6th, um, in London, Ontario, a family um, on the streets of London, Ontario, were um, run down um, by a, a motorist uh, in a hateful attack. And, um, you know, the only survivor was, I believe, a 10-year-old boy. And that was another shocking event. So there have been a string of disturbing events. Um, uh, but it's not clear about the motivation. I mean, obviously, I would say, you know, that it's a Muslim name. <laughs> so um, it's not clear exactly what his motivation was, whether he had some particular problem with this congregation as a disturbed individual or, you know, who knows? The police are investigating. Right. Uh Right. I I like to think Canada doesn't have the problems we have in America. It was bear spray and not a gun. Uh, hate crimes for uh, Muslims in Canada are are they as bad as they are in the United States? 
I mean, I think uh, it's hard to know how to compare these, you know, reporting rates may differ and mm-hmm. so on. But I think what we can say is that the last several years have witnessed a real increase um, um, in some of the more spectacular uh, uh, cases of violent attack. Um, but there is, you know, a much more endemic, broader uh, condition of smaller scale um abuse or discrimination that often doesn't get reported. But even on that uh, level, um, the incidence over the last uh, four or five years has gone up pretty dramatically in Canada. Um, And so, if anything, perhaps it has um, caught up, uh, perhaps, with levels um, that we've seen in the U.S. since 9-11 and with the uh, Iraq War. Right. Let's talk about two anniversaries. It's the anniversary of the illegal invasion of Iraq and NATO's uh, adventure in Libya. Uh, Over the weekend, uh, we celebrated the anniversary. Let's start with uh, the anniversary of Iraq, Uh, 2003. So that would have been 19 years ago. Yeah, 19 years. No, 19 years. How'd that work out? I was talking about this earlier in the show. A lot of people in America were against the invasion. They were dismissed as disloyal to the troops. They said President Bush and Dick Cheney were lying. Uh, that that you know, and the UN said they wouldn't sanction this invasion. How'd that turn out? Well, I mean, we're all pretty familiar with we're all pretty familiar with the trillions of dollars that were spent that could have been dedicated to more productive purposes. We're aware of U.S. Uh, injuries and and death, and sometimes we you know pay attention to the fact that perhaps up to a million or more uh, Iraqis lost their lives um, as a result of um, the invasion and, of course, the ensuing chaos and um, uh, the horrific conditions. And this only following, of course, a decade or so of very extreme sanctions. And Iraq was, of course, uh, the country that um, this kind of sanctions regime um, was imposed in its most aggressive form before we've seen the sanctions regime proliferating on other uh, countries and the cost of the uh, of the sanctions was um, estimated at uh, by you know various uh, international organization reports um, at um, about 500,000 children over the course of, uh, of a decade. Um, so we know that U.S. intervention and involvement uh, militarily has uh, sown a great deal of misery globally. And Iraq is, of course, the most obvious case of that. But we could add, you know, many other places around the world, particularly in the Middle East, but elsewhere. Um, and so it's a very sad anniversary um, that I don't think really was marked very much. You know, it didn't go with a great deal of comment since we're all very concerned about more contemporary events. Did anybody apologize? Did 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 Bush, Cheney, did anybody who paid a price for it other than the Iraqi people 
and our soldiers. Did, did anybody get prosecuted in this country? No, no, uh, you know, nobody did. Uh, I do recall, um, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the Guardian journalist um, who tried to make a citizen's arrest for war crimes on uh, Tony Blair. Um, he's a big environmentalist, but he also uh, was very concerned with human rights. Um, uh, and uh, he tried to make a citizen's arrest against Tony Blair uh, and charge him with war crimes. Um, unfortunately, instead, you know, Tony Blair is on all kinds of corporate boards, is brought to Davos and feted as a, you know, consultant on global affairs and um, even had, if you can imagine, um, an adjunct professorship, uh, visiting a, a, a professorship at Yale University's Divinity School for mm. Ethics. Uh, this is the one that really, you know, uh, uh, concerned me greatly as somebody who, you know, managed um, wow. a, uh, a, a small, uh, you know, uh, school of religion um, to think, you know, where we do have courses on, um, you know, religious ethics, uh, to think that a war criminal who was um, perhaps, I think, you know, see, I blame Tony Blair. Right. The as same way I blame Colin Powell. They, they could have stopped. Yeah, exactly. It. That's yeah. right. Because these are people who seemed much more reasonable, were able to make the case to um, skeptical public in ways that the, um, you know, inanity and foolish um, um you know, ignorant uh, and simplistic discourse of George Bush couldn't appeal, you right. know, to. I mean, he appealed to different constituencies, but the constituency of the kind of educated establishment, um, you know, really had divided opinions and were quite anxious about about this, particularly since France wasn't going to join and some of the allies were critical of this precipitous rush to war with Iraq. And so it was somebody like Colin Powell and somebody like Tony Blair, who were respected figures, you know, leaders who uh, could talk, um, you know, in a sophisticated manner, who seemed reasonable, um, were able to make the case for Iraq that I think really enabled the war. And I blame them as much or more. So I'm really more galled by the way in which um, somebody like Tony Blair has paid no price whatsoever, uh, right. you know, for his uh, for his involvement. He won't even pay his taxes. He was listed in the uh, yeah. uh, Pandora Papers. Pandora Papers. Yes, that's right. What a, uh, I think the word scumbag was invented for him. I'm, I'm pretty certain. I want to turn to Libya because we're coming up on the anniversary of that. Did anything good come from the invasion of Iraq. The, the people from PNAC, uh, people for a new American century, believed that we needed any excuse to invade the Middle East and set up a beachhead of democracy. This is PNAC. This was Bill Kristol. This was Bibi Netanyahu. I, I, I even think the Clintons were a part of PNAC. They believed that what what had to be done was any excuse to get our troops into the Middle East and create a democracy and democracy will spread. Two questions. Is that what they really believe? Did they really believe? Did Bill Kristol really believe that the purpose of Iraq 
Invading it was to spread democracy, democracy through the Middle East. And second, with the Arab Spring, did, did the invasion of Iraq in any way play a role in the Arab Spring? Uh, yeah, those are interesting questions, particularly the latter. As far as the um, the first about uh, whether they themselves uh, really intended to spread democracy, I think there is, um, you know, some evidence uh, that some of these ideologues um, in the post uh, Cold War. Uh, neoliberal moment imagined that um, the U.S. as uh, unsurpassed and unrivaled uh, hegemon could remake the world uh, in its own image because, um, you know, it had achieved uh, victory uh, over the Soviet Union and the model of communism. And so as a result, uh, this was an opportunity. And the U.S. is a sort of missionizing power. It does kind of claim that its approach is um, universally applicable. I mean, it does have that kind of sense that it's uh, sort of light on, uh, you know, a beacon on the hill and that it, you know, um, could bring democracy uh, to the world through its example. So there's some, you know, reason to believe that some people may have had that uh, kind of intention. Um, but I'm not sure it's necessarily that important to determine whether the motives or the intentions um, were, uh, well, I wouldn't want to say pure, I mean, uh, but whether they themselves really believed that that would be an outcome. I think they thought it was an excellent justification for intervention um, and that it was, um, you know, if it happened, wonderful. But if it didn't, there were other benefits that were geostrategically uh, valuable. Uh, and, um, you know, so I think there were almost I think as somebody said there were almost too many reasons to go to war in Iraq. I mean, too many motivations. You could find something for everyone. Um, so the Arab Spring, I believe, start in 2010. Uh, yeah, I th well, 2011, I think, is when did is Mubarak? Really... When did Mubarak fall in Egypt? Uh, I think it was 2011. Um, and so what we saw happening it, by 2011 was Mubarak was overthrown. People power in Egypt, Morrissey was elected. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. And Gaddafi, what, when was Gaddafi overthrown? Well, also, also 2011. <clears throat> and so. it looked for, for, for a moment, it looked like uh, democracy was spreading throughout the Middle East. I remember there were elections in, in Iran and uh, Twitter. That's when we've all really relied on. That was the Twitter revolution. When when was there a, a big protest in Iran? Uh, oh yeah, the Green Revolution. I think that was actually earlier, right. and that might have been 2010. I'm trying to remember if it was 2008 or 10, but it was. It definitely preceded what happened in <clears throat> the so-called Arab Spring. And I think some of these uh, PNAC neoliberal um, f 
folks, uh, neocons, neocons, did want to try and take some credit for it. Um, of course, that wasn't how they imagined it would go. They thought it would be, you know, the U.S. military toppling all of these regimes. Um, if anything, I think the aftermath of Iraq uh, might have um, given an excellent argument for some of these military dictators and autocrats about, um, you know, the hazards of, of democracy. You know, when you consider that many of these countries um, uh, suffer from a lot of divisions and ethno-national and linguistic um, and religious uh, elements. You have, you know, all of these polities in the Middle East, um, you know, are products of uh, cosmopolitan empires where there were lots of mixed populations. And the era of nationalism has not been... Has not been, uh, you know, kind <laughs> to the region because it has just exacerbated um, conflicts of different uh, national, ethnic, and religious groupings. Um, so I think it retarded uh, the possibility for you know democracy um, to take its course uh, in a slower and more sustainable way. Um, but also, I think the um, revolutionary moment in 2011 um, has been, you know, something of a disaster in the region, um, unfortunately. Um, Did the Arab Spring take hold anywhere in the Middle East? Well, I think Tunisia is still the best uh, outcome. They, That's where they it were started, the first, right? You know? Yeah, that's what started it. Um, and really, it was a kind of socioeconomic grievances that started it. And and so I would say, actually, if you want to look to the sources of of uh, the, um, you know, Arab Spring, you could look to actually the poor uh, Russian wheat harvest, um, you know, the, the summer before. And since 40% of uh, global wheat production is from Ukraine and Russia, I think we're going to potentially see um, some serious consequences for this. Um, in the Middle East, almost every country uh, subsidizes bread. Um, and every time that we've seen uh, in the last couple of decades where there's an attempt to float, you know, uh, the cost of bread on market forces, uh, there has been, you know, um, uh, bread protests. Uh, you see it. You've seen it in Jordan, for example. And, you know, the cost of food uh, with inflation now already uh, going high. I think we're going to see that the global south is going to suffer a lot of food shortages, increase in prices. Uh, as a result of this uh, this war and the sanctions um, on on Russia, um, and that was, I think, a real contributing and exacerbating factor in uh, 2011 in Tunisia um, and around the rest of the of, of the Middle East. Um, so I'd say that's a kind of cautionary tale as well uh, for stability in the region. I mean, I was quite hopeful at the time. Um, and hoped that, you know, some of these military dictatorships would fall. Um, but I think what we saw is that even, you know, where there was democracy, uh, like in Egypt, the first round of elections were won by um, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. And 
that this wasn't accepted, I think, um, on the international level. And um, when that first democratically uh, elected government was, uh, you know, uh, uh, overturned, um, there really wasn't uh, in the international community any bemoaning, you know, of the fall of the Morsi government. And I think that was a really terrible precedent. Um, the fact that the United States um, supported the return to military dictatorship in Egypt was awful. And I think also the fact that Obama, for example, uh, did not support uh, protests in Bahrain, where the U.S. has the fifth fleet, uh, you know, for the Persian Gulf or the, uh, you know, stationed. Um, you know, there was a popular uprising against, you know, this Gulf monarchy, uh, where it's a Sunni minority that is dynastically in control over a majority Shi'i population. Uh, and uh, the U.S. really gave the green light for Saudi forces uh, to cross over into Bahrain and help um, the dynasty there suppress um, these popular popular revolts. And that was very early on as well. And that, to me, was, again, a major disappointment. And I think that would have been... Um, that would have been the case that really, I think, uh, might have established U.S. having a different kind of policy that didn't put um, oil security and stability based on, um, you know, these loyal Gulf monarchies. Um, a reversal of that policy would have been the most, um, I think, useful thing the U.S. could have done. And um, it's similar to the, uh, you know, mute response to the Saudi executions uh, in the current context. We'll get to that in a second. Let me ask you about Libya. Uh, I'm going to guess Libya was 2012 because Benghazi was a question during the 2012 debates. Had Gaddafi come over to the West side? Did he make a deal with Blair? I think some or somebody in Great Britain to... Uh, be an ally of the well, West. Well, I think it might have been to resolve the Lockerbie, you know, the right. prosecute turning over suspects of the Lockerbie, you know, bomb attack. Um, and I think in basically uh, several things happened that, um, in, you know, that inc included this, you know, negotiations with the UK, um, but also. Um, you know, the end of his weapons of mass destruction programs. I mean, this was all negotiated and accomplished. Um, uh, so, you know, for a while, it seemed, and, and Gaddafi also during the period of the global war on terrorism said, hey, you know, we are also suffering a problem of, uh, you know, Islamic, you know, fundamentalist movements, uh, jihad, and, um, you know, saw it as an opportunity to ally, like like the Assad government did, you know, like a number of these military dictatorships um, that had been hostile to the U.S. or the U.S. had been hostile to them, found that through the global war on terrorism, they could try and offer, you know, survey, you know, surveillance and intelligence support um, and that their interests aligned because many of these dictatorships were targets of Al-Qaeda and other jihadist uh, sorts of organizations. And uh, Gaddafi was one of the ones um, who did, uh, you know, try and uh, make overtures during this period to ally himself more closely with the U.S. 
uh, we're we're out of time. Did we screw Gaddafi? What did what did we do to Libya? What did Hillary do to Gaddafi and Libya? Well, I mean, they, uh, you know, it's a little bit like some of these other color revolutions. So some, uh, you know, neoliberal figure who is willing to play ball with the United States uh, claimed that there was about to be a genocide, you know, in, you know, the eastern part of the, the country. Um, this was taken up. Uh, you have the passage of UN resolution, Security Council resolution 1973, um, that imposed a no-fly zone, um, and in order to protect the population, ended up being um, the mechanism through which uh, an insurgency that began um, in the East um, was supported by air. Uh, and uh, they had the bombardment of um, the Libyan um, capital and uh, Gaddafi ended up um, being brutally murdered. Um, and uh, the country, you know, ended up being, well, was flooded with weapons. Um, the state collapsed um, and um, the civil war that had been fomented uh, just ratcheted it up and um, it's become a chaotic mess. And basically like the other cases, you know, we've seen, you know, in Syria, the government didn't end up falling, but this horrible civil war was uh, pursued and prosecuted and it just plunged the country into chaos with millions of refugees. Uh, and the same thing has happened, of course, in Libya. It's continued to be a divided, chaotic country. People fleeing, you know, the violence are then turned away uh, by the countries that supported uh, the NATO bombing or participated in the NATO bombing and attack of the country. Um, and we've seen nothing like the reception um, that uh, Europe and North America have given to the plight of Ukrainian refugees, um, despite so the fact NATO that the bombed, United States... NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty organization bombed Libya because Libya is right up against Russia, right? I, I'm not familiar with chat. What is NATO? Well, yeah, you know, this is, a, this is a reason to be a little concerned about what a no-fly zone actually means, is that it clearly wasn't just the imposition or cessation of any, uh, you know, uh, uh, air support um, overall. It ended up meaning that uh, NATO uh, supported you know, as the air force essentially of um, of the insurgency of the rebels against against the regime, and so even though regime change had not been included as part of the justification or rationale of UN Security Council one nine seven three, it ended up being, of course, the actual goals and purpose of the United States and and of NATO. And I think that's the kind of thing that Putin has observed U.S. involvement in the. Middle East um, and, you know, has drawn the conclusion that perhaps the United States uh, is interested in pursuing regime change in Russia as well. We have to wrap it up. Peter B. Collins is going to be here shortly, and we're going to talk about Hunter Biden's laptop. Rudy, Rudy Giuliani is a mad, is a madman out of his mind. Turns out there was stuff on the laptop that we should have seen. There were emails about business dealings in Ukraine that the American people should have seen and would have seen had it been Eric Trump's laptop. 
Uh, but when this was going on in 2020, it just seemed like chaos and it felt political the same way Benghazi was politicized and the Republicans wouldn't let go of it. And I can't help but thinking there was something else to Benghazi that had we pursued it, something really embarrassing would have come out. Do you, do you get that sense that the Republicans knew something that was incredibly compromising about the attack on the embassy and they wanted to keep pressing and pressing because they knew that there was another piece of the Benghazi puzzle that had it come out that would have destroyed Hillary and Obama. Do you get that sense that we haven't heard the whole story of Benghazi? Well, I, you know, I don't remember all of the details of what came out and what the the Republicans were alleging. I mean, I never believe that the Republicans are good faith interlocutors on behalf of the public interest. So one can take a jaundiced, uh, a, you know, perspective on their attempt to politicize it. But I certainly do not believe that, um, you know, that we've received the full story about what was happening. I mean, there have been so many revelations uh, about um, U.S. involvement. Um, and of course, everyone in these countries, you know, in the Middle East suspects uh, the U.S. embassy as being basically the headquarters for various intelligence uh, operations. It's just a question of when and how accurate information might come to light to really explain it. But I agree with you that it's worth being suspicious and basically thinking that um, we don't have the full story. And that's not, you know, you know, you can't rely on the Republicans to, you know, unearth it. But there might be some very serious and compromising, you know, information about, you know, U.S. Um, so-called diplomacy and the use of, um you know, State Department for intelligence uh, right. uh, purposes that could come to light at some point. I was going to ask you about your conversation with Juan Cole, Professor Juan Cole, but people should just listen to it on the Mudgeless podcast. Uh, and who do you have on guerrilla history? Well, on Guerrilla History, our most recent episode was uh, my colleague who's actually been on this uh, program, Dr. Ariel Salzman, and she was talking about um, the history of capitalism from a global perspective and how it changes the picture and the narrative and a little bit about world systems theory. And it's really interesting. She's terrific. And uh, we had a really excellent conversation uh, with Henry and I. Fantastic. Give my regards to Henry. And yeah, uh, Professor Adnan Hussein is the host of the Mudgeless podcast, as well as Guerrilla History, as well as the chairman of the religion department over at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. We thank you for joining us. It's a privilege, it really is. Thank you. Let us now go to Peter B. Collins in San Rafael, California. Let's talk about Rahima and then something good. We'll start off with Rahima. If people enjoyed my conversation with Adnan Hussein, Professor Hussein, the best way 
to say thanks is by giving to rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org. Peter B. Collins, tell us about Rahima. Rahima was founded by Adnan's parents and has been around for, I think, about 30 years now. And they support uh, refugees and other new arrivals in Silicon Valley. And they have focused on different waves of migrants. And uh, I don't know for a fact, but I suspect that some refugees from Afghanistan and others displaced in the wars that you just mentioned in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya uh, have found their way uh, to California and get important support from the Rahima Foundation. And I know how you like to talk about beans Mm -hmm. because they run a food program and they don't just uh, get dented cans of, uh, you know, Campbell's soup or uh, they don't pass out junk food. They work to provide people with uh, healthy supplements to their food pantries. And I just think it's a great organization. I've chipped in a little bit and uh, I invite Feldo listeners to do the same. It's a very worthy organization. All right, let's talk about the Biden family, the the laptop, and Ashley Biden. I'm uncomfortable bringing this up. So there is a diary that we're pretty sure was Joe Biden's diary, to Joe Biden's daughter's diary, that was stolen while she was in rehab and it was spread around the rnc people were reading passages from it and there are purportedly accusations made as this troubled woman is going through rehab allegations against her father had the diary belonged to ivanka what would have and we got our hands on Ivanka's diary. It was stolen. Nobody's entitled to read Ivanka's diary. But had there been embarrassing evidence inside the diary about Donald Trump, what would I be saying? Somebody who rabidly hates Donald Trump, who wants him, wants I want the whole family locked up. I hate the Trump family. If somebody stole Ivanka's diary and there was some stuff in it that was pretty embarrassing to the old man, what would I say about it? Well, I would not be presumptuous enough to speak for you, Mr. What do you you think? I would say... Well, I'm pretty uh, rigid about this, that privacy is privacy. Mm -hmm. And let's make a a very clear distinction here between Ashley Biden and Hunter Biden. Uh, Ashley has never taken a fat paycheck from a foreign country. To my knowledge, she's never worked as a registered lobbyist, as her brother has. Uh, And I I don't judge people with uh, addiction issues, including Hunter. Uh, He's made a lot of bad choices. He's hung out hung out with a lot of low-life people. Uh, But that's not my problem and not my place to judge. Where I come down is that 
Ashley deserves her privacy. And the, however, her diary uh, fell into the hands of people who thought about publishing it. Project Veritas, uh, James O'Keefe. Well, and those people are, are low-life, right-wing uh, propagandists. And so, you know, to my knowledge, uh, even O'Keefe has not released that. Is that still the case? I think they passed it around in 2020 at a RNC fundraiser. Uh, but I don't think it has been publicly I think um, I think you're right. Released. Right. So that is the first time I could say something good about James O'Keefe. Because right. if, in fact, he decided for uh, uh, personal reasons and respect for her privacy, as opposed to the threat of lawsuits, uh, to avoid or refrain from publishing that, then he made the right decision. Uh, Hunter Biden is a very different story. He uh, left behind not just one, but three different laptops. He was so careless with the information that he wishes had remained private. And the materials on, in particular, the laptop that was left at the computer repair shop in Wilmington, Delaware, it was then uh, unpaid for and under Delaware law became the property of the shop owner. He probably through intermediaries delivered the contents to the New York, uh, not the Post, I think it's the Daily News. I and, think it was the Post. Uh, I think it was the Post. Okay, I, let me double check here. I think it was initially... Um, well, the Post is demanding an apology from the intelligence. So you, you are correct. It went to the Post. Uh, I thought the uh, Daily News had a piece of it, but I'm wrong. It's Mur Murdoch owns the, I think Murdoch owns the, You're the, correct. the Post. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. So um, on that laptop is evidence of potentially criminal behavior and extremely poor judgment in the way Hunter Biden utilized his father's uh, name and position to put money into his own pockets often under uh, terms that you and I would find pretty scurrilous, if not illegal. So uh, these two issues, and I'm, I'm glad you raised the diary because I think it helps people contextualize that the relatives, the family members of public figures, I think do deserve a zone of privacy. And I really don't want to see Ivanka's diary if she publishes a book about her years uh, loving her daddy in the White House by volunteering along with her husband, Jared Kushner, um, that's fair game. She is self-disclosing whatever she chooses to say in a book like that. But, uh, you know, David, I, I commented last week when we talked with Trevor Aronson about the case in Michigan, the Wolverine watchdogs on trial uh, claiming a very reasonable case of entrapment by the FBI. And I closed out by saying we'll never know to what extent the phony elements of the Wolverine watchdog story moved voters when it was the October surprise. And 
likewise, the Hunter Biden laptop story was an October surprise. And the media went into uh, hyperdrive to shut down any access to the contents of Hunter's laptop. Uh, They delayed efforts to authenticate the emails that were on there. And the New York Times led that charge to bury the story. They did cover their ass by publishing uh, an article in October of 2020 where they said that, well, you know, uh, we cannot independently prove these claims that this is a Russian disinformation campaign. And this is another extended element of the Russiagate scandal as used by Democratic Party leaders to manipulate and mislead its own party members. And to revert to this, okay, we got a problem. October surprise, Hunter's laptop. What do we do? Crisis management. Well, we blame Russia. <laughs> and we, we now have some vindication because last week on March 16th, The New York Times published a story under the headline, Hunter Biden paid tax bill, but broad federal investigation continues. And they acknowledged that the work of, and for our YouTube audience, I'm holding up the book, The Bidens by Ben Schreckinger. We have to have him on the show. Uh, I did it again, Uh, David. I, I emailed him at his personal website last Thursday and said, Ben, we want to have you on the David Feldman podcast. And so far, I've gotten silence from him. But this book, which does not uh, comment on the media blackout of the Hunter laptop story, and I think that's a weakness of the book, nevertheless establishes that the emails were authentic. And Schreckinger did it by uh, going to people who'd been copied on these emails and saying, could you send me your copy of this email that came from Hunter or one of his uh, his cronies? Maybe he'd prefer colleagues. Uh, and so they painstakingly showed that verbatim, these emails were accurate, not a word had been changed. And there's absolutely no evidence that Russia was involved in any way in the Hunter laptop in Brolio. And the Times finally admitted that last week. That led to a pretty powerful recap of the whole episode from Glenn Greenwald. And if you don't want to pay to see his substack, uh, Bob Shear at the Shear Post uh, published uh, this column uh, by Greenwald last week. And I don't always agree with Greenwald. He can be somewhat hysterical. For example, he claims that you know, we're about to see another big civil liberties crackdown related to the investigation of January 6th. Glenn, you're entitled to your opinion, but I don't agree with that. In this case, he's done incredible work. And let's remember that Glenn Greenwald lost his uh, six-figure post at The Intercept. We didn't embarrass Trevor Aronson with us last week because Trevor didn't have anything to do with the spiking of Greenwald's story. That's Betsy Reed, the editor-in-chief's job. But in October of 2020, Greenwald wrote a piece that holds up to this day. 
to be very perceptive and to have asked the right questions about whether Hunter Biden violated the Foreign Agents Reporting Act with both Burisma in Ukraine and with the deal he was struggling to put together with interests in China. And the China story is still not fully revealed. We know that Hunter and his associates received payments of that totaled about $5 million from Hong Kong affiliates of the Chinese company that he was trying to do business with. And there was this, uh, people, you have to watch the news every day to remember this one, but there was this guy who briefly surfaced named Tony Bobolinsky. And he was treated like uh, Rudy Giuliani with the hair dye running down his face. But it turns out Bobolinsky was telling the truth. He was in the inner circle there. He was copied on many of these emails. And the central claim that Joe Biden appears to have lied about, again, if all of these emails are accurate, we have no reason to believe that they are not. Biden has said, I've never talked to my son or my brother about any of their business activities. Well, that doesn't hold up to close scrutiny. I can't yet call it a lie, David, but it is contradicted <laughs> to a great extent by what has been revealed so far. And Hunter and these other people, including Bobolinsky, traded an email where they were reserving 10% of their get for the big guy. Now, the big guy isn't Jim Biden because Jim Biden had his own share. The big guy isn't Hunter because Hunter had his own share. So these are very serious issues. And this is why, coupled with Hunter's aren't deep addiction there, aren't problems. There, doesn't he say in the emails that my job is to make money for my father, that he's never earned uh, a penny in his life? He's been living on the government dime and it's my job to, to make him rich. Isn't that in the emails? I haven't seen that, David. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, I'm uh, sorry. Well, uh, the, the point is that, um, you know, Hunter has taken himself on a trip to hell and back uh, many times. You're talking about Yale with, Law School. Well, I'm talking about the Yale graduate who turned a crack, who uh, was sleeping with his dead brother's wife for a while, uh, who took up with a, a, a crack dealer, uh, a woman who I believe had a pretty lengthy criminal record. Uh, and, you know, against that backdrop, he was cashing in on his father's name and position. And, you know, this is all now lost in the fog of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We may never get to the bottom of the Hunter saga with Burisma. But just on the face of it, it is tawdry. It is a form of nepotism uh, by proxy where it doesn't appear Joe Biden personally introduced his son to the people at Burisma. But they knew that they weren't hiring uh, David Feldman's child. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
And it, Burisma <laughs> is run by a Ukrainian oligarch who was criminal. He fled, I believe, I think he went, ended up in Monaco. He was he was looting Ukraine. These and the West wanted in on the looting of Ukraine. They were making deals with oligarchs the same way we made deals with oligarchs in Russia. And Hunter with Burisma wanted in on it. Mm -hmm. And it was a dishonest well, and, and he, it was a he, dishonest business. Burisma was dishonest. It was run by somebody who was dishonest. So now we have the Merrick Garland Justice Department. And I don't envy the attorney general having to run an investigation of the president's son. That's awkward. <laughs> but uh, we have seen, and, and this is not a, a slam at, at Garland himself, but the investigation of Donald Trump for uh, fraud in his business dealings, misrepresenting the value of his properties in order to get loans, and then uh, giving lowball figures on the values of those same properties to tax officials. This appears to have evaporated as the newly elected uh, uh, district attorney in New York City uh, uh, caused the two key uh, prosecutors who were hired for this case to quit. Alvin, uh, you're talking about Alvin Bragg. Yes. And now uh, the Justice Department has to investigate Hunter Biden. He has paid back apparently all or most of the uh, unpaid taxes he was accused of. And so he's going to try to skate. And they're now talking about uh, pursuing the failure to register under FARA claim as a civil suit, which would be settled with a, a fine right. and no criminal conviction. And uh, this is a pattern that we saw uh, previously related to Mike Flynn. Right. Farah, that's you have to register as a lobbyist for a foreign country, but nobody gets prosecuted for Farah. Well, I was about to say that, uh, you know, Mike Flynn, who was the, what, 30 day or less uh, uh, yeah. national security advisor under Trump, uh, he had accepted half a million dollars to lobby for Turkey. And Bob Mueller said, oh, no big deal. Just go ahead and file the papers retroactively. And there really wasn't that much on Flynn related to his contact with the Russian ambassador. Uh, so that was one of those stories that was blown way out of proportion. Well, but, but fundamentally, I, they're going soft on these FARA violations, as you suggest. I'm going to uh, circle back to Michael Flynn in a second. Hunter Biden owed a million dollars in taxes the fact that he was caught owing a million dollars, took out a loan to pay off the million dollars, that doesn't exonerate him. If you, if you owe a million dollars to the IRS and they come to you, uh, you're, that's criminal. The fact that you eventually pay it off doesn't mean anything. Right. And the Times wrote about this and they said, well, 
in practice, even juries are likely to go soft on people who have already paid the debt. That's why they're not supposed to know if you've paid off the debt. Right. Right. As for Michael Flynn, was it Kislyov? Who was the Russian? Kislyak. Kislyak. Would, would you agree? I, I know you poo-poo Russiagate. Uh, I don't. But I don't want to argue with you about this mm -hmm. because we're arguing about a fact. The Russians either helped Trump or they didn't. And uh, we can argue the degree into which they helped. But I, I believe anyway. Michael well, I'm in the I'm in the Lee camp camp. And you you did a great interview with Lee last week. Oh, thank you. But but I agree with him that uh, Russia's assistance to Trump was minor, uh, not significant. And the real uh, uh, division of the American people was done domestically, not from outside the country. Okay. But Michael Flynn, national security advisor, the Obama administration was angry about Russian meddling in the 2016 election. They, uh, as a lame deck president, he instituted uh, economic sanctions against Russia to punish them for what Obama's intelligence agencies believed was election meddling. Mm -hmm. And uh, Michael Flynn was going to be the national security advisor. Pretty important job, right? This is the job Condi Rice had. This was Henry Kissinger's job. You know, this is an important job. Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn, calls up Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, and says, and he's not the official, he ha, he's, Trump is not president yet. Right, he's an appointee. And he, he says, don't have Putin respond to these economic sanctions. Once we become, once we get into the White House, Trump is going to get rid of those sanctions. And then the FBI came around when he was national security advisor, like a month later, and he denied that he spoke to the Russian ambassador. So he violated, I believe it's the Logan Act. I always confuse the Logan Act and the Hatch Act. I believe it's the Logan It's Logan. Act. Yes, you're right. You're not allowed to uh, represent, say you're representing the United States and negotiate with foreign leaders on behalf of the United States. He was undermining the Obama administration. But uh, lying to the FBI about talking to the Russian ambassador when he was the national security advisor, that's certainly suspect. He uh, was unqualified to be our national security advisor, and he's proven uh, such. <laughs> He yes. is, I, I don't want to get, I mean, he's a, a loon. Yes. He is a loon. He is dangerous. He, he, the stuff he said in the lead up to January 6th, the stuff, he's not a good guy. And. Mm -hmm. And Obama uh, warned Trump about him. Right. In their meeting on November 5th or whatever it was after the election. Right. Obama also fired Flynn. Uh, we think it was because Flynn challenged uh, the uh, consensus regarding the threat of the Islamic State 
And it was Flynn's agency that had actually authored the document that said that they suspected there would be the rise of a an Islamic State, not called the Islamic State. It was just a descriptor. So, uh, you know, Flynn has a history and there's no question that he is uh, a loony guy. Let's let's work with your term. But Sally Yates was the acting attorney general in the interim there. She attended the January 3rd meeting in the White House where they uh, the Obama talked about White what House. they were going to This is the Obama Correct. House. And the, yeah, they're waiting the inauguration. So they're, what, two and a half weeks out. And then, of course, the Friday of that week, which was January 5th, was when Comey and uh, Clapper went to meet with Trump and to brief him. And that's when they they brushed him with the the dossier and the P-tape allegation. So uh, if you look at Russiagate as an effort by Democrats and the Obama administration to either discredit or uh, reduce Trump's uh, effectiveness or even possibly, you know, try to impeach him, uh, this can be seen as part of that. Now, I'm not in any way embracing Mike Flynn. And lying to the FBI is a crime. Uh, it, it, it's kind of a wobbler, and they don't always enforce it, uh, you know, very effectively. Also, it's just plain stupid that Mike Flynn, who knows all of our surveillance systems, because he was the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, he should have known that the FBI listened in on the phone call with Kislyak, and there was no point for him to lie. I can't explain why he did that. I'm glad he got run out of the administration. Uh, but fundamentally, I view it as an extension of Russiagate. Right, which should, I, I, I don't, I don't want to argue with you, although you have, and Lee, I am rereading some books about Russiagate. And I believe there was smoke. But okay. David, the, the biggest thing that you raised with Lee Camp last week that resonated with me is the uh, still uh, not fully investigated claims that the NRA laundered money from Russia and spent it on Trump. And there is a nexus there because the NRA used the same media buying firm that Trump did. So it would be fairly easy to place a media buy and claim it was from Make America Great Again, but it was actually using laundered funds from the NRA. But Maria Butina is a, uh, a straw figure. She was not a Russian agent. She was treated as a hero when she was finally returned to Moscow after serving a year in American prisons. Uh, but she was a bit player. And she could not have delivered that kind of millions of dollars from Russian interests to the NRA. But I still think that's worthy of, of deeper investigation. Right. And she but she could have made it. She could have made it easy for them to. We, we're not talking about McQueen, the ad, that advertising, the NRA. No. It's a different. No. Yeah, uh, we, we have to wrap up. But you've got me uh, revisiting. Russiagate. So 
Okay. I want to. And you. I want to thank you for revisiting uh, Libya in particular with uh, Adnan Hussein. And I just wanted to add one comment that uh, the whole Benghazi hearings that were uh, where Hillary had to sit there for 11 hours right. and all that stuff, they knew they had her over a barrel. The barrel was that the CIA had this secret site a mile and a half from the consulate. They were running Libyan munitions to the war in Syria from there. She could not go public. Her talking points and the ones, the misleading talking points that Susan Rice delivered early on after the Benghazi assault, they were written at Langley. And so both Hillary and Susan Rice and the Republicans who were questioning them knew no. what they weren't allowed to talk about in public. And so they kept just, you know, drilling into Hillary, trying to get her to lose her temper, make a mistake. Uh, she did get a little testy, but I give her credit for just being able to take the incoming and not really well, give up much. You answered a question that Professor Hussein and I were kicking around. So you're saying kind of like what I said, but you actually have the information. I suspected Benghazi was about something else. And you, you're saying that there was a legal gun running going on that wasn't sanctioned by Congress, kind of like Contragate? Yes. Would this be Contragate tantamount? Like it, was, it was a clone. <laughs> they, they, and Seymour uh, Hirsch is the source, uh, the original source for that. And it's been wow. pretty well uh, publicly established since then. Uh, this is really interesting. Thank you. Because we should have impeached Ronald Reagan for violating the Boland Amendment, which said you cannot give arms to the Contras who were trying to overthrow uh, the, uh, the Sandinistas. No money to go to the Contras. And Oliver North violated the Boland Amendment, which specifically forbade giving arms to the Contras by selling... Uh, missiles to the Iranian Iranians and re, they get the hostages out. But that money was then given to the Contras. Congress has to be consulted. They control the purse strings. If Hillary was running guns to whom in Libya, they she was violating the Constitution. And you cannot do that without Congress's permission. That's a big thing, what you're saying. Hillary had deniability because the operation was run by the CIA, not the State Department. Uh, State knew about it. They, they certainly were briefed because they sent for reinforcements from the CIA site when the consulate came under attack. That's uh, an impeachable so offense. That is an, did Obama know this, that we were secretly? I have. I'm sure he did. I'm sure right. he authorized it. But they, they do these things with that, you know, plausible deniability. And uh, it, it makes it very tough to hold them accountable. Who were we supporting in Syria? Uh, the, the Syrian, what are the free Syrian army, which was Kurdish uh, paid fighters. And, right. you know, the, the schlubs that we spent $30 billion training and they, uh, you know, slipped away in three days with all our money. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Peter, oh, 
and uh, Marianne uh, has the right line. The moderate terrorists. The moderate. <laughs> Peter, yep. B- wow, this was a lot for me to uh, look into. Thank you. You are, well, you're amazing. Peter B. Collins, Bay Area. I enjoy Ra- being with you, David. Thank you. Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. Please go to PeterBCollins.com for a treasure trove of this man's radio shows, podcasts, and interviews. And uh, thank you. Thank you so You're much. You're welcome. Thank Great you. to see you. Thank hey, you. thanks for having me. Thank you for, are you kidding? Thank you. We're honored. Are you kidding? I hate that line. <laughs> uh, I should have said thank you for being had. That's the old. Yes, uh, that works. Okay. Our only elected official joins us. Mm-hmm. Professor Mary Ann Cummings is a particle physicist an amazing artist, as well as an elected parks commissioner from Aurora, Illinois. And I know you have stuff on your mind. You want to respond to what I was just talking about with Mr. Collins? Oh, yeah. Well, there, you guys went through a lot of stuff, and he knows better than I do. But I do recall, so Syria is a country that's um, that's occupied by at least three other countries right now illegally if international law was a thing but international law has not been a thing for the last two or three decades so uh so when the so when all of these groups poured over from turkey um i remember reading this was about three years ago 21 of those 24 groups that were uh attacking the kurds and other of our allies were in that moderate list of moderate rebels. I always kind of wondered, you know, like, did you have to fill out a form? You know, if your organization, did you have to like apply to the State Department or something? Mm-hmm. You know, to get back to you. It was preposterous to begin. It was just a naked grab of power. We're still like in uh, illegally occupying Syria and uh, particularly the oil fields. And it's, you know, it's it's just a mess. By the way, um, I was watching a little bit of uh, of your interview with uh, Professor Hussein. Um, what does Syria, Iran, Libya, and Iraq and Cuba have in common? What does Syria, Libya, Iran? in Iraq and Libya. They were against the invasion of Iraq? They voted against it? Uh, true, but a lot of, uh, I mean, almost the entire world was right, um, right. where it happened. But uh, no, they have all... Have oh, all Soviet. That... Huh? They, uh, what, what are the countries? Hang on for one second. It's Syria, Libya, Iran. Iraq. Iraq and Cuba? And Cuba. Were they at one time Soviet client states? No, they had all had all. Oh, I know, I know. They've never had a winner of the Miss Universe pageant. Oh, that could be true, and I wouldn't do that. I think that would be true. No, they had all attempted uh, at one time or other to uh, pay for oil in 
currency other than dollars. Oh. That was Libya. You know, Libya was wanted, what was it? I think it was, he wanted to set up a pan-African currency and called it the golden dinar or something like that. You know, so many countries have attempted to, you know, do, do their own deals outside of the petrodollar, and that has brought down the wrath of the United States. I mean, Saddam was trying to do the same thing. So, uh, you know, I had, I had talked, I had heard about the petrodollar, and I just kind of nodded my head, but I think this is the first year I really understood it. And I don't think I would have really understood the implication uh, and the persistence of the petrodollar if I hadn't read Stephanie Kelton's book um, on, on modern monetary theory, The Deficit Myth. And in that book, and it was one of those things, she's a very clear writer. I was just a very, very befuddled person reading her book. So I had to read the first two chapters about three times before, you know, because she really, because it was just this idea. He says, we don't collect taxes to balance the budget or pay for stuff. The primary purpose of, among others, but the primary purpose of, of paying taxes is to create a demand for U.S. dollars in our country. You know, so that gives it value because you have to, you can't pay, you can't pay your taxes in other currencies. You can't pay, you can't barter. You have to pay it in U.S. dollars. And there's all kinds of implications with that, but it also gives a country like the United States a leeway to print money, quote unquote, and to run deficits. Um, but the same thing is in the petrodollar. So, I, you know, I guess the, uh, the origin of the petrodollar is that um, the oil is by far the biggest commodity on the planet. By far, it dwarfs everything else that you can buy on the planet because every country needs oil. I mean, it's everything. It's it's the clothes we're wearing. It's the food we have. It's the energy. It's the fact that I'm in a you know fairly comfortable room and not 45 degrees. All the whole the whole thing. So um, that's a very compelling reason. If you can get an agreement with the oil producers uh, that they conduct their business in dollars that they hold, that all these other countries hold huge dollar reserves. That's basically why we have just had these cheap dollars. We've had cheap money for such a long time. So um, it's been, ever since we went off the gold standard, it's been the reserve currency of the U.S., but it's pretty much the reserve uh, currency of the world. You know, until like a couple of weeks ago, (laughs) you know, some country like, wanted to buy oil from like Kuwait and had to purchase it in U.S. dollars. Okay, so it's a, so in some sense, it's a big artificial market for U.S. dollars because it's just this agreement everybody has. It's not that it has really nothing to do with our productivity, although we are productive. It doesn't have anything to do with, you know, the, uh, the desire for U.S. goods, although, you know, Hollywood movies are still in demand. And that's, but then that pretty much what separates our currency for everything else. Um, but it's, it's just a middleman. But um, because it's such a huge currency for the number one commodity on the planet, being a hu- um, especially it's if basically you're a woman, for almost everything else. Trouble doing that t- I'm sorry. 
Okay, sorry, if that was me or you. No, it was me. Um, so I was kind of looking it up, and uh, I think people can go to um, Pablo Escobar, a, a, a person that I was reading extensively during the whole Iraq War thing, and he was writing for Consortium News. I think he was one of uh, Robert Shear's uh, regular columnists in Truth Day. Um, but I've been reading interesting articles, and then I find, oh, my God, that's, he's still alive. <laughs> no wonder he's the guy that's always digging into this kind of stuff. But one of his articles uh, pointed out that because it's the currency for the world's biggest commodity, like over 80% of all international transactions to this day are conducted in dollars. Well, there were three things that happened. We know that China has penned a deal with Russia. And I think that's why there's all this bellicose talk from us in China, you know, threatening talk, don't, don't help arm Russia and this kind of stuff. No, it's, it's always about the 30-year the deal they just penned with Russia. Uh, they are still in negotiations with Saudi to buy oil in the Huan, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, the Chinese currency. Uh, this weekend, uh, India and, and Russia did a deal. It was a fairly modest deal, but it was a little shot over the bow. They, they contracted for like $3 million, of, $3 million barrels of Russian oil in rubles and rupees. And now there is a, an agreement that there, there is a deal that's under negotiation between Russia and Iran to... It's suddenly now that you've got Russia and China, and this is all, this all goes back to the Eurasian um, consortium that they've been planning on for a long time. And this is, you know, part of Russia's, I want to say belt and suspenders all the time, but it's belt and roads initiatives. And they're just making deals all over the world. And pretty soon, um, the one source of leverage we have, we have two sources of leverage. One is the petrodollar. The other is the fact that we've got 900 military bases all over the world that we know of, and that's not mentioning all the black sites. So that's kind of it. Um, <laughs> Carters, yeah. no, I, <laughs> that's I, something sorry. else, I, Professor I, Emily. <laughs> I'm looking at the chat. Um, but anyway, it's it basically up until now is you know nobody could really compete with this, and uh, there is now an opening. And I think it's a political opening in Russia because if it's us, the United States, that are imposing sanctions and that are cutting Russia off, then he's got, then Putin has a much easier political sell to his, you know, to, to the people who are, who up until like about a couple of weeks ago were enjoying Big Macs and fries and all the other unhealthy crap we sell, um, you know, if you, if he went on this voluntarily, uh, that might be much more political turmoil. But if the U.S. is cutting it off, then it's the U.S.'s fault. And what choice do we have? And so on and so forth. I mean, this had to happen sooner or later. There's no empire in the history of the world that goes on for any length of time, even though dying empires can take an awful long time to die. But, you know, I think that's kind of what's going on here in the world. Are we an empire? An argument could be made mm-hmm. that we've colonized people's 
reserves, like their do we've their currencies. But I know we have troops stationed all over the world, and we are fighting wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, I get that. But the sun sets on the American Empire. We we're colonizing and extracting wealth from you know a hundred countries, but it's a different type of empire, isn't it? It's a little different. Oh, I guess it's an empire with a PR firm. It's an empire, <laughs> right? But well, look, you we're know, subjugating people. Empire... We, we subjugate people through debt, not through the barrel of a gun. Until we need the barrel of the gun. Um, I think that is what we do. As a matter of fact, um, that's another discussion. We people haven't discussed, or I haven't heard it much, uh, about the other aspect of the whole Ukrainian business, and that's the IMF. You know, we, we 2014, no, the 2014 coup is something that's left out of a lot of uh conversation and analysis in western media which is now you, you you're know. calling it a coup yes is that fair to call it a coup yes because there was a democratic process in place they had a democracy there were elections that were scheduled in fact they had moved up elections early you know early but the parliament the didn't the parliament vote for yanukovych to resign the parliament did that under gunfire. Who's gunfire? You know, when a hundred people. Who's gunfire? Um, we don't really know. Well, that's. Uh, if you take C fourteen guys at their word, I mean, they're openly bragging that it was them that you know turned the uh, the the maiden protest something that was largely about corruption into something I mean, the, the one guy called it if it hadn't been for us it would have been a gay pride well, parade okay so call, calling it a coup as i understand it is unfair that the maiden protests led mm -hmm. to a hundred thousand people marching on the parliament yes demanding that yanukovych who was stealing about 15 17 billion dollars from the treasury was a Putin puppet. They wanted him gone. They, the parliament voted for Yanukovych to quit and he quit and he ran off. With well, 15. he has, he fled for his life because the snipers, it turned out, and one of them is Bubenchik, Bubenchik, B-U-B-E-N-C-H-I-K has been released from jail. I mean, he was one he was jailed for having been one of the snipers that initiated the violence. That's a, that's a little yeah. hard to prove. Uh Poroshenko, uh, they had an interview and openly, you know, he openly bragged about it. He's, well, he's Woody released. Harrelson's father openly admitted to killing Kennedy. So, I mean, there there uh, but there was 100 dead bodies is not, you know, that, well, where where was where where was Yanukovych's military? He was the president. Well, the police were killed. There were some police killed that day. There, you know, when 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 the when the fighting began. That's and not, I don't that's know not how, a I United States. That's not a United States orchestrated 
coup that is except that there were no we tanks were, it we wasn't were, like no, you don't have to, if you if you chase off a government that has already had planned elections, you could actually have somebody step down. But that's not what happened. They actually are the, our, our people that it would be Victoria Newland and the and, and the ambassador who were caught on an unsecure line discussing who was going to go in. This was like three weeks before the violence happened. They were discussing who they wanted in as prime minister. Yeah, there's a there's a prime minister who I think is kind of like speaker of the house, and then there's the president who is like the executive, sort of the this head of state. And uh, they didn't even want to wait for they they didn't want to even allow the regular order of a late election of a of a accelerated election to happen because the right people may not have been voted in. Okay, so. You know, uh, I remember people in the chat just, you know, kind of wetting their pants over a, a riot that got out of hand because it was an allowed bit of political theater in, in January 6th. And how do I know that or how am I sure of that? Because I saw what or what real security looks like around the Capitol two months before when the Black Lives Matter protest. Okay, so, so let's just put it aside. I mean, when you have... So, so we have on tape our uh, undersecretary of state and the ambassador telling them who we're going to install. They're meeting. Now she with claims. C14 hang on, hang on. Newland claims. Newland claims that, and I listened to the tape. She mm -hmm. said she was performing for Putin. That they knew that they were being recorded. She says we're always being recorded. We were performing for Putin, and she said she overstated uh, what they were doing to to kind of poke at Putin. Okay, this is the ultimate we meant to do type of excuse. I'm sorry. I mean, this is kind of like a lot of revisionism, you know, like in retrospect. But you know, the bottom line was that. You had a you had a government that was in place that was not elected. By the three months later, they did have an election. But by that time, some of the draconian laws that were being passed by this parliament were definitely Russian hostile, Russian ethnic hostile, and Russian language hostile to the point where two provinces in the Donbass area decided they had to break off. I mean, there was you know they didn't have a country anymore. They didn't have a democracy anymore. Uh, they're, they're, the guy who was was deposed was popular in their area, and does so it does it, does it worry you that that is uh, straight uh, from uh, Russian prop? What you're parroting is Russian propaganda. That that is uh, what you know. I've been parroting Russian propaganda since I was like protesting the illegal mining of the Nicaraguan. Harbors. I mean, I've had that. But, but does it worry you? Does it worry you that th this is exactly the party line coming out of the Kremlin? Does it worry the State Department that they hand over, they hand Russia and our other adversaries like propaganda-ready realities that they can use against us? Does it worry them when they're when our own CIA has fessed up to training some of these neo-Nazi groups that? 
you're training neo-Nazi groups, that's propaganda on a platter that you hand to your adversaries. I mean, this is crazy. Now, does Russia, is, is Putin's like big push to denazify Ukraine? No, that's not his push. His, his push, and he has been pretty adamant about that, and that's what the Minsk protocols and agreements addressed for seven years, but for the last 30 years, everybody from Cold Warriors to Noam Chomsky has been been denouncing this, you know, this push of NATO, which after the Soviet Union, the whole the whole purpose of NATO was, you know, should have been questioned. But nonetheless, this pushing, you know, and, and, and this pushing eastward, and getting people in a military. This is a military alliance. This isn't, you know, a social club or an economic or an economic group. This is a military alliance. And now in Romania and and Poland, there are ballistic missiles within a hundred miles of the uh, of of the Russian border. We would not would not tolerate anything close. I, I guess that. Happened, I, I okay. Get I get so, that. So anyway, no, it is. It's a multi-sided thing. You could decide to be provocative, or you could decide, all right, we were going to like address legitimate concern, security concerns of a country that we may not like at all, but that's what adults do. Or you can be provocative and push the circumstances where sooner or later somebody's going to go to war. You know, I, I, just, I, I, I as I understand it, agree with you that we should have done a much better job in 2013 and 2014 not opening a door to Ukraine that they couldn't walk through, as Zelensky said last week, that you offered us NATO, mm -hmm. and now I realize that you were never going to let us in. I I understand that. Uh, but the well, idea, but, but excuse me for one second, the idea of Ukraine turning west is real. They, they, 90% of Ukrainians do not want to be under the thumb of Vladimir Putin. They do not want to be controlled by Putin puppets. Uh, that's from everything I've read is they don't they don't want to be part of russia do you agree with that and russia doesn't appear to, not, nobody i mean the russian population doesn't want them to be part of russia and the the deal the the original accords does not have them part of russia they are two autonomous regions but they remain in the ukraine federation for you know the purposes of certain treaties things like that but um i mean that and you know the good news is that and the idea is excuse me for one second the idea yeah. that the uh the government before poroshenko after maiden was persecuting mm -hmm. russian speaking ethnic russians that as i understand it has been discounted that there, that there was no, that that there's a difference between war against Russian separatists and genocide. Mm -hmm. That waging war against people who are seceding, like the United States did not uh, perform genocide mm -hmm. on the South, uh, 
we were fighting a war against secession. My understanding is that the war against the Donbass region is to stop them from seceding, but it's not genocide. You know, you can ask the people that have been living in basements for the last eight years, you know, if, if that's a, something of a comfort to them. But, but that's you know, war. I mean, that's war. Don't, like, people I'm not... don't go to war for no reason or because, I mean, people, war is a very, very tough thing to, to wage. And whether you think you agree with these people or not, they really felt, you know, an existential threat to what was going on in the West. The, the people and in the Donbass region. The people in the Donbass. Who, who, what people? Donbass, yes. But the majority of Ukraine. The majority of Ukraine is, you know. Wants to be Ukraine and not part of Russia. Yeah. So. No, I didn't. So in the and, Donbass region. And, Donbass and the two regions do not, Donetsk regions do not want to be. Do not they want to be part of Russia, but they do want to have their own culture, their own language, their, you know. But not everybody in the Donbass region uh, identifies with Russia. And we're talking about a small sliver of Ukraine. Uh, yes, we're talking about 40% of the entire Donbass region right now, where that line is, you know, where they're, they've been fighting, fighting the breakaway breakaway provinces so the the invasion of ukraine mm -hmm. uh whatever was going on crosses the line of decency doesn't it more always uh, yes more always crosses the line of decency right there's no justification for putin invading ukraine no matter not what. Not by any international law, no. Not by international law, but morally, do, do, there's there's no justification. The same way there was no justification no. for America invading Iraq, there's no justification for Putin invading Ukraine. And just like there was no justification for Kennedy bringing the world to the brink of thermonuclear annihilation, but, you know, that was... My point is, when you go, when you try to get diplomatic settlements on things, you, you're not going to be making a deal you like, like with your friends. I mean, the whole point of diplomacy is to how, how can we de-escalate de the situation and prevent further de-escalation and damage and war and suffering. And, uh, you know, the, the mince accords that were agreed to and signed on to by Ukraine are pretty reasonable. It seems like that's something that people who actually live there can, you know, can go along with. And it looks like we're heading toward that, maybe. I mean, uh, Switzerland, a couple days ago, has announced that it's uh, agreed to moderate talks between Ukraine, the direct talks between Ukraine and Russia, his name Ignacio Cassis. And Israel is already, has already uh, volunteered, and I think Turkey has. But uh, I think that that might actually happen. And what will eventually, 
I mean, um, I don't see the sides, you know, one side quote unquote quote prevailing over the other side. It's kind of it didn't happen for eight years in the Donbass regions against the rebel provinces. One side did not prevail, but neither side is backing down. So anyone who thought that Ukrainians weren't capable of fighting, you know, that's just was belied by the last eight years. But in the last eight years, we're unfortunate that here we are. So, you know, that's, so that's yeah. a, that's a little bit, I'd like to, that's a little bit of good news. I think a little bit of, of hmm? hubris. Hubris? Is, is that what America needs a little hubris? Well, America needs, you know, to settle the crap down. I wanted to talk a little bit about Nazis, but I really wanted to talk a little bit more about the effect it's having on us. I mean, we're, again, as we often do, are just losing our minds, you know, from, from banishing the name of the first cosmonaut at the, the annual space dinner to, you know, like canceling Tchaikovsky concerts to the people who run the Russian Tea Room in Chicago, that's been a fixture there for, what, 90 years? Founded by Ukrainians, by the way. They're getting threats. People are boycotting them. I mean, people are just losing their minds. And, yeah, separately, Ukraine has a Nazi problem, and we need to be, and it's our problem because we've got some of, we've but got. I'm not saying, the not, I, I'm not saying, so, yeah. I, I, hang on for one second. I know about C-14 and I know about the Azov Battalion and I, I've i been looking for the stories and everything I see about their, their Nazi problem goes back to 2014, 2015. Every hyperlink on every story that I read about Ukraine's Nazi problem. Uh, well, that was the year that well that was the year because of the um because of the fighting out in the eastern half the ukrainian forces were simply not big enough to be able to conduct this war out there and that's when they made a decision to deputize these groups and these groups started growing so but I, yeah, I, I, mean, I don't see any uh maybe i'm wrong but everything i look for i don't see uh Temples, well, mosques, uh, people being attacked by Nazis. Maybe, I'm sure my listeners will send me yeah. reams of information. Well, I don't C-14, see the Azov. I, I don't, excuse me for one second. Once yeah. the Azov battalion was absorbed into the military, I'm not seeing any reports of the Azov Battalion going off and setting fire to mosques or synagogues or beating up people. Of, I, I'm not seeing it. I don't see any reports no. of this. Well, you're not seeing any reports. There are reports. You're not going to see it in the Western press. And it's really very little, by the way, reports that are coming out about this war in general anywhere. But uh, I found some interesting articles. There's but a, there are opportunities, you know, during yes, the time are. of war, there's, you know, your Nazi, your inner Nazi comes out when 
you know, in a yeah. Hobbes, it's a Hobbesian nightmare. So the Nazis are going to come out of the woodwork. Yeah, and and they come out particularly against the um, the minority uh, the the minority populations. So that's what I was going to say. Uh, the reports from a publication that's in English, because you know. It, but who are the minority population? The minority population, uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians, are mm -hmm. not uh, really a minority in Ukraine writ large. Zelensky is a Russian-speaking Ukrainian. Yes, I understand. And you know, but you know, Obama was a black guy, and you yeah. know, we've got some hideous racists here in this country. But I'm saying but this, this, you know, attacking you people this, for but attacking people for speaking. We're not, a, we're, we're not getting report a lot of in, we're not getting a lot of reports at all. But I did, you know, there there are reports coming from Greek refugees that are leaving uh, Mariupol. That's the Azov Battalion, and some of the finally you're actually getting eyewitness reports coming out of there. And part of the problem was the uh, the Russians had set up a corridor, a humanitarian corridor. The Azov Battalion weren't letting people leave, and they were talking about all kinds of you know abuse and, and intimidation at the hands of the battalion people, you know, the Azov Battalion members, trying to get out. Well, what I understand, so those, my, my, know, understanding, I, yeah. my understanding, my understanding is that there are African uh, Indian students who were not being let out. They were pri prioritizing Ukrainians because they were most likely to be attacked by Russia. And Russia is reportedly loading up the boxcars and shipping Ukrainians to Russia. Have you heard that story? Hmm? No, I've no, I haven't heard that. But what's important is not whether or not, and we've heard of something. Do you have eyewitness accounts and any credible sources for that? I mean, I don't watch much television when I'm in the restaurant, and I'm seeing like three, three of the same pictures over and over again at the you know, at the course of eating a meal there and just looking up without the sound. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a fog of war. We really don't know what's, I mean, we certainly saw what Ukrainians were doing to the, the Nigerians that were trying to leave. They were throwing, they were pulling them off the trains. But that was way, that was way in the West. That's in, that's in Kiev. You know, I was talking specifically about minorities, you know, the way reports, finally direct reports, eyewitness reports from minorities leaving Mariupol. Now, the reports are, that the Russians at least have taken over half of the city. I don't know. Um, you know, they they did establish a humanitarian corridor. They were there. That the one guy that's reporting from that entire area who's English speaking, his name is Patrick Lancaster. He's married to an Ukrainian, and he has been posting things. Well, like for the last several years, he's really been the only one. Consistently reporting from Donbas, uh, reporting on the civil war that's going on there. So he he was reporting from Mariupol, and he was showing the the what they call the humanitarian corridor, which is just basically a protected road where people can just leave. So he was in a car, and of course there's traffic backed up for two miles leaving, and he's going into the city. So you know he's just driving past it.
So, um, yeah, it's it's a mess. And well, so the, the report I'm looking at reports of Nigerians uh, being thrown off trains. Well, that's way that's a that's what those are other stories way that's in the West. That's that, that's around Kiev. That's the other thing people need to do. You need to get a map. Everybody needs to get a map and see right. where everything but, is. But that and that doesn't, that's not the Azov battalion. That's just, looks that's like just, racism. That's not the Azov battalion. The Azov battalion now are are, are are centered over in the east right, right. now. They were the, but one of the original. Doesn't, they're not saying Nazis are doing this. This is just, I'm not saying it's right. It's It looks like old-fashioned bigotry and racism. But it doesn't suggest you know, that Ukraine is run by Nazis. Except that, you know, you have a country that back at the end of 2018, the moderate parties, right, you know, because the uh, Sabota party now is like 3%. It was over 10%. But the moderate parties decided to um, devote New Year's as a national holiday celebrating Stephen Bandera. And if you look up his exploits, and they show, I mean, you, you have fairly recent articles from the last two or three years from, from, from Jacobin, from The Nation, um, that kind of show these midnight marches. Right, right. With, I know we have, but we have Jefferson Davis, <laughs> Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee, <laughs> Have are still in Statuary Hall in Congress. Do we have a do, do we have a national holiday honoring uh, Robert E. Lee? No, we don't. Uh, I'm not saying that we don't have a not. We don't say we don't have a racist problem. We have a racist problem here, big time. But the you thing can is, find is that evidence. Was, you can find evidence of Nazis who you know who rise to power and pass can pass one or two laws in any culture uh, yes but they're not given official recognition now now if the u.s army decided that they are going to officially recognize the oath keepers we've named most of, of our government. most of our bases our army bases are all named after confederate soldiers i think we're dealing with that issue <laughs> I don't. I mean, we only we, we only integrated the troops, even though they fought in World War II. We only integrated them in the 1950s. What, what I'm saying is I could produce evidence that this country is, if you're cherry picking, I could show you that America is run by Nazis. I mean, if you look at the Republican Party, if you look at Donald Trump, if you look at the history of eugenics, which comes from America, if you look at the rounding up of the Japanese during World War II, if you look at Jim Crow mm -hmm. and slavery, I could make a case that this country is run by racist Nazis who- Yeah, and this country is evil on the world. And, and, yeah. and there's a Confederate- is it Alabama that or Mississippi that still has the Confederate flag on it? Uh, the the point I'm making is yeah. the idea that Ukraine needs to be denazified is something out of Vladimir Putin's mind. Yes, there are there's racism, uh, the Nigerians being thrown off trains, but that but is, there's something much that's more not sinister. Zelensky's official policy. Of you know, no black Africans can leave 
you, that's not the official dogma of you. No, no, and and that's the, that story. And, was, and there have been no. You bring up Svoboda, but there's been. We don't see any evidence of Nazis or neo Nazis winning any seats in the parliament there, which is. It doesn't. You know when when they pass a when they pass a national holiday honoring a prominent Nazi collaborator. I think Lee Camp put it best. I mean, there's a problem because they are affecting policy. They are small. I mean, it's a small minority. Uh, but I, I suspect it's a national holiday because the guy's name is Bandera, right? There, yes. I suspect it got passed for uh, for his work fighting the, the Germans. Well, he was uh, arrested. He was arrested by the Germans. Yeah, because he had a he had a Ukraine bigger Ukraine vision for Ukrainians. He was very enthusiastic about uh, getting rid of the Jews. But but he's but, but Abraham Lincoln was very enthusiastic about a genocide of Native Americans. But yeah, I, but we celebrate Abraham you know Lincoln. If, I, if I suspect he's that, not getting on. I suspect. Bandera doesn't get the holiday based on the fact that he uh, was a Nazi. I suspect there's another part of Ukrainian yes. history that, that they're celebrating the same way. But this is the 21st century, not the, not the middle of the 19th century. And Lincoln was, yes, that's right. Lincoln, we, we had a problem in the 19th century, our our, our our country was founded on a genocide. We've moved on that, but we've went on to that. But I think that, mm. you know, we aren't making new holidays based on historical figures who have been revealed to be, um, uh, let's say, a little less than copacetic. And, but, but I think more importantly, it was what- We still uh, have Andrew we, Jackson. Yeah. We still can't yeah, replace yeah, Andrew okay. Jackson with Tubman. Yeah, and no. that's a minor. We're, but, yeah, we're but, a racist but, country. But giving but Bandera, but giving Bandera a holiday, but, okay, but is what not I'm saying, official. But I, but does not make a Nazi country. Finish my point, David. My point is, is that there's a problem. There's a Nazi problem because these far. Okay, we'll call them. They're, they're now no longer referred to as neo Nazis, but alt right or, or extreme right. Okay, but. They have an outsized influence because of their ability, their willingness to threaten people, and I don't, I don't envy Zelensky because you know there's a reason why he's been all over the map the last couple of months. He was, you know, telling the United States to tune, you know, tone down the war rhetoric. We don't see, we we don't anticipate Russia's going to do anything. Just tone it down. You're not helping, and he goes between. We're not making any concessions to Russia to. We're going to talk to the Russians, but I think so much of what he does, he has to quell a certain faction of his of the political population. Now, um, you know, according to the Panama Papers, though, I think he's going to be fine. I mean, he's set up several shell companies since 2012. Um, the billionaire that backed him, that formed his party, a new party to back him for the presidency who was the owner of the television 
company that you know, ran his programs. I think he's going to, uh, he may have to leave after all this, but I think he's going to be fine. I'm sorry to be so, so uh, you know, like jaded about the world, but you know, there is a little bit of good news here. Apart from peace, that there may be peace worked out, help, hopefully, in, in Switzerland, um, the three credit unions have decided that they are not going to hold certain medical debt as a black mark on, on your credit rating. Isn't that nice? Thing? Which credit unions? Experian, TransUnion, and who's the other one? Um, Equifax. I think it was, what was it? Equifax, the one that had the massive data breach? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So all three of those. And, and, you know, these are, to remind people, these are not, these are private companies. They have nothing to do with the U.S. government. However, our lives are controlled by how we're rated by them. I've got good credit rating. If I didn't have good credit rating, I couldn't have gotten the home equity line on such fantastic terms to do the necessary repairs on this house. In other words, they control your lives on a, in a very basic material way. So uh, I think it was some partly under pressure by some activists, partly because there was so much uh, medical debt run up in the last couple of years because of COVID. Which, you know, anyone who wasn't a sociopath might think that this might be a wonderful opportunity to just, as because of a national emergency, implement Medicare for all, which you can do under current Medicare laws. I can't remember what the section of the Medicare law was, but it was something like 1.8188. There's a bunch of aids in there. Right. But, of course, that's not happening. But anyway, there's going to be some people are going to get a little bit of a relief on their credit rating for medical debt. And did I read that Biden is maybe thinking about forgiving some student loan debt? They've been saying that for a year and a half. What they're probably going to do is they're just going to save it. You know, they're going to save it to the right before, you know, the midterms. And then there's going to be a little more they're going to save right before the elections in 2024. But he's getting a lot of pushback from his, you know, Wall Street Backers, even though right. a lot of it is owned by the, uh, the U.S. government, a lot of that debt is serviced by private banks. Right. I, I just want to clarify before we have to go, but I want to clarify what I'm trying to say, and I'll give you the last word. I think that the United States cannot be trusted when it comes to war. And I don't believe we've exhausted every avenue for peace. I did not hear anybody in the West while Joe Biden was saying he's going to attack, he's going to attack. I didn't hear anybody in the West, especially Joe Biden or Anthony Blinken, say, you know what, if you don't attack, no NATO, no pro, you know, and now and and then Putin attacked and he got what he wanted because Ukraine is never joining NATO. So uh, and I think, you know, unless somebody can show me evidence of of America guaranteeing that Ukraine will never join NATO before the invasion, I think we failed diplomatically. 
Did you hear anybody um, on the no. West? I wasn't surprised by, you know, the by Biden or his Wex exec, you know, State Department or anybody. I wasn't surprised that they weren't talking diplomacy. I was really disappointed that none of our progressives leaders, our progressives in the House or Senate, talked about any of this. There's one guy, I think he was on the show. There's one guy who was running as a progressive. He was out in Washington State. What was his name? He was on the show about a year ago, and he may get on again. He's on, talking on, on about our show. On on your show, I believe he was on your show. Well, the, um, the name is escaping me. I want to say Case. I don't know if it's a first name or a last name. But, but I, I just want uh, to clarify. Yeah. So I I think we did a disservice to the Ukrainian people by making promises we had no intention of keeping. And that is, if Putin put up a big enough fight, we would not allow you into NATO. We did a disservice to the Ukrainian people. That being said, that being said, Ukraine should be allowed to be part of Europe, the European Union, uh, NATO, I'm not, you know, I'm I, I'm not so sure we, I think NATO is problematic, but uh, what Putin did by going in is a game changer. It's reprehensible. It it he's a war criminal, and whether or not we could have done things differently, and I think we could have, what he's doing right now is uh criminal yeah, yeah it's criminal but it's not he's not the game changer i mean we were the game changer well, we basically uh, displayed to the world that we could just go into any country we wanted and and and, and take them over and uh torture and you know I, international I, laws I, but there's no excuse for violence. Our violence. There's no excuse for violence. But what I'm saying is that we help create a world in which violence is the only thing that's respected. Well, I don't think we're responsible for Chechnya, what happened in Georgia. I don't think we're responsible for Syria. I think. Well, a little bit. I mean, weren't it, I mean, wasn't John McCain telling the Georgians, "Hey, t attack the city, and we got your back"? I mean, then we did another one of those things. Well, and, uh, I think you see, you know, this is going yeah. on while we're we're getting our ass kicked in Iraq. Uh, we can't back up our promises. That's, you know, we're not responsible for the Democratic Republic of Congo and. You know, we're, we're, we play a role in it, but we're not con we're not pulling all the strings in the world. Would that we could, but we can't. We just don't. On a trillion we, dollars a we year. Can just do, we can just do a lot of damage. And unfortunately, I mean, we had we were in a position to do tremendous amounts of good in the world. And we just elected to take an easier path and do just enormous amounts of damage and it, it's sad it's, it's tragic for the world i think the rest of the world is going to i mean there's a lot of people and there's a lot of people protesting in in russia we had millions on the street here protesting 
against the Iraq war for whatever good that did. And of course, after we invaded Iraq, uh, George W. Bush's approval rating went up above 70%, not quite as high as after 9-1-1, but it was just like, you know, this, it was very discouraging to say the least at the time, but, you know, nonetheless, um, and, you know, I guess Noam, somebody had had asked, confronted Noam Chomsky, well, you know, this person and that person, this country and that person are, are doing evil in the world, and Chomsky said, look, I'm not paying their taxes. You know, even if we're only 2%, even if the United States was only responsible for 2% of the misery and more in death, it's the 2% I'm paying for. And in a democracy, we're supposed to be responsible for who we elect and who we, it speaks in our name. Putin isn't speaking in my name. He's not acting in my name. He's not acting on my dollars. You know, the, the money that uh, we're sending, oh, by the way, uh, they canceled the 13.5 a billion dollars for COVID relief, because apparently COVID is officially over now. <laughs> as as, uh, as a White House policy, no, we but we could send 15 billion over there, and unfortunately, that billion is only going to prolong suffering and death. It's not going to do anything to fund fundamentally change reality on the ground, and it's sad and it's tragic, but you know. But there is diplomacy, and uh, I don't know. I mean, if, if it stops, there, there is a vision of people like Victoria Nuland and Anthony Blinken and other hyper-neocons that, you know, Russia can be crushed and broken into pieces, and then China can be trust, crushed and broken into pieces. And when we have dangerous and irresponsible people like that in our State Department, um, well, it's either we're going to wreak havoc on the world or the rest of the world is going to realign. And that seems to be the beginning of it seems to be happening. Professor Marianne Cummings is a particle physicist, a, a brilliant artist. Hey, have you been watching what Lane's been posting? Did you, oh, I have. Did you see the painting he did, the, the drawing he did of Coco, the dog, his dog? Yes. Wasn't that? Oh, that's fantastic. He's yeah. doing this just dramatic, you know, white on dark. And just it's, and he's, as our mentor, Texas Tom would say, he's just being fearless. Mm -hmm. He's just being fearless. And when are, the, when, when is the art class? Uh, that's on, um, that's on Sundays, um, one o'clock central. So it's 2 p.m. Eastern. And that's just on the Zoom. I think he uses your the regular yeah, um, belt yeah. Zoom. So, so it's about we did shoes. Those suckers, but um, we, um, but then we have a little we have a little lecture. If somebody wants to talk, then we have a little demonstration, and we do little um, we do little drawings and exercises ourselves. And there is a art attack Facebook page that. Tom will welcome anybody into the Feldo universe that it's the only rules are that you are being nice and helpful to people. Exactly. So. Thank you. Follow Professor Marianne Cummings on Twitter at Razor Girl and girl is spelled G-R-R-L. Maybe Razor Growl. Is it Razor Girl or Razor Growl? 
Spacer girl. Okay. Thank you, Professor Marianne. Peace. Let us now go to Denton, Texas, where the brilliant Professor Mike Steinell is standing by. There you are, the author of Saving Charlie Parker. Do they make saving bigger? I haven't heard yet, David. Hey, what now, happened? Are, I went. I laid down, took a nap. Uh, <laughs> are you having fires in your neck of the woods? No, we had tornadoes tonight. Tornadoes, but no fires. Not in our neck of the woods. How's my audio? Am I too loud? Don't. You, you, no, you sound great. You sound great. All right. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you. Uh, I wrote a new song. I know. I'm happy about the new song. Uh, you took a nap? Yeah, you're kind of going late. <laughs> we are going late. All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I just lay down, took a little snooze. I take naps during the show as well. No, nobody can tell. Uh, I've been, I've been doing, uh, I've been going to sleep by listening to a book on tape. I'm listening to Anna Karenina. Oh, is that how you say it, Karenina? Anna, you know, Tolstoy. Uh -huh. And the reason I'm doing that is that when in the prologue to um, The Naked and the Dead, Mailer says, he goes on and on about uh, how that book is good because he was an amateur. And one of the reasons, he said he would write it completely different later in his life. But <clears throat> he was amateur and it has a lot of mistakes, but it has a certain feel to it. And he said he, a lot of the tone of it was because he was reading uh, Tolstoy every night. He was reading Anna Karenina. Hmm. So I, so I got the book on tape. <laughs> it's 36 hours long, David. Wow. The book on tape. Who would do I'm, I'm that a... to listeners? Make them endure 36 <laughs> hours? What kind of ego did Tolstoy have that he thought he was so important that people would invest 36? Well, pe people had, pe before, you know, one of the things I want to talk about, it, it, this new song is called The uh, United States of Distraction. Right. And it's based on... Uh, uh, the the book I uh, Mickey Huff last week is that right? Am I saying that right? Yes, he was your guest. Yes, and uh, great book, The United States of Distraction, and um, I have pulled all sorts of verbiage out of it and images, mainly from the prologue written by Ralph Nader, and the introduction written by there's. There's enough in the first 10 pages to make it kind of covers the whole book. But one of the things they talk about is we're in the area of the, the era of constant entertainment. You know, if we're not on this show, <laughs> there you go. That's true. Not always. But, um, you, you know, back in the day when Tolstoy was writing, people didn't have the radio. You know, they didn't have uh TV. They didn't have the internet. I mean, we're bombarded all day long if we want to be bombarded. Like, and, and uh, so reading, you know, was uh, you know you could a, a good thick, you know, like War and Peace or Anna Karenina. Am I saying that right, Anna Karenina? I thought it was Anna Karenina. Karenina. 
the guy, the the guy who does the uh, I can't remember the name of the actor, the voice actor. By the way, you should do uh, books on tape, although I don't think there's a lot of money in it. Then but, I definitely um, should do it. <laughs> it's perfect for you. You know, I was you reading. Great, you have a very soothing voice. Yeah, I put people asleep. <laughs> well, was... that's my point is that I've listened to this book and I set the timer for 30 minutes. I'm going to because I know I'm going to fall asleep. And literally five sentences in, I'm, a, I'm asleep. <laughs> so I don't know. I had to look. I had to go to Wikipedia and read the synopsis to figure out because I was getting so confused. Oh, now he's riding a horse tonight. Um now there's a person killed on the, on the train track tonight. Spoiler alert, she jumps in front of a train. Anyway. Um, and that was considered entertainment back then. <laughs> right. Women jumping in front of trains. That was a big ticket. I, I was trying to figure out, I have to do the research. Uh, this is kind of at the end of the, is it written at the end of the czarists era? Mm -hmm. As the... As the revolution is happening? I don't think so. Okay. Pretty. Tolstoy? Yeah. No, I think Tolstoy was done by the turn of the century. But what do I know? Yeah, but we're, there, there is I could stuff, look it up. Um, there's stuff about Anne the Lee. peasants. You hear the undertone of revolution in it. You know, he's he's got one character that admires the peasants and and uh really just you know and feels bad for his station in life where he's kind of over these people and at one point he um he's going to try to he's going to get let everything go <laughs> and become a peasant because they seem so much happier than he is and was published in 1878 i was very early then yeah but he died uh, in 1914, right before, when did he die here? Right before the 1910. So it was before the, the way before, about seven years. I love before. the 1910 Fruit Con Company. They Remember that? Fruit yummy, yummy, yummy. Company. I love in my tummy. <laughs> was yeah. that 1910 Fruit Con Fruit Gum Company? What did a they stupid sing name. Yummy, yummy, yummy. I got love in my tummy. I think they did that one. I'm not sure. That'd be like something they would do. Uh, I, well, it was bubblegum music. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you a question. Ask away. I forgot what it was. Oh, I'm off caffeine. Do you drink caffeine? Yes, I drink lots. I couldn't. I, how'd you do that? Well, because I can't sleep. I'm well, there you to, go. I, I, you I can't. I'll have a cup of coffee. Uh, I used to have a cup of coffee before the show started. Well, that's I thought you had a coffee enema. Well, same thing. <laughs> and uh, 5 p.m., that coffee doesn't leave my system until, you know, 3, 4 in the morning. It's, uh, can't get up and go to work if you're, you know. So I've, I'm, I have two cups in the morning now. And I'm not drinking caffeine in the afternoon. So I, you're not off cat. You're just that's yeah. I'm drinking caffeine tonight just because, you know, like what I'm off of is wine and beer. You're just having wine, not the no. beer chaser. <laughs> no, I'm off of I'm off of wine and beer. Why? 
I'm losing weight, David. I'm, I'm losing a ton of weight. You want to see me? Take your shirt off. Woo. That's no. it. That's it. Yeah. Well, that's good. I got a two pack. <laughs> it's not a six pack yet. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I had a bad case of Dunlap's disease. You know about that, right? What's Dunlap? Um, when your belly done laps over your belt. <laughs> <laughs> and the weird thing is, after you start to lose weight, your waist size doesn't really change that. What I'm noticing, because I'm thinking, hey, it's time for skinnier pants. Mm -hmm. But no, no, you know, because you anyway, who, who cares about that? I need to buy pants. You need to buy bigger pants or smaller pants. I, or I just, just pants. I need to. I need to buy pants that are not bleach stained, that don't have <laughs> holes in them. I since the coronavirus, I haven't bought clothes. Why? Yeah, I'm not. You know, I go outside. I'm starting to look. Do you wear pants to the show? I wear pants, <laughs> but they're. I mean, they're an embarrassment. They're, they're well, you need to buy they're torn and you're frayed. Get, you, you're going to get denim? Or are you going to do... Uh, nobody buys anything but denim anymore. You're going to get those skinny denim pants? I have skinny jeans, but they're out of style. So, And I have Who mom they? jeans. <laughs> you have yeah, mom jeans, like um, Obama mom jeans. I have the yeah, mom jeans. They gave him crap for that. Yeah. And they're really comfortable, <clears throat> but they're falling down. I look like... Ted Kaczynski's brother. I look like I should be writing a, a, a 4,000 page manifesto. I get myself ready for this show, but the rest of the time, uh, <laughs> I think, anyway. You know what? I, I, I'm i pretty pleased with this song. I, I got Let's so inspired. Okay, but maybe I'll read the text first. Okay. Because I think it kind of holds up. Now, I, I made a huge blunder, and I'm going to go back and fix it. But but I, I just, and I, after I sent it off, I went like, and I was listening just one more time. I went like, oh, how could I do that? The name of the book is The United States of Dis Distraction. And I kept singing in the song, you'll hear, in the USA of distraction, which doesn't make any sense because United States of America of distraction. USA, United States, it's, it's, I can easily fix it, but I got to go back and do the vocals. But anyway. I'm trying to figure out what rhymes with distraction. Oh, here we go. Here we go. You want to? Yeah. New music. This is exciting. New music. You want to you hear the words first? Yes, of course. A poem. By Mike Steinhell. Anyway, we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. We wake every morning like a rolling stones because we can't get no satisfaction. Hmm. Democracy's in chains. We could bury its remains. But infotainment culture has affected our, infected our brains. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and wide anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an, an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. 
The pathological pursuit of power and profit drives everything in sight. Not sure we can stop it. Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top. We lost the power to think, so we shop until we drop. We're surveilled and monitored while they keep us all distracted, so we never notice that our data has been extracted. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The Reagan agenda, a libertarian notion of sweeping deregulation has been put into motion. Our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day. Diversity in media is gone, 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 slowly fading out like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed out any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, media crushes the truth even when it's scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read, but folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. We can't seem to get out of this neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than everybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled, diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full intact by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. Wow. Most of that, most of those phrases are right from Mickey and, uh, and Ralph. Boy, Ralph Nader, what a great writer he is. Yes, he is. His use of assonance and and uh, almost poetic and and f- coining s- catchy phrases that capture it. He's he's brilliant. I think if he just did just his writing alone would make him an important person, you know, but he's he so also- brilliant when he was going to Harvard Law School. He he was bored by the classes, so he would travel around America and write articles about the plight of uh, indigenous people. And then he'd come back to Harvard Law, pick up a couple of books, speed read the cases and ace all the tests. You know, special kind of mind. Just a, a, yeah, just, it's terrific. And I owe a debt of gratitude for the title of this to Mickey and his co-author, who I can't remember, and uh, also to uh, Ralph Nader for all the ideas. This was very easy to write lyrically. Matter of fact, I left out. There's, I could have gone. Um, Liam won't like this because it's very long. But there's a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. Dang it. On Wanna this show? It? What's that? Nothing's too long for this show. Okay. All right. New music, USA of Distraction, written and performed by the brilliant Professor Mike Steinel. Thank you. 
Now, 
how we can't seem to get out of this neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled. We've been diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day, yeah. We're living every night. USA, a distraction, where we're living every day, living every night, in the USA, a distraction, where we're living every day. Oh, damn it. I hit the <laughs> you wrong. You did that last week. <laughs> I did. I, hang on. That, I, can we play that again? Sure. Hey, try something. Yeah. Turn the volume down just a little bit. I think sometimes the 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 sound clips the to, the volume the output of uh, what you're playing. How are you playing that? I'm playing it through my here. Let's try it one more time. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. We wake every morning like the Rolling Stones, cause we just can't get no satisfaction. Democracies and change, we could bury its remains, but infotainment culture has infected our brains. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The pathological pursuit of power and profit drives everything in sight. Not sure we can stop it. Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top. We've lost the power to think, so we shop until we drop. We're surveilled and monitored while they keep us all distracted. 
So we never noticed that our data has been extracted. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. All right. The Reagan agenda, a libertarian notion of sweeping deregulation, has been put into motion. Our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day. Diversity in media is gone, gone, gone. Slowly fading out like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed out any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, the media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. Now we can't seem to get out of this neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled. We've been diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day. Yeah. We're living every night. A distraction. We're living every day, We're living every night in the USA. A distraction. We're living every day. Professor Mike Steinel, jazz trumpeter, composer, educator, educator, 
member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 till about two years ago. He's the author of several highly acclaimed books on jazz theory, including Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary. His latest is Running the Changes. I'll get to the, the novels in a second. His album, Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckert, is on the Origin Records label. For more information, go to MikeSteinel.com. Lake House, his novel, the mystery novel, you can listen to Lake House for free on YouTube. And pretty soon, Saving Charlie Parker will be available for purchase. You are the best. You are just a gift to the universe. You are amazing, sir. Well, I'm the best, the best Mike Steinell in Texas, I think. I think I'm the only Mike well, Steinell in Texas. Don't push it. Don't push it. It's a big state. <laughs> Hey, I think I've got an album of protest music. I was thinking, here. I had several questions about that. Uh, do you have this music without the vocals? I can make it without the vocals. I was you want to do some singing? No, 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 no. I was just thinking it would be great if you were to do like a live show where you're singing to the music. Like you sing well, I could have a band do it, too. I mean, you could, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can make the tracks real easily. So you did all you played every instrument on that song. And I sang all the uh, uh, I did the high part right. there. Now do you I write had to tighten my shorts you, a little bit? Do you do notation? <laughs> I don't notate these because I know what they are, you know. In my head I you know, once in a while what was one once one I did a while back could to kind of work it out, I had to notate the it was the background vocals. I had to get the rhythm right, so I wrote I wrote it out. It was tricky. I can't remember. It might have been. Um, I can't remember. So you know, if this is a protest song, I I have a lot of relatives. They're all over the spectrum. I have some MAGA relatives. I love them, and but I think this song, everybody except maybe the Reagan thing. But everybody would go, yeah. I think, that, you know, and, and in a way, this idea of how we've been distracted by media um, is a, a kind of a universe. I, I, who wouldn't agree with that? You know, who wouldn't agree with that? I mean, if you're a Fox listener, you think MSN, NBC is full of crap, you know, and right. if you're. Uh, CNN, then you think, you know, America won. And if you watch America won, you think they're all crazy, you know? Right. So um, I think getting away. Have you read that? Have you read Mickey's book yet? I'm going to get uh, to you, it. I'm going to get to it. It's it's pretty good. Um, it's stuff that you talk about. And he traces his he, he gets some historical things in there that are Oh, about yeah, James like, Buchanan. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's from there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, Milton Friedman. That guy was smiled so nice. When I was growing up, I thought, this is a very smart. This guy's heart has to be in the right place. And turns out. It was in his so. ass. It was in his ass. <laughs> he was what? 
It was in his ass. <laughs> his heart was in his ass. There was a there's a Santa. It, it, it sounded good at the height of the Johnson administration, when 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 unions were strong, government was strong. This Ayn Randian view of the market. It sounded refreshing. It was different. It was new, but it was bullshit, and it's been proven wrong. And yeah. he's and he's in the service of the ruling class. He is adding a, a philosoph philosophical patina to greed. <laughs> he's making greed uh, sound good. That's all it is. That's what the That's Republicans have succeeded in doing. They with Reagan. And George W. Bush, they figured out a way to make ugly, greedy policy looked look soft and compassionate. And then Trump blew the lid on it and just said, "What are we talking about? This is just greed. We're we're ugly. We're an ugly party. And why are we pretending otherwise?" And I don't see how. And that's why they can't win a national election. They have to rely on all the uh, the tricks that our founding fathers gave us to prevent majoritarian rule. Yeah. But, but they can't did, win a national election. Did you check out the article in the uh, the New York the uh, New York Times magazine this called Where Does America Democracy Go From Here? And it's a roundtable with uh, Carol Anderson from Emory University, uh, author of One Person, No Vote. Our friend Benjamin Ginsburg, remember that guy? Ben Ginsburg? Did he, was he nominated for the Supreme Court? No, 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 no. He was, uh, he, he, he's a lawyer. He was, um, who did he uh, kind of shill for? I can't remember. It's pretty conservative. There was Represents a Ginsburg Republican candidate. Uh, Reagan nominated somebody named Ginsburg, and I think he smoked dope, and he had a withdrawal. Oh, that's it. I'll tell you who's the hero in this, and it's Cheryl Eiffel. I, I really, I've heard her speak on. Uh, um, She's a towering figure, Cheryl Eiffel. A swing and a hit, but a it's a ground. <laughs> it's it's fielded. Hey, 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 hey! I've been watching basketball. I had a great. I, I had I dialed up all four channels and I watched four games. Most of Thursday and Friday, I had four games on my computer while I did other stuff. Um, you know, this New Jersey St. Peter's pulled off a huge upset. They were, they were a 15 seed and they beat a two seed. Hasn't happened very often. They beat Kentucky. You know where St. Peter's is? I guess it's in New Jersey. Yes, that's right. Yeah. In what town? Uh, it's I, It must be a gated community if it's St. Peter's. <laughs> a swing and, a and contact. It's a looper into the left field. It's fielded. <laughs> the runner tags, no score. <laughs> Judge Douglas Ginsburg in November no, 1987. Benjamin, Benjamin Ginsburg. No, I, it's but, a different guy. Yeah, U.S. Court of Appeals judge forced to withdraw as President Reagan's nominee 
for a vacant U.S. Supreme Court after it was revealed that he had smoked marijuana in the 1960s and the 1970s while a college student and Harvard Law professor. Wow. Anyway, this is a, it's a pretty good thing. One of the, one but, of the- um, But Kavanaugh is a rapist. Yeah, right. And he gets- He his, is. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's worse to smoke pot than to, to, to rape. This person, Liliana Mason, says, for a recent article, I worked with co-authors to look at data from interviews conducted with people in 2011 and then again in 2016, 2017, 2018. You can predict who's going to like Trump in 2018 based on their attitudes in 2011 toward African-Americans, Latinos, LGBTQ, Americans, and Muslims. And those are people coming not just from the Republican Party, they're also coming from the Democratic Party, their independents. Trump basically worked as a lightning rod to finalize the process of creating the Republican Party as a single entity for defending the high status of white Christian rural Americans. It's not a huge percentage of Americans that hold these beliefs, not even the entire Republican Party. It's just about half of it. Anyway, it's a really good article. Um, and you can kind of see uh, the, even the people on the, the, the right have some points, you know. <clears throat> hey, right. by the, you like that track on that song that make you want to move? Yeah. Make me want to move I... to Canada. <laughs> Swing and a miss. That's, that was a good one. He catches it at, <laughs> at the wall. He's out. All right. Uh, let's call it a night, shall we? It's a night. It's, it's a, a night, night, David. I want to thank the YouTube chat room. Very complimentary of Professor Mike Steinel and oh, his music. That's I meant nice. to tell you. The people in, right. the, in the YouTube chat room, I was just checking them. Very, very, uh, a lot of fans. If I, if I did a... Uh, a record of use you at United States of Distraction stand together Catherine Liu uh, non-fungible token song Amazon hell number one Amazon hell number two ain't no chairs something died in my garage and I'm traveling light you think that'd be an album I, I think Feldman publishing would uh, rip you <laughs> off I think we could really get you resentful on that Good. Are you like a vanity press? Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I want to do to you uh, what Hesh did on The Sopranos. Remember Hesh from The Sopranos? I, I, I haven't watched The F Sopranos. No, I'm sorry. I You've never seen The Sopranos? You're, I started you're it. You're so lucky. You I were... started it. I still have to do like 490 viewings of uh, <clears throat> The Godfather. Then I'll start on The Sopranos oh, no, 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 to keep up. I'm telling you, Professor. Yes. The the Sopranos. I was talking to my sister and mother about it over the weekend. Just it it is perfection. And every time you rewatch the Sopranos, you see it through a different filter. And as you get older, it takes on new meanings. It is the Sopranos is really amazing. And you're so lucky 
to to be a virgin to experience it for the first time i promise you i've i saw three or four episodes and then somehow things got busy it was about five years ago you know i had watched it i'm telling i i had watched it like each episode five times i swear to you this and i didn't know it was a comedy I had no idea that the surprise, it just washed over me. It seemed so real and accurate. I had no idea how funny it was. And then my mother, I was watching it with her and she's laughing. I'm like, oh my God, this is a comedy. This is hysterical. <laughs> yeah. Billions. Okay. I'll, I'll try to catch that. I'll try to catch that. You watch Billions, get, right? I got to get through uh, Anna Karenina. I love you. You're the best. You are. You're, you're the best. No, no you're, you're the best. best. You're the best. Thank I'll see you. you later, David. Give my best to everybody. Absolutely. Bye bye. That's Professor Mike Steinel, and that is the show. Unless Rodrigo has something on his mind. Hello, Rodrigo. Robert Smigel spoke very highly of you. He wrote me a note. I care. Huh? Thank you. But I, uh, I wanted to talk about Melissa Lucio or Melissa Lucio. Could you could you speak? Could you could you uh, talk louder? Louder or louder? Louder, please. Okay, I wanted to talk about Melissa Lucio, who is scheduled to be executed next month on the twenty seventh of April for killing her two-year-old baby. Uh, the cops decided to interrogate her for hours. Oh, I'm sorry, was... just, I'm sorry. I, I had trouble hearing you. Say it again. Uh, let me put the link in the chat uh, again. Uh, Melissa Lucio in Texas is scheduled to be executed next month for killing her two-year-old baby. The cops decided to interrogate her for hours when she was in shock over her baby's death until she admitted to mistreating the baby sometimes or something, emphasis on the something. And now, 15 years later, she's going to be executed. Uh, okay. I don't know. Send me the link on that, please. It's on the chat. Okay, thank you. And also, that's weird. Uh, it seems weird to be talking about being tricked into playing Choose Your Fascist. And it becomes almost impossible if you can separate moral judgments from logic. We recently met on the show Paul Prescott, a teacher running for the 8th Senate, State Senate District in PA, who feels really skeptical about universities with $40 billion tax exempt endowments. Someone else running for a different state Senate seat in PA is Dr. Ross, who gave up his TV show to run for office. Dr. Ross. Who recently, yes, he recently promised to give up his Turkish citizenship if he wins. I have mentioned before how the super rich will take their toys and move to whichever country doesn't join a global 15% minimum tax rate alliance, but Dr. Ross, Dr. Ross, sorry, while a millionaire, is not near, really a super rich at the scale of, say, Trump, despite all the times he was taken to task by multiple governmental bodies for peddling miracle pills. 
He, however, certainly believes he's part of the 0.01%, just a few years away from becoming the next Trump. Uh, Volodymyr Oleksandrovich Zelensky is currently being acclaimed from many quarters, including European and U.S. liberals who keep trying to risk his life, from Marco Rubio posting selfies with him to Amy Schumer asking if Zelensky can attend the Oscars via satellite. Something that probably wouldn't risk his life is this idea going around of giving him the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, if you can separate morality from logic, if you think anything the mainstream media tells you to believe must be the truth, you probably think this is a great idea. If you can separate morality from logic, however, even for a few minutes, you will realize that we're talking about giving Zelensky the Nobel Peace Prize for refusing to surrender to Putin. Should Zelensky surrender to Putin, even assuming his own military wouldn't kill him for even trying, I probably wouldn't want him to surrender to Putin. But the quickest way to arrive at a peaceful solution probably involves Zelensky surrendering the U.S. and NATO implementing a peaceful transition when instead of feeding weapons to the Azov Battalion and other neo-Nazi collaborationist outfits that have been integrated into Ukraine, the Ukrainian military in the last decade, they would become persecuted. And Putin would be forced to join NATO and allow investigators from the International Atomic Energy Agency to check that his nukes are safe and there's no corrupt officers selling weapons-grade nuclear material on the black market. Again, this probably won't happen because the Obama-Clinton people in Biden's White House would rather give weapons to Ukrainian neo-Nazis than let Putin win. But I want to point out again that liberals want to give Zelensky the Nobel Peace Prize for refusing to end the war by surrendering to Putin. We thought the Nobel Peace Prize had jumped the shark when they gave it to Obama because he promised to try really hard to bring peace to the Middle East without doing anything that could actually bring peace to the Middle East. But now we're thinking, I mean, I had Putin, that means I love Zelensky, and what better way to prove I love Zelensky than by giving him the award that is most prestigious among liberals, the Nobel Peace Prize, for refusing to end the war by surrendering to Putin. And if you don't think there's something seriously wrong with the world where that idea may come to pass, in a few years you will find yourself arguing with your family about Trump's replacement as the conservative big cheese, starting a nuclear war with China now while the United States can still win. After World War I, the U.S. left was traumatized. By the time the build-up to World War II started, most leftists had agreed to stop talking about being anti-war because it was so obvious how evil Hitler was, even though he had taken lots of pages out of the pro-slavery U.S. South. Today, we're doing it again. Western society is so convinced Putin is worse than Hitler that any questioning of the we must help Zelensky stand firm narrative is seen as being pro-Putin. Thank you. Thank you. Great job as always. And that is our show. We barely scratched the surface. I want to thank all our guests from 
This is Revolution Podcast. Jason Miles and Pascal Robert. And thank you, Rodrigo, for turning us on to them. Go to thisisrevolutionpodcast.com. I want to thank Howie Klein from Down With Charity and the Blue America Pack, as well as Spencer Slovic. Spencer Slovic is founder of Mycorrhiza Digital and is handling all the social media over Blue America. Stump the Hump, Quizmaster Dan Frankenberger, Harriet Fraud, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Listen to her podcasts. Uh, it's not just in your head and capitalism hits home. Professor Adnan Hussein, uh, follow him on Twitter at Adnan A. Hussein and at Weekly Marks. Listen to the Mudgeless podcast where he talks to Professor Juan Cole, and of course, Guerrilla History, Peter B. Collins. Thank you. Go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of his podcast, radio shows, and interviews. Professor Marianne Cummings, thank you. Follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl, G-R-R-L, Professor Mike Steinell. Uh, go to MikeSteinL.com for more, in, more information about how you can purchase his books, his albums, and tell him you love him. Who doesn't love Professor Mike Steinell? That's our show. And don't forget, if you would like to join us in the Zoom room, go to my website and sign up. And while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. I want to thank... The people who helped put this show together, Professor Jonathan Bick, Hannah Feldman, of course, Dan Frankenberger. Nothing gets done here without the great Dan Frankenberger. And of course, the Invisible Ninja, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, uh, Joe in Norway, Grace Jackson, and all those people. We have a YouTube channel, The Invisible Ninja. I don't know how he's doing it. He's cutting up the show and putting digestible morsels up on our YouTube channel. So uh, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to the show wherever podcasts are served. The show that we recorded Thursday, the live show, is not available. We had some technical issues there's a full audio version of our last show, but the full live recording session is not available on YouTube quite yet. We can't figure out how to get it. Can't figure out how to get it up. There, something for the chat room to uh, have fun with. I think that covers everything. I'm pretty sure that's it. Uh, thank you all. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong, protect the weak. Hey, chairs in the specimen shop. They're back and outdated and don't ever seem to stop. The man went down cause his heart gave out Get back to work, we heard them
them shout. They said the EMTs are coming, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. Oh, the bookstores are all gone away. <laughs> got me some books, I'll read them someday. Right now, I got to make my rate and all these extra shifts. If I can make it to Christmas Eve, the kids will have nice gifts. And the big boss will have more money so he can go up into space. But there still won't be no chairs in this Bessemer place. Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins and said, vote no. But maybe this year union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemore floor. I'm hoping the union might make things right. Some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. Yeah.